holes in this house. There's some holes in this house. There's some holes in this house. There's some holes in this house. I said certified free. Seven days a week. Fed ass printing. Make that currency weak. On a wall in your backyard. Extra large and extra hard. But you ain't got the cash to pay. Just use that press like a credit card. Grow that debt. Print that cash. Like a tax that never passed. You want wars that never end? Man, this beats funding them like that. You want a bridge. You want a bomb. You want a check. Send out to Tom. We gonna park this Big Mac truck right in your fiscal garage. Let's be frank. Check is blank from our secret central bank. I don't cut. I don't think. But let me tell you, I got this tank. Gotta be hard to beat monetary sovereignty. Inflate that cash till it turns to monopoly. Quantitative easing executed properly. I'm well versed in monetary policy. Spending cuts. Baby, are you kidding me? Print some ones that make a facsimile. I'm like Drake, baby, can't you see? Turning M1 into M3. I got Pomo FOMO. I don't see what the harm is. Applying downward pressure in the capital markets. Buying troubled assets and we're not stopping. We're more excited than Prince Andrew with a hot topic. Print and press. I'm impressed as a big loner. The debt's now looking like a big grower. To see the spike, you don't need a decoder. Got a hook in it. Hopefully it leans over. So if adult decisions make you shudder, don't call your mom, call your brother. Cause there ain't no kind of trouble that can't be fixed by a bubble. So grab your Mac, add some stacks to the Fed ass printing. We bought a drone just for pictures with some Fed ass printing. Paid his tuition, this edition, all from Fed ass printing. To make it rain, all you're needing is some Fed ass printing. Running up the debt. What's the worst that could happen? I don't know. Maybe hyperinflation could happen. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus is being broadcast live and recorded live on August 28th, 2020. Right now the time is 10, 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Some people have complained we're starting later and later. And we are. And I have no excuses for that. That's just what we've been doing. And if you don't like it, you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, and ask for a refund, and I will process one for every penny you've ever paid for this show. Not donated to it, but every penny you've paid to access it. I will give you every penny you paid for the show going all the way back to 2012. Anyway, we have a free roll going right now. It started at 9.55. You have eight more minutes to get in there. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. And something I wanted to mention is that it's $50 plus three bounties this week. It's an unusual free roll where I was given $15 for bounties, and I was told, use them however you like. Just put it on three different people that you choose. So I said, well, i got to choose people I know are going to play. So what I did was uh, shortly before the show started, I went and logged in to the No Fraud Online Poker Room, and I checked who was registered to play, and I found Trader Ruski, I found Matt the Rat, and I found I Am Greek, three regular players and uh, listeners of the show. Of course, Trader Ruski being more than a listener, being the co-host. But uh, those are the three people who will have bounties on them. And uh, if you guys don't like it, then too bad. The good news is you probably won't have a bounty on you next week unless uh, somebody else puts one on you. I cannot guarantee that people won't put a bounty on you. When I say you, I mean any player in the field could have a bounty put on them. That is always allowed. If you want to donate bounties, you always can. So $5 for knocking any of them out. And uh, if they win, then they just uh, they get the bounty themselves. So that's, uh, I guess that's one advantage they get, that they will win their own bounty if they win the entire tournament. Otherwise, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. The other $50, the 50 for the main prize pool, came from Online Veteran. 
He's been around for a long time. In fact, he played against me on True Poker in Limit Hold'em, 1020 Limit Hold'em, back in 2001. So he's been around in the online poker scene for a long time. That's why he calls himself Online Veteran. And he also uh, had the coronavirus and had it uh, fairly badly. He survived, and uh, it looks like he'll be okay. But uh, he's kind of near my age and had it fairly badly. And I felt bad for him when I heard about that. So anyway, thank you to him. And he donated $100, actually, but I have split it. Ballhawknet, who plays, in fact, Ballhawk cashed last week, but Ballhawknet complained that I'm holding back free roll money for future weeks and that I, I should just put it all out there at once. The problem with that is I don't have an unlimited well to draw from, so I don't know what's going to come in future weeks, and I don't want to blow my load on one week and then be scratching the next week. It's a pain in the ass, and... I don't want to have to put in my own Jew money to this thing. So that's why I have to hold money back. So online veteran, I appreciate the $100. And this way he donates two consecutive weeks, $50 each, rather than $100 one week. So he gets recognition twice as often, which is better for him. He's not doing it for the recognition. He's just doing it to be nice. In fact, that's the truth. Most people who donate to this, in fact, the vast majority who donate are not doing it to hear themselves mentioned here or to get any kind of credit. They're just doing it because they want to give back to the show and to the Poker Fraud Alert community. And I think that's great. This is something which people have chosen to do with no gain on their end. They're not looking to get anything back from it. It's just purely being nice. And that's Good to see, especially these days. The other 15, by the way, came from Axel Wolf's Pet Ferret. Remember Axel Wolf? He was on the show he co-hosted a few months ago. Kind of joined us in the middle. He did a good job, too. But Axel Wolf, uh, he has a pet ferret, and the ferret donated the $15. Not Axel Wolf himself. In fact, I, I don't think Axel Wolf is aware that his ferret has donated. But Axel Wolf's Pet Ferret has donated $15 to the show for the bounties. He's the one who gave me the instructions to spread it however I like, and I did. So there you go. It's, you have late registration there till uh, 1020, 25 minutes of late registration on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to learn the rules. Because if you don't know the rules, then you cannot play because you probably won't qualify for the free money. You have to understand the rules. It's easy, but you have to understand it, and you have to understand the qualifications, and it barely changes, so it's an easy thing to do. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. I can pay you by Cash App, Zelle, bank transfer, Bitcoin, or other ways that people have been using to send money to each other on the internet, including one that's been around for about 20 years. So just email me at dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com or even better, message me on the forum. Dan Space Druff is my name on the forum, Dan Space Druff. And that's the way I prefer. You can also text me, which I'll give you the phone number shortly if you win. But I really prefer the PMs. That's easier for me to keep it all in one place. If there's a delay in paying you, then that's the way it goes. It's free money. So when it comes, it comes. I, I do them in batches just to make it easier on myself. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That is the number. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone located on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away by car. And that is in a cabin there. It's an old 70s rotary phone. Forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. If 
you want to text the show, it's the same as the main phone number, 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime, morning, noon, or night. I mean, anytime you want. And I probably will respond to you at some point. So don't be afraid to text me, especially if you're a listener who's never contacted me before. You can just say hello. You don't don't have to feel awkward. You can just say hello. I listen to the show. I enjoy it. I won't rope you into a long conversation, I promise. You can talk as little or as much as you want. I don't sit there bothering people by text all day. The call to listen line is a number that you can use to listen to the show at any time from anywhere. You just need a phone that can dial. It does not need a it doesn't need any kind of internet connection. It doesn't need a smartphone, doesn't need a data plan, doesn't need an internet connection or a computer. No, 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 no. You just need any phone that ever could dial. And you just call up 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate number, 641-741-1095. I memorize these numbers. I'm not even looking at anything as I say this. And those are the call-to-listen lines. You just call up and you listen to the show. It works. It never buffers. It never freezes. Sometimes it goes down. I'll admit that. Sometimes it's just not there. You call up and there's dead air. But when it's working, which is most of the time, you just listen and it's very easy and it never freezes up. And I'm telling you, it's actually a very nice option rather than the streaming because the streaming sometimes freezes if your connection is not good enough, whereas this does not. This just runs right through. And when we're not live on the air, you can call that number and we broadcast reruns. Just picks random reruns and broadcasts them as if they're live, going back as far as eight and a half years. Just picks a random show from our library of about 400 episodes. You can hear what the show used to sound like a long time ago. It's getting pretty long now. It's getting close to a decade. You can also listen to the streaming reruns through any of the Poker Fraud Alert streaming options, such as on the radio tab from PokerFraudAlert.com or the TuneIn app. Those are all ways you can stream the show, whether live or the streaming reruns. Ways you can listen in the archives include iTunes, Stitcher, the aforementioned TuneIn app. We actually have two entries on TuneIn. One is for the live and one is for archives. We have iHeartMedia now. We have Spotify now. These are two more recent options. We have Google Play, of course, for those Android people. We have the Bullhorn app, a little used app, but nevertheless, it is supported. So you can use these apps to download the show. So many different ways to download the show. You can even go to the MP3 file itself. There's an MP3 file of the show posted on the Radio Archives Forum of PokerFraudAlert.com every week. In fact, that's the very first place it appears. If you want to look for it the soonest you can, that's where to look for it. And if you go to the Poker Fraud Alert forums, click on Radio Archives, or just click the MP3 button on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. Just so many options I give you. So many, and yet this show is not for profit. In fact, it doesn't run any ads except for the Benzamokan ad, which uh, isn't even technically a paid ad. I mean, it kind of is because he donates somebody to the free roll, but I don't get anything from it. I just do that because Eric is a the nice guy who contributes so much to the free roll, and I feel he deserves it. Okay, uh, speaking of Eric Benzamokin, it's going to have to do with our first subject because uh, it's not directly about him, but I'll tell you what happens soon. Let me put on a Vintage One before he disappears. Vintage One was enthusiastic about appearing tonight, but you know how it is with Vintage One. You've got to get him before he disappears. He just vanishes. I've never understood it. (laughs) 
I don't think I ever will understand it. I just think, you know, he just goes away. Yo, yo, yo. But he hasn't gone away yet. We found him here. Vintage went hello. What's up, guys? How you doing? I called. I, well, it's not guys yet. I called you before Trader Ruskies. I'm just so paranoid about you disappearing. So <laughs> Trader Ruski is, is is easier to reach. So I haven't heard from him today. So I, though I see That's he's. Good. I think he's in the free roll. So I will. I think I can get him. I think I had a long him. day at the office. So uh, hey, shout out to uh, Bobby Orr. Dude's a solid dude. Yeah, he is. I, I met him. I, in fact, I, I've told people this before. I actually let Bobby Orr come up to my hotel room. And uh, alone with me. So, you know, for all I know, he could have been a psycho who, who could have killed me or, uh, or or pulled a knife on me or something like that. But I trusted him enough. He seemed enough like a solid guy that I brought him up to my hotel room, just me and him. And it was fine. I lived to tell about it. So, uh, I, in fact, <laughs> yeah. I, almost, I almost brought him to – I almost met him in Toronto when I was there with my family. But it just didn't work out. So, anyway. Yeah, he's a good dude. Trader Ruski, Hello. Well, that's not a nice What's thing. happening? Uh-oh, ACR uh, in effect with Trader Ruski. We, we hear from ACR before we hear from him. It's like, <laughs> hello, Trader Ruski. Bring! <laughs> it, it went from oh, the... I, I, I just wanted to bring up again how Bovada screwed me on the ticket, and now I'm bringing it <laughs> ACR. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's right. That's, a, that's rubbing it at Bovada's face. That uh, Instead of the Bovada beep in the background, it's the ACR. Bring! That's right. Okay, well, Trader Risky, you know, you know about the bounty on you, right? It's a $5 bounty on you tonight, the free roll. I had no idea, and for some reason, the volume on my Safari browser isn't working, and I was just sitting out, I think, for the first uh, like 15 minutes. Oh, well, well, thank you for reminding me. There's two other things I forgot to say. First of all, the chat room, I was noticing the last few weeks, like, nobody chats, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like, people just stopped using the chat room. It's like, I'm not getting that type of participation anymore. Then I found out why. The chat room has been malfunctioning. So if you try to go into the chat room and it says invalid username or invalid account or invalid password, or some invalid type message, and you go, what the hell? This never happened before. It's not your fault. It's because the chat room is malfunctioning, which it has before. I've had to go in and uncorrupt it before. It gets corrupted fairly easily. I'm not sure why. Uh, but I'm not even going to go uncorrupt it this time. I'm just going to replace it in the next few weeks since it's Flash and I'm doing away with Flash on the site because I have to and because CalWatch has been pressuring me. So – uh, if you want to get into the chat room, you actually can. You just have to log out and back in. You, of course, have to still have Flash, which means iPhones and iPads can't get in. But uh, you you log out and back in, and you'll stop getting that message. When I say log out, I mean out of the PokerFraudAlert.com forum and then log back in and then press chat, and it should work. So uh, it's only me and Matt the Rat right now for that reason. So I, I don't expect a lot of action there because oh. it's been malfunctioning, but that's uh, that's the way things go here. But I'm going to – Go to work in the next few weeks to replace it, just like I went to work with, and I'm about to make the other announcement that I've already made the last few weeks, but for those of you that missed it, we have a new player on the radio page, new as of a few weeks ago, that does not require Flash anymore and works with mobile devices. So you just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com and you'll see a, a player with a little play button. It does not start by itself. That's uh, I'm going to upgrade that soon, too. That was kind of like my... First crack at this better player, and then I'm going to get an even better one that auto-starts, but this I wanted to get this one up in the meantime since the previous one wasn't working on many devices anymore just because it was obsolete. So I put on a player now that you just press play. It should work on any device, and it'll just play the show. So that, uh, that is there on the radio tab now, and it'll work for the streaming reruns too. In fact, Brandon doubted this, but the streaming reruns, between the various ways people listen to it, whether it's... Uh, through the call to listen line or through the uh, the radio tab or the tune in app 
we're at, we actually have people listening 24 hours a day to old shows, which is kind of uh, surprising to me, but I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see there's enough interest in this show to where it's very rare for me to take a look and see that nobody's listening to the streaming reruns. And sometimes we have as many as like 10 or 11. So that's uh, those don't sound like big numbers, which they're not, but for, for reruns, for stuff that's just already played before and is just randomly playing from the past... I mean, it didn't used to be like this. We have a lot more, which means people like the show so much they'd rather listen to the streaming reruns than than just wait for it to come back on uh, the following week. So we have some real dedicated listeners. I have to assume most people listen to the live show or the archives in full first and then go to the reruns when they have no other content. You'd think eight hours a week or more would be enough enough for people, but apparently it's not. Apparently people want even more than the eight and a half hours I gave them last week somehow, even though we had very few topics. Uh, I, I was... I'd like to thank everybody for the nice comments I got about my Las Vegas segment. I was a little afraid after that segment that I just rambled because I just I just sat there spouting off about different things I remembered about living in Vegas, and I wasn't sure how interesting it was. I didn't tell any like major shocking stories from then. I just basically described the way life was like there. So I I said, well, I don't know. I just, people may have found this segment very long and boring and uninteresting, but I got a lot of compliments. People texting me and posting on the forum saying they particularly enjoyed that segment. Hey, hey, real quick, shout out to Trader Ruski for taking down a nice score on ACR. Oh, we he won't did, get really? into the numbers, but he uh I didn't know that. He I crushed it. Oh, I did know that. You know what? I texted it to both of you. No, no, I, I got it. I got it. I forgot about it. I forgot. Yes, thank, thank you, uh, traders, who reminded me. And yeah, and that was during last week's show. So that's right? right. I think we're about done with the intro stuff, other than the agenda itself. So I'll quickly give you the agenda, and then we will get going. First of all, I'm going to make a clarification about an error I made on the last show during the long stone segment we had. And don't worry, it's not going to be a long stone segment again. I'm just going to quickly go over a correction about something that I had wrong. Kind of a big thing, but also kind of not. You'll understand when I get to it. It, it, it also kind of threw off Eric Benzamokin, who called me, and then I had to break, break it to him that this whole thought process he had to, was incorrect because I gave him incorrect information on the radio. So I'll tell you what happened when I get to that as our opening segment. Our next segment will be about GG Poker. GG Poker is offering to unban previously banned players, but... Is there a catch? Remember, they banned people for what they called bum hunting, which I think was really just an excuse to ban winning players. But is there a catch for these people to come back? The Poker Bros app. Poker Bros, which many people are using to play poker during this pandemic when live poker is either not available or just not very good or they're afraid to play it. Uh, Poker Bros is something I haven't touched. I've been afraid to play on it. It's had a lot of scams. And now it's been thrown off of the Apple App Store. And some people are very concerned about this. So we'll talk about what that means and why it happened. And I even have a message, a text message from somebody who knows a bit more about it that I'm going to read to you guys that will shed some light upon how it actually got taken down from the App Store. Or shall I say why? How is the way is just Apple went and took it down. Remember Brandon and I were making fun of that idiotic $50 World Series of Poker bracelet event on GG Poker? And I said, I'll give you an update on it when it occurs. Well, it has occurred. It just took place. And I will tell you how it ended up doing. I'll give you a little hint. It had a record number of entries, which is not surprising because it was $50. A $50 bracelet. It really is a $50 buy-in bracelet. It's embarrassing. And $52,020. You, you don't even want to know what that would be worth in 
the dollars of when the World Series started in 1971, it, it would it would be less than ten. Let me tell you that. <laughs> it's just obscene that that bracelet exists. A woman was arrested for stealing a lot more than fifty dollars from Poker Pro es- Antonio Esfandiari. She was. What was that? Who did that? That was not me. That was me. Sorry. <laughs> Not me. I what was that? That was like, kind of sounded like hallelujah, but it was like very garbled. Here, try, let's just tell me if you hear this. Yeah, that, I heard that. It's just kind of garbled. Okay, my bad. I mean, it, it's it's audible, but it's just not that clear. Anyway, the amount of money that was stolen from Antonio was one million dollars. It really was a million dollars was stolen from Antonio. Really, not, not electronically stolen, physically stolen by a woman. But there's more to the story. So I'll tell you what was reported in the news. And then I will give you some additional insight of something that I know, not about the theft itself, but about Antonio and his father, who had some involvement in this whole thing as, as a victim, not a perpetrator. But there, there's some things I know that are not being reported, but I know from being involved in the 2000s poker community. So this is why it's good to have someone hosting a show who was part of that whole thing so I can give additional information. So I do have some more to tell you about that one. That was just reported today, by the way, just in time for the show. So thank you to that woman for stealing on the right day so it can be timely for the show. The Isle of Capri Casino in Louisiana. Have you guys ever been there? It's in uh, western Louisiana, kind of in the greater Houston area, but kind of east of there. Have either of you been there? No, I haven't been there. What about you, uh, Vintage One? I've never been to Louisiana. Oh, okay. Vintage One, I think, has been to New Orleans a few times. But this isn't New Orleans. It's way west of New Orleans. Oh, uh, then I'm sure he hasn't been there. Somebody, he's not even answering me. Okay, well, I'll assume that's a no. Anyway. Right, and you know, there wasn't... I didn't hear the million-dollar drop, too. Drops. I didn't no, I know. I, I fixed that. I fixed that. Right. Deal, but, I, I, fixed uh, that okay. I fixed it right after, yeah. I, I, as soon as I played him, like, oh, crap, they didn't hear it. Okay, so... It's good that you uh, figured it out, though. So, and I said it. That's right. You didn't figure anything out. Okay, I, I take away the credit you got there. So, uh, anyway, the Isle of Capri, I've actually been to. And I have not been to many Louisiana casinos. In fact, that's the only one I've been to that's not in New Orleans. But it just ha- so happens I was there. But it is not there anymore. Has it closed? Well, not exactly. It was open, and it actually blew away. I, I don't wow. mean, I, no, it, it did. I, I, I don't mean, I don't, serious. I don't mean the roof blew off. I don't mean the building blew down. I mean, it actually blew away. It blew away into a bridge of I-10. So I'll explain what happened when we get to that. It's a, this story actually should have gotten more press, but somehow it didn't. I mean, I guess they took all the cash out, right? If there's cash all over, uh, not quite. I'll, 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 something floating away. Not quite. I'll explain what happened. It's it's a weird story when we get when I get there. I'll leave you guys in suspense. But I have been there. I actually spent the night there. I didn't just go there. I actually spent the night there, and I spent the night there with a girl, and not with my current girlfriend or previous girlfriend. I'll tell you that too. This is all true. All right, uh, poker fraud alert exclusive. A man has been arrested in Las Vegas. This has been reported absolutely nowhere. You won't find this anywhere on the web. But a man has been arrested in Las Vegas for passing a bad check for $1.3 million at the Cosmopolitan. 
it was told to us by Matt the Rat, who there is a bounty on tonight. So thank you, Matt, for bringing us that story. I'll tell you more about it when we get to that segment. The Borgata claims that Ocean Casino in Atlantic City has been poaching its managers and trade secrets. I'll tell you about this rivalry going on between the two when we get to that segment. I'm going to describe a shocking hand I played at uh, Bovada 3060. It's a Trader Ruski's favorite site. I, I played at 3060 in Bovada. If you want to say that online poker is rigged for action, you can point to this hand. I don't even believe that, but uh, if I did believe that, this hand would be uh, Exhibit A. I've, I don't think I've ever had a hand like this before in my life. I, I compare this one to the flush over flush over flush that I had live in uh, Harris Rincon. Against Gavin Smith. And, and Shane Schlager, I thought yes. that was at, uh, was that at, I thought it was at LA, LA uh, No, the, no, it was at Harris, no? no, it was at Rincon at a $5,000 tournament. But uh, the, it's like that, but this did not involve flushes. But it's a hand online Bovada that I played uh, this past week that was just absolutely insane. There, I, I think it was about a week and a half ago, but whatever. It, it was sometime fairly recently, and... You won't believe it when you hear the way this hand went down. Four people in the hand, and I mean, four people at the table. Forget the hand. Four people in in the table, at the table, in the hand, and you won't believe what happened. It's just insane. Of the millions of hands of poker I played, this is one of the most memorable. Coronavirus news: A Reno area man is the first person in the U.S. to have been verified to have caught the coronavirus twice. That is according to the CDC. And when I say verified, they have done lab tests on him and have seen two different coronaviruses in there. So that uh, both COVID-19, but two different forms of it that are distinct enough to where it really looks like he actually caught it twice, which is different than many other people who don't quite get over their symptoms where their symptoms kind of go into remission and then come back and they think they caught it twice. This guy really caught it twice. So this is concerning some people. We will talk about that and whether that could mean that the coronavirus will never be gone. But we'll talk about whether that's what it really means. I'm going to go through a list of activities that people do, just kind of basic activities and a few activities which you may not have done but you've read about other people doing. And I'm going to rank them from very safe to very unsafe from a COVID standpoint. Some of them might surprise you. Some of them might not. But there's a lot of misinformation about what is dangerous. In fact, uh, I went – I didn't go on a hike today, but I went to a hiking area to do something. And when I was there, everybody had masks on, and I did not. And I didn't feel the slightest bit guilty about it. And I'll tell you why when I get there, because there's certain things where certain places where people wear masks just to feel good and just to almost like make a statement. Oh, look at me. I'm being responsible, but it's really doing just about no good. Uh, And then there's other places where the opposite happens, where people don't wear masks to make a statement like, oh, I don't need this. Oh, it's stupid, where they definitely should, because it's very dangerous uh, for others not to. So uh, so that's. I, I think it goes both ways. Now, if you want to wear the mask all the time, that's up to you. It's, but I'm just saying there's some places where it's very necessary and you should be wearing a mask. And there's other places where if you don't want to, then it isn't a big deal. Hint, these are places that's outdoors and very well spaced out. So I'm going to go through a list of, from – this is my opinion, of course, but of how I feel of very dangerous all the way down to very safe as far as different things you can do. 
Finally, maybe some good news, not about the virus going away, but about testing. Testing right now is a pain in the ass for the coronavirus. And it's also going to be painful and kind of a weird thing. They stick this swab like way up your nose. And some people have told me it's nothing. Some people have told me it really sucks. I've gotten like. They drop on tested three times a week. Wow, that's right. You're, I, I meant to ask you about that. In fact, we're, before we begin, we're going to ask uh, Vintage one some questions about his job and uh, just what, the way things are since uh, since he is back to work in, in Hollywood. And I, I was curious about all that since L.A. is still experiencing some pretty bad coronavirus numbers. Vintage one, quickly, though, how do you like the test? Like, is it terrible? Is it nothing? How does it feel? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the off-lot test was the tough one, the real deep up the nose eyes watering test but now they've implemented uh a much less evasive uh swab in your nose it's a dna test so they swab it for about 10 seconds to get a good reading but it's just in the tip of your nose so it's nothing it's a piece of cake and does this one have it, the does this have an instant result or do they have to send it out it, they they send it out but it's it's like a two-hour turnaround okay because this one there, there's something else that's coming out and that's why i'm mentioning this there's new antigen tests that are coming out that soon are going to be widely available. They aren't yet, but they're soon going to be widely available. And these are at-home coronavirus tests that you can get the results within 15 minutes. You don't need to put anything way up your nose. It's a very easy and quick thing to do, and it'll be like five bucks each, so it'll be cheap too. So, well, those are out. Netflix uses those, right? They're out, but they're not widely available. So right. soon, like that's the Netflix uh, thing. They test their people in the parking lot before they allow them on the lot, and they they have a little waiting area that's like the quarantine area. And once you're clear, you're on the lot. You can't leave. You can't do anything until you're done, and then you're out, and you have to wait to do another test before. So, yeah, so it's stuff like this. We'll talk about it when we get to the segment. I don't know if you'll still be up by then, but uh, um, when when I get to that segment, I'll give you guys the details on these antigen tests, how they work, how correct they are how they compare to these uh, unpleasant ones that go way, way up your nose. and uh, But the, obviously the good part is it's very quick and very easy and very cheap, and it doesn't require leaving your home. So these are this, it's definitely a good thing that these are coming out, and it may change somewhat how the coronavirus is able to spread because some people who spread it do so simply because they don't have a way to know that they have it. And they don't want to run out to a test every time they feel a little bit under the weather. For example, like last week before the show, you guys remember I said I almost didn't do the show because I felt crappy. I didn't feel like coronavirus symptoms, but I I was feeling kind of sick and kind of nauseous. I'm going, what is this? And then right before the show, it started to get better. So I started the show not feeling great, but not terrible. And within like half an hour, I was all better. And obviously a week later now, nothing has developed from that. And I'm fine. So – I'll say, like, like think of how nice it would be to have a coronavirus test just you could have at home that when you think, okay, could this possibly be it, but I don't feel like going out to getting tested and then going through that crappy test or waiting for a long time or whatever. Like, it's so much easier just to do one at home for five bucks. So that's that's possibly – that's going to be coming out. Not possibly coming out. It's definitely coming out uh, fairly soon and as far as being widely available, and it does already exist. It just isn't widely distributed or, or produced yet, but will be soon. So that's our agenda tonight. And before we get to – the topics I mentioned, uh, I'd like to hear from Vintage One. What is it like you know, since you've returned to work? He, he works on uh, major Hollywood productions that you see on network TV. 
can you tell us, uh, first of all, you were starting to tell us about the testing. So you have to do it three times a week. And what, and you have to do Now, this tough one where they go way up your nose, do they do that once a week and the other two are the easier tests? No, the, the first one is required by the lot to get on the lot. They, they need you to have a clean reading before they'll let, allow you on the lot. And then it's the subsequent tests are directly related to the individual shows. So our show protocol is three times a week. And, um, yeah, you know, I haven't had – it was a, not a fun experience. It wasn't that bad, the first one, but the the day-to-day tests are a piece of cake. No problem. And, and we've shot two episodes to this point with probably 120 crew, and we've had zero positives. Well, that's, for, that's great. So, and now about the lot, I'm still confused about this. But or don't you get on the lot every day? So why don't you need one every day? Like you don't live on the lot. Well, well, because they know the the testing regimen that we're under with the production. So it, it's when you're a newbie coming on, they need to know that you're safe to to enter the lot. I see. So it's, 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 so it's like an initial test. Once you've passed that, exactly. then provided the production that you're working on is testing regularly, then they just let that stand and don't make you do that bad one again. Right. But the lot also, to get on the lot every day, they send out a questionnaire you have to fill out and answer questions and get a, a uh, stamp seal that you show the guard at the gate with your badge to show that you've answered the questions and you have no signs of anything to clear you in. And then they have one of those um, uh, automatic uh, temperature gauges where you just look at it and I guess it hones in on your forehead and takes your temperature from your car. Oh, really? So you mean you roll down your window and they just point at exactly. you? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they have one at the doctor's office like that. Like when I would go to the doctor for a checkup, they, they would actually just point it at my head. and they, Oh, they no, it's not me. even that. This is just a machine like at the hospitals now. When you walk into a hospital, you don't even see it really. You just walk in, it says to look this way, and it like just – like hones in on your forehead, I guess. Okay. It's I'd, not like someone holding a thing. I'd love to know how accurate those are. They couldn't be as accurate yeah. as the ones that, that like a thermometer you put in your mouth. I would think that one's a lot more accurate. I don't right. know. I'm just guessing. That I it would question just... it as well because, I mean, I'm literally 20 feet away from the machine poking my head out of my car. Yeah. It's <laughs> just... like, you're good. Come on. Because we're not dealing with a large range in absolute temperature. Like if, if you like, think of objectively, forget what your body feels like or how dangerous it is. How different, as far as uh, just being able to see the temperature of something for a machine, how different would be someone who's 106 degrees versus 98.6? Like, you were talking about, like, it's like 7.4 degrees here. So that's not very much from 98.6 to, to 106. I that's, would think that would be difficult to detect. Now, I could much e- more easily see detecting something being 98.6 versus 150 degrees. But since the human body, right. it's, it's a range of the... Uh, of seven eight degrees of going from healthy to about to die that uh, you know like like there's not a really wide range you can be there so yeah i i, you I wonder i hope the guy that's inventing this machine has some wherewithal with the the fine tuning of six degrees yeah it, it seems weird to me maybe it can do it maybe there's uh, maybe if the see i don't know about heat detection technology of course i know it exists and has existed for a while but I, I don't – to have it at that type of accuracy I would think would be tough. But anyway, it's good that they're exercising this level of caution. 
Uh, why do they choose to start up now when I think we're a li- I think it's slightly improving in the LA area, but it's still kind of near the peak. Uh, so, so why why would they pick now as opposed to uh, a few months ago when actually it wasn't as bad in LA as it is right now? Well, because this particular show, this was the start date after last season. So they just they stuck to what they had planned all along. So this particular show, when we ended the season last year, was slated to start September 20th or whatever. And they they got all the clearance and passed all the guidelines and the the CDC codes and all the other bullshit that was implemented to get back to work and so they did it, and, right. and it's the the first show out there, the first comedy out. Well, I'm glad. I am glad that you, you are. You mean you mean August twentieth, right? Vincent, August, sorry, September. Yeah, August. You mean August, oh, though, right? Oh, okay, that's all right. I thought that's what I was. Curious. The production office was started, you know, three weeks prior to actually filming. So, well, okay, that's that's good to hear. You're back to work. I really wasn't expecting that. I was just thinking, well, we're going to have vintage one for a long time. I can't picture that they're going <laughs> to restart this with with L.A. having the problem it's having right now, but. I guess they decided to go forward and just be cautious, and it's, it's good well, that so far it's worked out. Druff, the nice thing is that there's no audience, so <laughs> excuse me. Um, we would be shooting in front of a live audience right now normally. Now, do you prefer there's no audience? Well, I mean, I like like the buildup of the whole all, – all the, the energy that comes with the audience and doing a live play in front of them. But the hours are way better without the audience because we just shoot all day. Yeah, I guess I guess it's also better because uh, the audience. Like, I, I assume you have retakes if the audience makes some noise they don't like. That, that when I've seen shows, I've seen two shows that was in the eighties, but they actually had to do some retakes because the audience messed up in some way. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Someone drops a bottle or is coughing like I'm having a cough attack right now, but. Um, yeah, I mean, th- there's elements, but you know, it is fun where you rehearse all week and you prepare for the audience coming in and you get a lot of energy and everyone's cheering and the stand up guy is telling jokes and, you know, people are drinking and the craft service has these giant spreads of, of sushi and ribs and it, it's like a massive party going on while you're working. And it's fun, but, and, you know, it takes a lot of time and there's a lot of pressure on everyone working because you're basically live and you're, yeah. you're shooting live. And if something happens, you know, I mean, every minute equates to like $30,000 in crew fees, you know, so every, you, you screw up, it, you're costing production a lot of money, so. It's intense. So, you know, I mean, I like it both ways. Right now, I like being able to come and be on the show on a Friday night, whereas I'd be shooting till probably about now. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, I didn't even think of that. In fact, well, I, I kind of thought of it because I'm like, wow, he's working, and yet he can still make the show. I was actually surprised by that, but uh, I, I kind of thought you were mostly done with that because uh, with, with being able to do the show because of the being back to work and the long hours you have there. But I'm, I'm glad that they're finishing early and you can be here with us. And I was able to catch you before the the famous uh, vintage one disappearances. So, uh, <laughs> so okay. Hey, 
Yes. Big hours all week, though, still. Yeah, no, I know you still have big hours. I'm not minimizing it, but I'm just glad it's no, l- no. a little less so you can squeeze into here. Okay. That's right. Since I, I don't want to waste too much time before you fall asleep and before Trader Risky falls asleep, <laughs> so let's – I, I want to jump into the first topic here, and that is a correction about a mistake I made regarding a video I played with the whole Stones and Veronica thing. So this is what happened. I did this whole segment about how, you know, that settlement that Stones is offering various people, and I was told last week, and I should have verified it, but I didn't. I was told on Twitter, hey, go check this out. Veronica is talking about the settlement on this The Rake Show with Marley Cordero and Jamie Kerstetter. So I went to go listen, and sure enough, they did have Veronica on who was talking about it, who said that she wasn't offered the settlement and she gave some other various commentary on the whole thing. And I said, wow. So now Veronica's coming out with even more details. Okay, good. I feel better now about exposing some details about the settlement that were not public. Now, she didn't expose them either, but she exposed some other things about the whole thing. So I thought this was her coming on to talk about that after the news story that was out about the settlement. I didn't bother to check the date of the Rake episode. So I assumed it had to be current until I had somebody asking me, where can I find this, the Rake episode? I went to go look. It's not there. I go, that's weird. I, I don't think they would have deleted it. And I go, no, no, it's here. And I sent them a, I sent them a link to it. And they said, um, I, I hate to tell you, but this episode of the Rake that you played that you said was just recorded this week, uh, that was actually two months old. <laughs> Oops. So I played you two-month-old commentary from Veronica, and I was told that since then, things have changed, and she actually was offered this settlement. I don't know if she accepted it, but that she was not shut out of the settlement, which was a a pretty big story last week. And then it turned out that was an incorrect story, because I heard she was actually offered the settlement, that I was playing something that was from back in June, which is embarrassing. So I should have checked the date. I'm going to do that in the future. I'm not going to just play videos and assume that they're recent, which I was told it was recent and the person must have made a mistake and then I didn't check and then I made the mistake and I did a whole segment based upon something two months ago. Now, I do stand by most of what I said there because the general commentary about the situation that Veronica made, that is kind of timeless. That doesn't matter if it's two months ago or currently and it actually was more interesting to talk about in light of the other information that came out about the settlement or the settlement offer that it was more interesting to talk about that now than it was two months ago when nothing else was really happening. So in a way, it's good I played it, but I should have played it knowing it was two months ago, and then I could have approached it differently, and then the segment probably would have been shorter too, and I probably would have theorized on some things less than I did. Eric Benzamokin didn't know this because I hadn't put the correction up yet. (laughs) and He called me up, and he said, oh, I just had some thoughts about this and started talking about what Veronica revealed and... uh, and what this means, that, the, that she's not part of the offer. And then I said, Eric, Eric, hang on, hang on. Whatever you're thinking, don't bother, because this was actually two months ago. <laughs> so i like, I got to put this out here and make everyone understand that I played you something that was two months old. Again, I stand by most of my comments, but it was two months old, and I apologize for that, and I won't let it happen again. And uh, if you have not heard last week's episode and don't want to – listen to that segment now that you know it was me talking about a two-month-old video, then I don't blame you. Though there's some other things I talked about that were more recent in that segment towards the end of it. There were, like, recent tweets Veronica made. Those definitely were not two months old. 
So still worth listening to in some ways, but yeah, I, I made a little bit of a mistake. I just wanted to make that clarification. I don't have much else to say about that other than I'm sorry and I will check more carefully in the future. Okay, let's move on to GG Poker. See, our lead subject was four minutes. Moving very fast now. It's almost like a, a one-hour show. That's kind. Of, that's got to be a record. <laughs> that's got to be a record, a four-minute topic. A four-minute lead topic, especially. All right, so I want to talk about GG Poker, and this will not be a four-minute segment. I promise you that, but it's interesting. It's a, You may say, oh, GG Poker, who cares? You can't even play from the U.S. This is actually interesting. Listen to this. This is almost getting to the point of parody. If I had not seen it was from their actual account, I was going to guess that this is someone trolling them. I even thought for a second, hey, maybe this isn't real. Maybe someone hacked their account. That's how absurd this whole thing is. So remember, there was all this controversy that GG Poker was banning pros on their site, winning pros. And they were claiming that they were doing this because these pros were, quote, bum hunting. And I said, I've got a real problem with that. I don't mind if you ban people who are using those HUDs or people who are using seat scripts. Anyone who's using external programs to give them an edge when it's against GG Poker rules. Well, that's not fair. And if people continue to do it, even though they're told not to, and they give themselves an edge that those who are following the rules do not have, then, yeah, kick them off. I still don't think you should take their money. But I I do think that you should ban them for life if you see that they're doing this. So anyone who gets kicked off for that reason, or even anyone who gets warned not to use them and acknowledges the warning and then continues to, if they get kicked off and their money gets taken, even that I don't have a problem with. Because while I don't consider that cheating, it is unethical and it is unfair to everybody else because it's not just a matter of you using those tools and others aren't. Others aren't because they're told they can't. So then if you do anyway... You're being a jerk, and you're giving yourself an edge that you shouldn't have, and you shouldn't be on the site anymore. So if they were to just stick to doing that, I would give them a big, big thumbs up. But that's not what they are doing. They're doing that too, but something else they're doing is banning winning pros who are not using these things, who they say are bum hunting, meaning they're just game selecting. They're playing games only when the fish is present. Fine. I mean, that's that's what... The advice has been for many years. It said it said you're responsible if you do that. It said that you are a pro who can probably sustain himself long term if you do that. The pros who are making a mistake tend to be the ones who will play any game at any time against any competition. They're the ones who go broke because they eventually run into lineups who are better than them or variance gets them and they don't have fish in the game to kind of soften the effects of the variance. Because the tougher the table is, the more important luck becomes to win. If you play someone equal to you, heads up, for example, then it's really pure luck at that point. You have no skill edge. If you play someone better than you, then you actually need good luck to win. You, you don't just need average luck to, break, to even break even. You need good luck against someone better than you. Against someone substantially worse than you, you just need... Uh, not terrible luck. Like, you can still beat them with below average luck. I've beaten Big Fish, heads up, with fairly bad luck. When I have terrible luck, they beat me, but if someone's a very bad player, I need actually terrible luck to lose to them, whereas against a good player, I need good luck to beat them. So it really matters about your competition of how important luck becomes in cash poker. So on GG Poker, At their cash games, if you only play against fish, if you only sit and see a fish sitting, if you only play in good games, they throw you off. And if you have been kicked off a previous skin on their network, even years ago, you are expected to know that it was their network, 
And if you come back without any proof that you knew it was the same network, they will not only kick you off, but they'll take your money, which is pretty obnoxious. So we already talked about that on a previous episode. I'm not going to be talking about that still. But listen to this. This is just crazy. They posted this on August 22nd on their Twitter. For a limited time only, we will be extending an olive branch to previously banned players on GG Network. If you have been banned and wish to return, we will be taking applications for the next two weeks till about September 5th. Please read our stance on pros here. So they're saying that they're going to bring back banned players if the banned players want to come back. But what does that mean? Does that mean that they're getting back their money that was confiscated? They don't say, but obviously the answer is no. Then they go on to say, Once your application has been received and approved, your account will be reinstated as a real name account, meaning you can't play under a screen name. Like I could, if I was able to play there, I couldn't go there as Dan Druff. I'd have to go there as Todd Wittellis if I've been previously banned. Applications should be emailed to security at ggnetwork.com and titled Application for Return to GG Network and include the following information. Previous nickname, rough date of ban, your name on your passport, and a copy of your government ID and recent proof of address. Please send the email from the previous email which you were banned. Do not use Twitter for application. What if you don't have access to that email? Well, they, they don't say. But anyway, that's what they tweeted out at first. And people had a lot of questions. Like, what does this mean? Obviously, you don't get your money back if you've had your money confiscated. But why would they let people back on? They say an olive branch. Wait a minute. If if you're letting someone back on the site who has done something bad enough to get a ban, especially a ban with money taken, uh, that would prove that the ban wasn't a good ban in the first place. Because when you ban someone, you're saying that you're harmful to have on the site and therefore, we are getting rid of you. So now, what are they saying? You actually weren't you? You weren't harmful. We're actually bringing you back. Now you can say, well, maybe these people made a mistake. They're giving you one more chance. This to me is crazy, and I think anyone who would want to return is crazy after what happened to them the first time. If lightning struck once with GG Poker, and if they have not changed their policy, which they haven't, why would you ever go back just to have them hit you again? And even if they didn't confiscate your money last time, the big question is, and they didn't answer this to my knowledge. The big question is, let's say they banned you but did not take your money. Let's say they said, okay, you're a bum hunter, but because we have not warned you before, we're banning you, but cash out. You can have your money. Now, that's not as bad because at least you're taking your money and at least uh, they're just basically exercising their right to refuse service to anyone. I still think it's bullshit. They shouldn't do it, but at least it's not unethical. At least it's uh, – it it is ultimately up to them who they want on their site even though it's bullshit to – exclude winning pros and find excuses to do so it's where taking people's money is where it's really really offensive but anyway let's say they kicked you off but gave you your money and you were kicked off for quote bum hunting which is very subjective that's the problem with it like the other things are are ones you either do or you don't like they say don't use huds well either you're using huds and you're blatantly breaking the rule or you're not using huds and you're following the rule or don't use seat scripts same thing so these things are very clear either you're doing them or you're not doing them. Bum hunting, it's very subjective what is bum hunting. There's there's so many ways to call something bum hunting, and other uh, you can also s- call other things not bum hunting. For example, I kind of do a hybrid. I'll admit on Bovada, 
I do a hybrid of bum hunting and not bum hunting. Sometimes I will knowingly play in tough games. I'll even knowingly play very tough opponents heads up sometimes if I'm in the mood. Then there's other times where if the fish busts, I just quit. It kind of depends what mood I'm in. But, uh, and it'll go on stretches sometimes. Sometimes if I'm not running very well, I go, you know what? I better stay in better games for now. I'm not running very well. I don't have very much confidence. I'm going to stick to the, only when I see Fisher in the game, which I can only see after playing a little bit because, uh, yeah, there's anonymous tables, but, but that's when I'll be more game selective than when, when I'm running better and feeling more confident. Sometimes I'll play in tougher games. So I, I kind of do both over there. Am I bum hunting? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. In fact, I have people say, "Oh, you're a bum hunter." I go, "No, no, no." You know, I, and I tell them they can't. I can't prove it, but I tell them I play some very tough players heads up. I play some very tough three-handed games. So that's you know, with no fish there. So you can't say I'm a bum hunter if I do that. But there are other times where my behavior would look like a bum hunter. So what? So what about someone like that on GG Poker? What about someone like me on GG Poker? Would I be accused of bum hunting? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. It's hard to tell. It's very subjective. It's just. If they call it bum hunting, it is. It's it's kind of like uh, being called a racist. I don't want to get into that whole discussion, but th- there's no direct definition of what is racism. Uh, some people think just it has to be something super overt, where you you use ethnic slurs and and actively discriminate against people uh, of other races, and others think it's uh, if you take certain attitudes or or support certain politics that that automatically makes you racist. It's a wide, a very subjective term just like bum hunting it's very subjective there's no clear definition of what it is and isn't and everybody sees it differently so that's what's disturbing about this is if you come back and let's say they say you're bum hunting even if you don't agree can they take your money this time and say you were warned before so are they inviting you back just to take your money if they decide that you're bum hunting and that's that's the biggest problem with this but that's not the most ridiculous part here comes the most ridiculous part and i, I have a feeling this is written by Negrani, what I'm about to read you. Because remember, he's the face of the site, and he feels very strongly about this too on their side. Not just because he's sponsored by them. He kind of started taking this attitude around the time he was a, a Poker Stars pro. So they released an essay called Good Pro, Regular Pro, and Bad Pro. I kid you not, that's actually the name. Good Pro, Regular Pro, Bad Pro. <laughs> Now, when I saw this, before I even read a word of it, other than the title, I read the title and I say, I said, this is going to be ridiculous. I can already see. Just with such a ridiculous title, I already knew it was going to be one of the dumbest things I've ever read. Like, could you imagine something called Good Pro, Regular Pro, and Bad Pro put out by GG Poker being anything but ridiculous? That's really an outrageous <laughs> essay, even just by the title. It was clearly written by someone who speaks good English, which also points to Negron. It wasn't written by a European whose English is a second language. This really looks like it was written by an American or at least uh, someone in the UK, someone who is a native English speaker. And it's uh, someone who definitely has feelings about different types of prose, which we've seen Negranu talk about in the past, even before he was a GG rep. So here is what the essay says. I'm going to read it to you. Poker is a zero-sum game. There will always be winners and losers. Okay, that's, that's true. Good so far. A majority of consistent winners will eventually turn into poker pros. This natural emergence of professional poker players has been going on ever since poker existed. Okay, maybe it's not so bad. I agree so far. GG Poker doesn't want to change this. Okay, good. 
What we do want to change is how the pros affect the overall poker ecosystem. Uh-oh. Whenever we hear about the poker ecosystem, that's usually an excuse for sites to kick off winners and do unethical things. It's like a it's like a nice-sounding term for sites to do bad things that are selfish because what they're really trying to do is keep the winners off so they can just make everybody rake and tra- trade money back and forth and rake everybody to death. That's the point. They, they're trying to prevent cash outs. That's, they're not trying to pre- preserve any ecosystem, trust me. We need to ensure that a healthy ecosystem is maintained. It's a simple business. If we don't, there will be no games for everyone, anyone to play. Yes, there will. They're, they're, this was not done before. How, how did poker stars make all this money in the 2000s and 2010s? How did they manage that? They didn't do this. So how did poker stars do so well if you have to do this to maintain games? Now, you'll rake more if you do this. I agree with that. If you If you want to be greedy as a poker site operator and kick off the winners, yes, you will make more rake and the fish will last longer. It's also not an ethical way to run a poker room. You can do it. It's your right as long as you don't confiscate anyone's money, but that's not the ethical way to run a poker room. Going on. Winners will keep on playing, but losing players will eventually quit. Games slowly die and you lose the balance of your ecosystem. As a poker operator, we deal with pros daily. Not all pros have an equal effect on the poker ecology. Here's how we view the pro ecology. So this is where we get into the good, the regular, and the bad. You've heard the bad, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly? This is the good, the bad, and the regular. And, and by the way, here's the big flaw in this thinking. I'm sure you already know where this is going, but here's the big flaw in this thinking. Is if, what determines how well someone does at a poker game is not the presence of fish. It's the absence of, of good players. And the reason this applies here is that when you kick a pro off, all this does is it helps the second best person at the table, who's now the best. Now he wins all the money. So when you do this, when you kick off winning pros, all you do is shift who's going to win. You're never going to have it where everybody's equal. So yeah, maybe the fish will lose a little bit slower, but they're still going to lose. They're still going to go bust, and they're still going to go bust fairly quickly. Unless you have all big fish, then there's going to be someone killing the games. So I, I have news for you. If you kick off the best pros, and there's still some decent players who aren't great and aren't what you call predatory, but basically know what they're doing, solid players, they're going to destroy the fish anyway. You, you don't need the very best players at the table to destroy the fish. It, it Poker really is a game where the best cr- person currently sitting at the table has a pretty big edge. If you are the best one at the table, you have a pretty big edge. And there will always be a best one at the table. And that's the point. So they're missing this. They're missing this point that even if you get rid of everybody you consider winners, that even break-even players will now rise up to become the new winners. They just won't be losing their money to those above them. Now they'll be taking the fish money. Even if you have all fish, if you have some fish better than others, you're going to have them. Uh, you're going to have those people winning. So it's, it's ridiculous. This is a a fool's task, and what they're really looking to do is just uh, rake more and discourage cash outs. And it's not going to be as effective as they think, for the reasons I just stated. I'm not saying it won't help at all, but it won't be as effective as they think. What I think they want is they want the fish to – they want kind of like the semi-fish to then move up to maybe be kind of the middle in the game 
and not lose as quickly. But that doesn't even work the way they think it does. I'll give you an example. If, if I go to Bellagio and I sit down in the 40-80 limit hold'em game that's uh, nine-handed and there's five good pros in the game and me and three people who aren't very good, what's going to happen in the average session is the three people who aren't very good, their money is going to be split among me and the other five pros. If those five pros get up and leave and just leave me with the three fish, then a lot of the time I'm going to get all or most of the money of those three fish if, it, if the game runs for long enough and the fish don't leave. So for me, it's great if that happens. For me, I, I'm thrilled to see that happen. But for the fish, the result pretty much ends up the same. It's just the fewer pros get have to split up that money. So that's basically what they're doing. So the answer to the question of who benefits the most when the best player in the game leaves, the answer is the second best player, not the worst player. And they're kind of doing this along the lines that the worst player uh, benefits from this, and he really doesn't very much. A little bit, but not that much. So I'm going to read to you what the good pro, the regular pro, and the bad pro are. The good pro. GG Poker views a good pro as someone who contributes to the poker market's growth. Successful poker players will naturally get the spotlight of the media and attain wealth. See, this sounds just like Negranu. Negranu always likes to think of himself as the good pro. Yeah, he wins. Yeah, he takes money out of the poker economy, but he allows it to grow because he gets the spotlight on himself and uh, he makes the game fun, and he's a jovial guy, and he's good with the fans. Of course, this is until recently when he's been, been uh, raging on, on uh, Twitch, but let's, let's take past Negranu. Uh, he, he would look at himself and all the praise he rightfully got for being good with the fans and being good for the game as far as a visible pro, which he was. But the problem is he thinks everybody has to be that way. He thinks if you go to the table and you just sit there with your hoodie on and headphones and don't talk to anyone, then you're terrible and he hates you. Which is stupid. Not everybody's like him. Not everybody's outgoing like him. Not everybody already has the spotlight on them like he does. These uh, Sometimes these guys just are, are quieter guys who just like to go and sit there and play and not cause any trouble. They just want to go sit down, win, and listen to their music or whatever and not really interact. And while I admit it doesn't make the table fun... Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You have a right to do that, and you're not a bad person or bad for the game if you choose to do that. But Negreanu wrote an essay at one point stating that he felt these people were bad for the game and that they were basically bad pros. He didn't use that term, but he said something very similar. So it really sounds like he wrote this essay. I, I think there's a high chance he did. Anyway, going on. We hope these players eventually work towards getting more people into the market just like Michael Jordan did for basketball. Come on. I mean, the, the, the average grinder online is not going to get more people into the market, nor is their responsibility to get people in the market. But how would they even do it? These are online players. Like, how, how is the, the days of people being fanboys of online poker pros? Are, it's pretty much past. It's pretty much past. It's, it's not like the old days. Like, even I had fans in the old days. People would see Dan Druff winning. Oh, Dan Druff, cool. Like, I... I, I still have people coming up to me telling me that like 15 years ago they watched me on Poker Stars and they wanted to be like me. And yeah, it's nice to hear, but uh, it's not going to happen anymore. That's just not where poker is now. So this is dumb. He Again, this is I, probably Negreanu writing it, thinking of himself, not realizing that this isn't attainable, even for excellent online pros who win a lot of money. Let's get going on. 
A good pro could be a streamer, vlogger, caster, or even a Twitter account with numerous followers. Yeah, yeah, but why do you have to be? Like, why? Like, that's stupid. Why is there an expectation that this is what makes you good for the game? A lot of people don't do this. Or don't yeah, have not role models. Yeah, the, you're not exactly. This is not shouldn't be expected of you in any way. And a lot of people don't even have the personality to do this. Some people don't have the outgoing or entertaining personality. All they all they want to do is play poker, and they're kind of quiet, and they're kind of uh, their personality is kind of boring. Doesn't mean they're bad people. These can be very good people who just aren't that interesting for people to watch, and that's totally fine. So I, the fact that this is even in the essay is so dumb. Like like this is something you should strive to be. They could also be someone opening up a poker academy for newcomers to learn, learn poker. People are doing that for profit. They're not They're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. If you open up a poker academy and give your info for free, then you're a great guy, as long as the info you're giving is correct. But if you're charging for it, you know, no, no problem with that. I think that's a good idea for people to do if you can make money from it. But that's not. this is not someone who's doing it to be a good pro. They're doing it to make money. And again, he's describing himself. Remember, he had uh, his poker academy. He, well, he has his master class right now. I mean, this, is, this sounds like he's describing himself. The important thing is that, a, that good pros utilize whatever strength they have to help grow the poker market that brought them to their fame and wealth. GG Poker will collaborate with good pros as much as possible to grow the poker market together. We will support them financially, help them get more famous, offer stability, and eventually might make them a great ambassador of the game. So what they're really saying here is that they find someone with popularity and a following that they might make them a site pro. Again, this is not them working with them because they're a good pro. They're working with them to attract more people to their site and make more money, which is fine. That's a business decision on both ends. I don't begrudge anyone for that, but don't act like you're doing a favor to the poker community. I hate that. I hate when people do things for themselves to make money or for their business to make money, and they act like they're doing this for the world or for the community. No, you're doing it for your business. You're doing it to make money, and that's totally fine, but don't pretend it's for a different reason. Don't pretend you're doing it because you care. Okay, then he goes on to describe the regular pro. The regular pro mainly focuses on their gameplay and win rate. They continuously study with their own game, improve, and crush the field. From our standpoint, there's nothing wrong with this as long as they follow our terms and conditions. Ah, aha, the big if, the big asterisk. Sounded good. They do these things. They don't really interact. They just crush the games. We have no problem with this. Good, 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 good. Oh, and uh, yeah, they, they kind of have to follow our terms and conditions, which are kind of very restrictive. <laughs> that changes everything. We are happy to see poker players grow and refine their game as long as they don't win. I, I, I mean, and, and, and know that uh, as long as there are losers in poker, there will be winners. Yeah, but the, remember, the winners have to rake a certain amount and play in a certain number of very tough games where they're the underdog in order to satisfy GG Poker. Otherwise, you're a bad pro. Bad. Bad. Here's the bad pro. The bad pro. The bad pro focuses on manufacturing unfair advantages over their opponents and exploiting other perceived weaknesses. During gameplay, they might use real-time solvers, use advanced charts, data mine, bum hunt, collude, go, ghost, and so on. You notice anything there? Real-time solvers, bad, I agree. Advanced charts, bad, I agree. Data mining, bad, I agree. Colluding, definitely bad, I agree. Ghosting, that's where somebody else plays on your account, bad, I agree. 
or ghosting can also be someone helping you like over the phone or watching you, whatever, like someone helping you play. Okay, catch people doing these, you kick them off. I agree. They're bad pros. Get rid of them. But notice the one buried in the middle, bum hunt. Bum hunt, there it is again. That's the main reason people are getting kicked, by the way, not this other stuff. They go on to say, bad pros bully and harass opponents. How? What, what, where does that come from? So if you do, if you bum hunt, you're bullying, harassing people. How? The only way you bully and harass someone online is if you get in the chat box and, and talk all kinds of trash. Now, that can be separate. You can say this is also behavior we don't like, but it, it's kind of like they're all lumped together. If you do these things, like, like bum hunt, then you're also a bad guy who bullies and harasses people. In fact, maybe you're bullying and harassing just by, just by playing with fish. That makes you a bully. I mean, I, I hate when the term bully is misused like this. I've seen it in so many different contexts where they say someone's being bullied. I, I once had it where I called out a fake account online, and I was told I am bullying the girl. And I go, well, it's not a girl. It's clearly a dude. Like I, I mentioned like a hundred reasons this person's a dude and not really the girl they claim to be. Oh, you're bullying her. I go, no, I'm not. I, if it was a her, I wouldn't be saying this stuff. I'm, I am bullying a non-existent person. I am calling out someone for not telling us the truth. That's not bullying. That's, uh, that's stating something that I have noticed that I feel is helpful for everybody to know. No, you're being a bully. Like I, I hate when people say things like that. So I don't even know where the bullying and harassment came from. It's not like they're, they're listing like among things we also don't like is bad behavior and chat. Okay, I understand that, but that's not what they're saying. Just bad pros bully and harass opponents. Eventually driving away honest opponents and see the games dry up. Isn't, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that good that GG Poker is fighting the good fight and stopping this from occurring? I mean, real stand-up bunch. Oh, it's it's very selfless. If anyone's curious, if Negranu's behind this, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. Yes. So they're trying to get rid of the bad pros on GG Poker. They're making sure that they don't make the games. Dry up like the Sahara Desert. Hey, I was born when the saw gathered round. They gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. So they are making sure that they don't have colluders, they don't have ghosters, they don't have chart users or solvers or data miners or bum hunters. Bad pros. Bad. Bad. Bad, pro- bad pros. They went on to go and tell you their vision. Our vision is focused on making poker fun and accessible for as many players as possible. We're driven to make playing on our software a great experience, which is why we roll out features like SnapCam. Express yourself and have a good time at the tables, win or lose. You know, we've seen what happens when Negreanu expresses himself on cam. This will keep players coming back for another game in the future. We understand the activities of bad pros are not illegal by law. However, as a poker operator, we're entitled to protect the game and ecology and our profits. We define these activities as cheating. Oh, come on. Cheating? Cheating? Come on. I mean, like, bum hunting's not cheating. That's, that's not even close to cheating. Some of the other stuff is, but the, sitting in good games is not cheating. If so, that makes me a huge cheater because I have tried to game select through most of my poker career. So now I'm a cheater? What the hell? 
and, and strictly punish them within our rights. See, see that's what the, they're, they're putting it out there. They, they're saying that bum hunting is cheating. What they define as bum hunting, not actual bum hunting, but what they, what they call bum hunting, meaning game selection, is cheating, and they're going to punish you. They're actually going to give you a punishment. They're not saying we're choosing to refuse service to these type of pros we prefer not to have on our site. They're saying we're going to punish you. You're going to get a punishment. It's like it's like they think you're your parents, your little child, that they have to punish you for bad behavior. Or maybe they think they are like a government body that has to punish you for breaking the law, even though they just said you're not breaking the law. Punishment. Come on. See, the, taking people's money, taking people's balances on a poker site, confiscating that, even if you give it back to all the opponents that the person had beaten, confiscating someone's money is not a punishment. It should never be a punishment. It should be a correct decision that is made because someone has won the money unfairly. That's when you should do it. Not when you're trying to just punish someone and send them a message. But, I mean, they're telling the truth here. They think they're punishing you. And they think it's fine. They think it's their place to punish you. It's written right there. GG Poker needs to manage these kinds of pros, and we do everything we can to make sure everyone plays in a fair environment. This helps ensure there are great games to play each time a player logs back into GG Poker today, tomorrow, and in the future. That's really how it ended. Today, tomorrow, and in the future. (laughs) What a ridiculous essay. This is exactly as bad as I thought it would be. But the subjective bum hunting is the big problem here. That's the big, big problem. If that was left out of this, I wouldn't have that much objection to this. But that's a huge flaw that makes the whole thing bullshit. And... Unfortunately, this has fooled some people. I looked at the reaction on Twitter, on 2 Plus 2, and it's mixed. We have people who feel like I do, but then about half the people are going, oh, yeah, this is great. It's, it's, it's about time that some poker operators finally do something about these greedy pros, especially the ones from Europe, who just abuse the games and get away with it. The ones who use bots, the ones who use solvers, the ones who data mine the ones who use seat scripts, screw them. They've been ruining online poker for the last 10 years. Thank God a site is finally here to do away with all this stuff. And my answer is no, because they have an additional element there that if you game select, you're gone and they take your money. Or at the very best, you're gone and they don't take your money and they tell you if you ever come back, you're going to take your money. So this is a big problem. This is not the right approach. It's kind of like, okay, we have some new policies. We're going to give a minimum life sentence to the following crimes. Rape, okay. Murder, okay. Uh, Terrorism, okay. Uh, Major assault causing great injury, okay. Assault with a deadly weapon uh, with intent to kill, okay. Uh, shoplifting? Go, whoa, 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 hold on. Shoplifting? Well, yeah, but all these other things. Well, no, no, but what about shoplifting? Well, but uh, shoplifting is bad for society. Society would be better without shoplifting. Yeah, but you can give, can't give a life sentence to them. Like they buried in there. I actually had a uh, an aftermarket extended warranty policy, which, which this was a dirty trick. I would never buy one of those. They're usually scams, but I actually bought one that was sold through my BMW car dealership in Las Vegas. 
So I thought, okay, well, if it's sold by the BMW dealership in Las Vegas, it's got to be legit, even though it's aftermarket. They'll stand behind it, right? So I bought it, and, and uh, I read the policy, and it looked, it looked pretty good. It looked like everything was fine. Well, the one and only time I needed to use that extended warranty was when the throttle body, which is uh, a part of the engine, needed replacement. And I got the bad news from the other BMW place where I took it in, in California. I got the bad news from uh, the extended warranty company that they don't cover it. And I said, of course you do. You, you cover everything except cosmetic stuff. Like the, the policy said that they cover everything except for things like uh, either cosmetic things or things that you replace every so often. So they're not going to cover tires. They're not going to cover windshield wiper blades. Uh, they're not going to cover uh, floor mats or stuff like that. Either cosmetic things or stuff that you're expected to replace on your car over time. So the throttle body does not qualify as one of those things. And they said, no, no, look at your policy. And sure enough, buried in one of the sections, it said we exclude the following. And they listed all these things like floor mats and wiper blades and tires and all kinds of crap like that. And then they put in the middle throttle body. That's the only thing listed. I don't know why that was excluded. And, why, and of course, I ran bad and that was the only thing I needed to be done. But I go, come on. And they said, well, sorry. So I called the BMW place in Las Vegas and I said, this is BS. You guys sold me this, and and I was told by the guy selling it to me that this is basically – this is identical to the policy that BMW sells. It's just cheaper. The guy just wanted the commission. I guess he gets a better commission for selling that one than the BMW one. I think that's why he sold it to me. But uh, I said, this guy told me it was the same. That's why I believed it. So they, they said, yeah, but still, it's right there in black and white. You just missed it. I go, well, yeah, because it was buried in a very dishonest fashion in a bunch of stuff that's obvious that they wouldn't cover in an extended warranty. They sh- it should be very clear. If this is the only mechanical-related thing that they're not covering, it should be very clear. It shouldn't be buried in a bunch of stuff that's obvious. So uh, I went back and forth with them, and the agreement we came to is we went 50-50, that they, the BMW place from Las Vegas covered half of the repair that the insurance would have otherwise covered, and I covered the other half. They, kind, they semi-admitted fault to it. Anyway, that's kind of what's going on here. They're distracting you by making you believe that they are taking a stand against all the bad things in online poker. There are some bad things. I admit the other stuff they listed here sucks. For some reason, they didn't list botting. That's a big one that's going on these days. For them, it wasn't listed, but I'm sure that's included. And if they want to take a stand against all these other bad things, then fine. Great. I support it. In fact, I, I will give them applause for doing it. But not when they squeeze in what they call bum hunting. It's greedy. It's, a, it's an excuse to confiscate the money from winning pros so they make more money. That's why they're doing it. Not for the ecology, not to do the right thing, not just because they have a different opinion of what makes an ethical poker pro than I do. They are doing this selfishly. And anyone who claims to be doing something out of the goodness of their heart or to make the world better or to make the community better, you have to stop and ask yourself, not just with this, but with everything. Stop and ask yourself, are they gaining from what they're doing? And if the answer is yes, then you have to ask yourself, so what's the real reason they're doing it? So, like, I compare this to those who donate to this free roll on Poker Fraud Alert. So, uh, online veteran who gave $100 to me yesterday for the free rolls we're using for the next two weeks. 
uh, is he doing this for any kind of gain? Does he think he's going to gain from it? No, you, you can't find any way online veteran, a longtime listener of this show, is going to gain from this $100. He did it just to be nice. So that's where you say this is a good guy who's doing something nice and trying to help the community. In this case, the community is the Poker Fraud Alert radio community. But GG Poker is not trying to help the community. This is selfish, and it's very unfair to poker pros. And I would never come back there as a banned player because you're just one false accusation of bum hunting away from having your money confiscated. And they'll say, well, we told you before, we warned you, we gave you one more chance, and you violated it, so you're a goner. So that's uh, a bad thing. I wouldn't return there. FGG Poker, and if Negreanu wrote this, then that's pretty obnoxious, and as Vintage once said, there's a very high chance he did. Let's throw on a caller who's been pretty uh, persistent, making a lot of phone calls here. But I, I didn't want to take it till the Hi. segment was over. Call you on the air. Hi, uh, Ta. Hi, Ty- Tyrone again. Tyrone, you Omega. made a lot. You, you made a lot of phone calls though. You got to wait till the segment's over. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to time this. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> How are you, sir? I, I'm I'm fine, thank you. Because it's you, Tyrone. I'll, I'll forgive the multiple calls. So what, what's going on? Oh, uh, well. I listened to this topic. I'm really sensitive to this topic. You don't know, Grando used to be a hero of mine. I really like him. But recently, he just completely out of the line. I I thought what he did is really, really unethical. For example, I'm 100% agree with you, Esther. What do you mean gain selection is not... Uh, uh, is, uh, is is not good. Break is good. More break is good. And uh, what do you mean? You you should you should not be a predator to the community. All this thing is is a bunch of bullshit. It really is. It really <laughs> is. Uh, come on now. I mean, what? Uh, if you play poker, you you must. Yourself believe you better than most people you play with, and you, if you're not, you should walk away from the table, go play some other table. Well, yeah, that's on, right. That, that's that's what's so outrageous. And the thing is, Negranu, he doesn't have to worry about these things. So he has these lucrative sponsorship deals. So he knows that even if he breaks even in poker, then he'll still make a lot of money. So most people don't have that luxury. Most people can't just uh, sit back and get a lot of money for being a sponsor, a sponsored player, a, a major sponsored player. He's the face of the site, and he was before that for Poker Stars. So most of us can't do that. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Uh, Vintage One couldn't do it. Trader Ruski could. Like none of us could go do that. And uh, so if you want to play poker and make money playing poker, the only way is to sit down at the table and win. And and it does require game selection, and that's. A lot, sometimes people make the mistake of judging the world based upon their own life and their own opportunities and their own situation and their own desires and their own likes and dislikes. And you have to stop and say everybody's different and you can't just say everybody must be like me and, and must have the same opportunities I do and must have the same talents I do and uh, otherwise you're no good. You can't You can't say that and he's been doing too much of that and I think what's happened here with him is that – he doesn't think he's a shill. 
He's not a he's not a shill in the sense of where he's knowingly putting aside his beliefs and and saying things he doesn't believe. He's just kind of convinced himself to think the way these sites do. Over time, he just kind of brainwashed himself with their help to to go along with their narrative. Which why? Because it makes it easier for him to say these things. It makes them easier to go along with what the sites are doing and saying. If if he were to be opposed to it, like let's say I was the face of GG Poker. And they announced this stuff. I would be very uncomfortable being the face of their site when they're banning winning pros and calling it bum hunting. Like I would, I would say to them, "Hey guys, you know, I don't, I don't really like this. It's not really my job to decide this." But when I signed on to be the face, I didn't think you're going to be doing this. Like uh, that, that's what I would say to them behind the scenes, and I would really have a hard time coming out in public and defending this. In fact, I wouldn't. I'd say I can't say this. I can't go out and defend this when I don't believe in this. But let's say I believed what they believed, then I would proudly go out and say it. So I think Daniel really believes these things now. He's convinced himself to believe these things, and the old Daniel, before he was the, before he was a sponsored pro on Poker Stars, before he was a sponsored pro on GG Poker, I think he didn't believe these things, and he was much more player friendly and thought much more like the average pro, even though he wasn't an average pro. Let me let me give you an example. One of the things Daniel says, say that really offended me. And the thing about straddle, he said, if you if you go there, if you go to sit on a table, the uh, everybody want to straddle. You, you should say, you you should not say no because you're not contribute to the to the <laughs> to the thing. I was thinking, hey, when I played the poker, people want to straddle. It's most be- worst play in the world, in my opinion. And uh, 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 that's the that's the gamble. Where, uh, well, you know, I, I, when I pay poker or, or anything gambling, I want to make sure I have a better chance. We're looking at my car. I'm going to double my betting. Come on, give me a break. He said, you should get the hell out of this table. That's ridiculous. Unless I'm forced to, you know. This is another example of, of, of things. He said, you should contribute to the society. I mean, come on, contribute to, uh, to 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 the site you 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 advertise GG poker. Give me a break. I mean, this is this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Now we don't we don't have confirmation <laughs> that he wrote this, but uh, he definitely goes along with it. And there's a very high chance he wrote it just for, just from the entire tone, just from the language, just from the the, the points it's making. It it sounds just like he wrote it. It sounds like it sounds like he said, "Let me write this up for you, and you guys can just put it out as your state as your statement of the site." If you guys agree, and they wrote it, they probably said, "Great, Daniel, this looks excellent. We'll just put it out from us instead of you, so it's less controversial." And he said, "Great, this sounds like a good idea," and they put it out. I bet it was something like that. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I, as far as I know, he didn't confirm he wrote it, but as Vintage once said, it really looks like this is something he wrote, and I disagree with with. The vast majority of it. So, anyway, Tyrone, anything else? We're, we're going to move on to the next topic. But anything else? Uh, I just going to ask you a quick question. This might be a little bit unnecessary. Once in a while, I pay no limit poker. The poker. Uh, I did something illegal. Do you condemn me for doing that? Is that uh, what you, you did I'm something winning. illegal? Hold, hold on a second, Tyrone here. Yeah. Uh, Tyrone actually did something illegal in poker? Yeah, I'm just wondering if this is unethical. Well, just, so okay, what did, what did you do? What did you do? Out with it. Tell us what you did. I'm winning in no limit poker. I 
I took some chips off the table. Oh well, that's actually against the house rules. It's not technically illegal, um, but so so you did what it's called rat holing. And be, now I'll make you feel a little bit better. Rat holing is actually allowed on most online poker sites. That uh, most online poker sites you can, as long as you don't like over, as long as you don't do it all the time to to angle shoot, you can leave the table and come right back with a different buy-in, and uh, that's actually allowed. It's not even against the rules unless you really abuse it on most poker sites. So uh, it's live rooms where they're very against rat holing. Because leaving and coming back is not all that simple at live rooms, where on lo- online it's very simple. So, uh, so yes, they, they say you can't technically tip shifts on the table. Now, I will say this. At Limit Hold'em, which I know you mostly play, Limit Hold'em, mm-hmm. if you have a massive... I don't do that. I don't, I don't do that on Limit Hold'em, you know. Yeah, if you have a massive number of chips that you're never going to... You're very unlikely to get down below then uh, rat holing yeah. doesn't really matter. Like I, I'll tell you, I've done this before. Not, not, not for any reason other than just uh, to prevent things from getting lost. So, like for example, back when money played on the table at like hundred dollar bills would play at forty eighty, sixty one twenty, one hundred two hundred. A lot of times there'd be end up, up hundred dollar bills on the table, and if I play a while, whether I'm winning or losing, I usually end up with some cash in front of me that came from other people who who were p- playing with money because they were they they lost all their chips. And then, uh, you know, just because I have money in front of me doesn't mean I have chips, but I, I could be losing I have money, but whatever. I'll have money in front of me. Now, let's say I have a lot of chips, and I also have a bunch of bills in front of me. Well, I see, I don't want the bills out there because they can get lost more easily than chips are. They're, they're much lighter. They, they can blow away. They could get caught under something at the table. You know, the tables have those little spaces under them. I, I just don't want to deal with $100 bills there that can get lost, especially if I start to accumulate them. And so if, if I'm sitting with four racks of chips and I've got like $700 bills there that came from other people, I'm going to take the 700 and just put it in my wallet. Not not to pull any angles. And in fact, if I get low, I will rebuy and at Limit Hold'em, there's not an all-in problem. They're not worried about how much... No one's worried about my stack at Limit Hold'em unless I'm going to not have enough money to complete the hand. Otherwise, nobody cares how much you have in front of you. It absolutely doesn't matter. So... With, since it doesn't matter what I have on the table as long as I can play out a full hand on capping all four streets, which doesn't have much anyway, then as long as I have that, then if I take money off the table just for convenience or safety of the money, then that's fine. And I, I've, I've done it before. That why I'm just curious, why did you take the money off the table? Well, the main reason I take the money off the table when I pay the limit is that uh, I want to limit my loss. Oh, is it no? Because, oh, that's a no limit. You're doing it. Uh, no, um, I don't do it in limit poker. Oh, okay, I you did a no limit. Poker. Okay, okay. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, okay, uh, I, I understand why I you're doing it. I, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say you're a bad person to do it. I will say this: that in no limit, that's just kind of that's part of the game. That's one of the rules of the game, and uh, so you're not supposed to. And it 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 does help you. If you have play a certain style, but they have that rule there to be fair to everybody, so they have a chance to get back the money from people who have won it. So, uh, um, like here's here, you say it's to protect uh, your winnings. That's exactly what they don't want there. So, like let's say I win a big pot at no limit. I sit down and immediately I, I triple up with with kind of like a standard buy-in, and I go, okay, sweet. 
I, I don't want to take these chances anymore, and I'm a better short stack player anyway. I like I like being able to determine where my short stack will have value going all in, and then I don't have to play post-flop, which is a lot easier, to be honest. So I'm going to just be a short stack player, so I'm going to take most of my money off the table and leave myself a short stack, and every time I bust a short stack, I'll buy it back in, but it's going to take a very long time and a lot of short stack losses to have lost back everything I won. Whereas if I don't, there's a lot of deep stacks at the table. They could take my entire stack in one shot, and I don't want that. So, so that's what they do to prevent that. That it, it gives the winners a little bit of a, a disadvantage compared to the to those who are losing, who are short stacked, to uh, to be able to come back and uh, to where you can't just lock up that money. It's called rat holing, as I said. And I'm not going to say it wasn't illegal. It was just against the house rules, and they can warn you or kick you out for it. You're not going to get arrested because it is your money. It's uh, the worst thing you do is throw you out of the game. But uh, uh, I I don't do that. I don't ever take. I don't ever rat hole at no limit. I don't play very much no limit cash, but I don't ever rat hole there. And uh, if I saw someone rat holing, I, I wouldn't try to get them kicked out. But I'd say, hey, you took money off the table, you put it back. Uh, now I, I have had assholes at limit give me a hard time. I've had assholes, like I've had four racks on the table. Someone sees me pocketing a few hundreds. Whoa, 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 man! What are you doing there? Why are you taking money off the table, huh? And I go, come on, it's just a few hundreds. I have like four k here. No, 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 no. Like a, I, I go, come on, it's a limit game. Like I have some sticklers that have forced me to put the money back on the table, which is a dick move. Like I see, I see others do it who have like tons of money. I don't say anything because it's it doesn't matter. But in no limit, it, it's something that you shouldn't do. It's not. It's not terrible. It's not illegal. But uh, I'm not going to think badly of you. I'm just telling you that uh, that that's part of the game to have to play with whatever stack you have. And you can also just get up and leave if you the, if you win and just don't want to continue. Then uh, you're afraid you're going to lose it back. You can just you can leave. That's totally fine. So uh, anyway, that's. Oh, well, I have one more short question. Yeah, I'm just curious. At the time you win the bracelet. Everybody win the bracelet get a lucrative sponsorship at that time, right? Well, yeah, I kind of messed that up. Uh, you're, you're sort of, you're right, sort of. It wasn't everybody. It was that you, there was much more opportunity, and I didn't pursue it as much as I should have because I was winning a lot in poker, and I said, ah, this is a pain in the ass. I don't feel like pursuing it. I should have been more aggressive about pursuing it. I probably could have gotten one. I got a little bit sponsored. I got, uh, uh, for example, uh, I got, the main event buy-in paid for that year by uh, by Sun Poker. I got uh, two St. Kitts tournaments in 05 and 06 paid for, uh, one by Sun Poker, one by Interpoker. Actually, I think they're, no, they're, they're actually both by Sun Poker, sorry. Uh, Interpoker, of course, they bought in my uh, 3K buy-in that I won the bracelet with. They, they put me in that after I finished third on my own dime at the 1500 event that same year. So I got a little bit, but uh, I never got very much. I did get some money for wearing some patches on when I ended up on the feature table in 2009. And when I made it deep in the main event in 2010, I got $7,500 for literally doing nothing from poker stars. I didn't even have to wear their cap because I was supposed to wear it the next day. And I busted the day they agreed to give me the 7,500. So that was a nice bit of money for nothing. But I will say that I wasn't, as marketable as many others for a few reasons. Number one, I wasn't mainly a tournament player. So yes, I won a bracelet, but I wasn't constantly on the tournament scene. I probably should have played more tournaments because they were much easier at the time. It's not like today where you have to be really good to consistently win a tournament. Back then, you didn't have to be that good. And I I could have played more and 
tried harder to be a better tournament player. Uh, second, I was in my mid-30s and male, and uh, that wasn't all that marketable. If I was 25 and female, everyone would have been beating down my door to sponsor me just from winning that bracelet. I mean, I would have gotten lucrative sponsorship offers flowing in, and I would have become like a major covered player. Like, they would have covered me everywhere if I was like a 25-year-old attractive female. Believe me, I would have been everywhere. Yeah, everyone would know my name. But I wasn't. I was a mid-30s guy, and there were many like me, so that that wasn't very exciting. You're 100% right. One time I had a short discussion with, with great uh, Raymond, uh, Craig Raymond, you know. Yeah, Greg Raymond, yeah. He said that. Craig Raymond, he said, it's just a short one. He said, if you're a minority, if you're a female player, you're a certain category, you can make them lots of money from sponsorship. But if you're white, uh, <laughs> not young, and uh, middle-aged, uh, you have a very difficult time. To well, he's, he was, he's mostly right. I don't agree with the minority thing. I don't think being a minority helps you that much. It may, may make you, especially back in those days, that was there wasn't much of an emphasis on that as there maybe would be today. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was mainly the female thing. If you were female and attractive, then and, and, and especially like female attractive and under 35, then you just had to do very little and you'd get recognized and get a lot of sponsorships. If, if you were male and young, it was much tougher than being female, but, but still you're kind of like in this much lower second tier of sponsorships. Then you have to do a lot, but you're still more marketable. If you're middle-aged or older, then it becomes a lot tougher. And that was that's just the way it was, and that's one of the things that happened. Like If I was 10 years younger, I may have had a little bit of a better chance, but I still wasn't a major tournament player, so it, it still would have been tough. But I, I could have done better than I did. That I, I regret a few things from those days. I regret that I didn't more actively pursue a sponsorship closer to when I won the bracelet, that I did not uh, release a book or training videos. I could have definitely done that when Limit Hold'em was still a big game and I had the bracelet and the third place finish. That, that by itself would have given me a lot of credibility. A lot of people would would have bought a Limit Hold'em book or videos on somebody who had won a Limit Hold'em bracelet and finished third in the same year. Uh, and then I uh, also regret not getting involved in the whole affiliate marketing of online poker because there was a lot of money in that and it wasn't that hard to do. I talked about doing it but never went ahead and did it. And By the time I really looked into doing it, it was kind of too late. So I, I do regret those things. Uh, I don't have the number of regrets like many others at the time who won a lot of money and are sitting here broke right now because they mismanaged it. At least I did not do that. But uh, I, I could have made more. And I, I watched others make more than I did by doing these things that I didn't do and – I do regret that, but you can't do everything perfectly. So that's how it goes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've always enjoyed your show. Okay. Well, thank, thank, th thank you, Tyrone. I, I agree with you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Okay, so we had Tyrone, who's a, who, who did violate the rule not just of uh, rat-holing. He also violated the rule about hammering me with phone calls. When you heard some Skype noises, that was Tyrone just calling in over and over again. But I uh, – because it's Tyrone, I, I forgave him. He just re he really wanted to get through and, and bring out his gripes about Negranu. Uh, one more thing about this situation with Gigi, and then we'll move on. Phil Galfond had comments about this, which is pretty big because Phil Galfond doesn't talk trash. Phil Galfond, you could just rip on him really hard, and he'll go, "Yeah, yeah, you know, like that. You know, that's that's okay. You can think that, but 
Uh, I don't agree with you. Like, like he won't. He won't fight with people. He won't argue with people. He won't name call. He won't bash people. Once in a while, he'll get passive aggressive with something he says, but that's about as far as he gets. He's a very, very even-tempered guy. And even though I've criticized the way he's managed his site, Phil Galfond is someone I would never expect to talk trash, and yet he did. Phil Galfond wrote this. He quoted the screenshot of the good pro, the regular pro, and the bad pro, and wrote... At this point, I think they're insulting the community's intelligence. Wow. So Phil Galfond is actually saying that they are insulting everybody's intelligence by putting this out. He quoted that and said that. Wow. Now, this was not just a general comment. GG Poker and Run It Once Poker, I'm talking about the poker site, not the training site, are competitors. These are competitors. He's coming hard at a competitor. <laughs> I think Galfon is a bit jealous that GG Poker has much more traffic than his site does when his site has much more player-friendly policies. So he has a point. I, he's not wrong with any of this. He is not wrong that this is insulting our intelligence. He is not wrong that this is obnoxious, and he's not wrong to be frustrated seeing GG Poker doing much better than his side is when they don't really deserve it. But that's the way it is, and I guess he decided he couldn't keep quiet. It it, it got him this angry. Because I think he's looking and going, okay, why aren't we doing that great? Why is my site kind of a fail site? And GG Poker's doing so well if they have this attitude. It's pissing me off. They don't deserve it. They should People should leave and come over to my site. Why aren't they? Why are people tolerating this? So he's like, you know what? I'm going to speak out. I'm going to, I'm going to call this out for what it is. And this is not Galfon just saying things to bash the competition. Like he really feels this and is pissed to see this and is pissed to see this is the site beating him. So he's putting it out there. But I've never seen him do something like that before. It's very interesting. He must, that shows you what level of frustration he must be operating under because this is not the type of guy who would normally do this. So when Phil Galfon says something like this, when he's bashing something, you know that he's not a happy camper at the moment. Not that he's wrong, but he's not a happy camper. I'm looking at the traffic right now on PokerScout.com, which does a pretty good job estimating traffic, and it's not even a comparison. The 45, the 24-hour peak for GG Poker's cash games is 4,543 players with an average of 3,300. Run it once poker is a fraction of that. Their average is 60 players and 118 peak. So even during this coronavirus pandemic, they're struggling. They they went up somewhat, but I mean, it's not going anywhere. And I've told you guys why. I've told you guys some of the reason. GG Poker, if anything, despite all their stupidity, they did prove that there was room in the market to start a new site. But they did it right. Not this part. This part they did wrong. But as far as the marketing aspect... As far as the software aspect, uh, they, they didn't have good enough software to run World Series events, as we've talked about before. But as far as rolling out a new site and as far as the way they did it and the way they marketed it and the way it was budgeted, they did it right and they grew. Now, they started a little before Run It Once Poker did, but they grew very quickly in recent years to where now they're one of the majors. Really, in uh, the non-U.S. market, there's the Poker Stars. There's Poker Stars, there's the IDN Poker Network, and then there's GG Poker. And those are the three biggies. 
And there's, there's still party also, but they're not as big anymore. So it's really those three that are the biggies here outside of the U.S. And GG Poker built up in the last few years. That's why they can afford to hire guys like Negreanu. I see why Phil is pissed on one hand. Yeah, you, you kind of have to look in the mirror and see why your site has failed. And you, you can look at other sites that are succeeding that are kind of being assholes and go, they don't deserve this, and I won't argue, and Phil is correct there. They don't deserve this, and this is insulting. And I think if Phil had the big site that he wouldn't be making decisions like this. I mean, he has some points, but this is this anger is definitely because they are beating his site. There's no question. It's kind of a combo of they're beating his site, and he knows that they're wrong. All right, let's try to get Vintage 1 and Trader Ruski back. We lost them both. It's almost like it was a Sky pickup. Usually, Trader Ruski doesn't go to bed this early. I mean, it's almost midnight, but we, we usually have him longer than midnight. Vintage 1 is known to just disappear. We know that. No. You know, these two are longtime friends, as you guys know. But I wonder if they have some kind of weird mental connection where they both fell asleep simultaneously. Because they both disappeared right around the same time. That's really weird. I tried Vintage 1. I have a feeling he's not going to answer either. No, he's not around either. Well, all right. Vintage 1 didn't have the usual energy. I think he was tired. Usually he's more talkative. I, I think that Vintage 1 might have tired from his long day. Okay, let's go on here. I guess I have to do the rest of the show by myself till uh, maybe Brandon shows up. Brandon did get notified of the show. He is aware it's taking place. He's probably sleeping now. But, I, in fact, I structured the show believing he might come on. He likes the casino topics better than the poker topics. Though this next topic, well, not the next one, the one after the next one, I know he would want to talk about, about the $50 World Series event, because I know he hated it. Let's move on to talk about Poker Pros. Poker Pros is an app that you can use to play real money poker, but it's not technically designed for real money poker. It's not like Bovada or ACR. It's not like those, but it's a way to play real money poker in the U.S. So it's a free money poker app, and then people can run their own rooms within Poker Bros, and then they handle all the money. So it's like a free money game where you're really paying for you're really playing for real money. And then it's settled up later by the person who's running the whole thing. Now, as you can imagine, and I've talked about before, these are often scams. Sometimes they're not even meant to be scams. Sometimes it's the person starting it is honest and just mismanages it and then just doesn't have the money to pay everybody. I've talked about the type of situation where there's a big fish on there who keeps depositing and losing. So, of course, the person running the Poker Bros app loves having that fish because he brings action. And all the other customers are happy to have him there. So the fish keeps playing, and then eventually the fish says, hey, can you give me some credit? Well, the, the fish has already deposited real money that's been received already. So the the person running the app, running the club on Poker Bros says, oh, yeah, I, I trust that guy. Of course, he's, he's paid me reliably so far. So sure, here's 10K credit. The fish then loses again, says, you know what? I think this is rigged, even though it isn't. And then refuses to pay the 10k well now the guy operating the poker pros club has either got to cover the 10k himself or stiff everybody well multiply this by happening a few times or maybe even just once and the guy running the poker bros room will may say you know what screw this i'm just going to run off i don't want to cover other people's stiffing of me so they just run off sometimes these are also just outright scams 
Sometimes they start out okay, but then the temptation to scam becomes too great. They also will have collusion here and soft play and all kinds of things like that. There's no way to police it. There's no one really to complain to. So there's all kinds of problems with these Poker Bros apps and these uh, these private games that occur there. These apps were also not designed to be secure. So there there wasn't much effort put into, into security. So again, the person running the Poker Bros Club could believe that the Poker Bros software is secure and there's no cheating, and there could be someone cheating on there without even his knowledge, nor would he have any way to detect it or analyze it. So Maybe someone found a way to cheat and see the cards. There's just a lot of reasons that Poker Bros is not a good place to play. Now, can you have a good experience there? Yes. It's not guaranteed you're going to get scammed. It's very possible that Poker Bros, a Poker Bros club that you sign up with there could uh, end up okay, but there's a lot of chance it can't. It's a lot more dangerous to play there, dangerous for your money, that is, and not getting cheated, than it is elsewhere. There's a new development involving Poker Bros. Poker Bros has announced that they have been removed from the App Store for Apple devices. This is not a surprise. This was an illegal poker app that masqueraded as a free money legal app because it is legal to run free money poker in the U.S. I know this because I run a free money poker room in the U.S. That's the no fraud online poker room where we have our free roll every week, except I don't run it for real money. So I'm not afraid of running it. However, if you run a poker app that is for real money, especially if a rake is taken, of course, the rake is taken here. It's the only reason people run these clubs is because they take rake out of the pot. So this, this is not just a home game of friends where it's played online and no rake is taken. If that were the case, then it wouldn't be anywhere near the same problem. But if you're running a poker room that takes a real money rake out of real money games, that is very illegal in the U.S. And even if it's, quote, a free money app, if just about all of the usage of that app is real money raked games, then it is illegal. And it is operating illegally. And the owners of Poker Bros are also doing something illegal. So don't think that the owners of Poker Bros can say, oh, well, we don't know what people do in those clubs. If they want to change it into a real money thing and collect real money under the table, there's no way for us to know or stop them. You could say that if most of your app is really running as free money and a small percentage of people are doing this without your knowledge. But if almost every game running on Poker Bros is for this reason, if all, all the marketing of Poker Bros is about playing real money poker, which it is, then it is a real money poker site that just pretends it's not one. So I knew it was only a matter of time until something happened. And sure enough, something has happened. Now, it hasn't been a criminal consequence. They haven't been arrested or anything, but the App Store has removed it. And my immediate belief was that this is because it's illegal gambling and very possibly somebody complained because they felt it was a scam. So they felt they got scammed there. Maybe they did get scammed there and people complained. See, there's people who feel they got scammed just because they lost and in reality, everything was fine. And then there's people who complain because they really got scammed, such as they just never got paid or people colluded against them and nothing was done about it. So it's a combination of both. People will complain about losing on poker sites 
sometimes legitimately, usually not legitimately, but with Poker Bros, I think a lot of the complaints are legitimate. Nevertheless, if Apple gets complaints, Apple gets complaints. And if it is also operating illegally, which it is, the app itself is not illegal, but the way it's being used and marketed is, then it's just a matter of time before Apple says, you know what? We don't want this, and it's not benefiting us much to have it. (laughs) Why are we even allowing this to be downloaded? There's very little upside for us, and downside that we're allowing an illegal poker app to be on our system. So they got rid of it. Now, here is what was texted to me by someone in the 480 area code who listens. He said, let's just say I know the truth of why Poker Bros was removed. Somebody reported them for doing exactly what Epic Games was doing. Selling in-game currency outside of the App Store. They were selling what's called diamonds. Here's the link to their own site selling diamonds. They claim that only APK folks, he's talking about Android, are supposed to use it. Believe me, anybody in the app can use this back door to buy diamonds. So this, uh, if you go to beyondgay.me, when I say gay, I don't mean like the sexual preferences, beyondga.me, like beyond game, but there's a period between GA and ME beyond ga.me slash shop, you can see that you can buy these diamonds. And it says below offers are limited to users using official APK version only, but um, it says users registered using App Store or Play Store version, please buy diamond using in-app purchase. I'm not sure how these diamonds work there. I see that you can buy 1K diamonds for $16, 10K diamonds for $148, 720 diamonds for, or 50K diamonds for $720, all the way up to, for $6,945, you could buy 540K diamonds. There must be some way that these translate into real money. Apparently, this could be bought through this uh, external store, and Apple has a strict rule against allowing any kind of purchase being done through the app that isn't done through them. The reason they do this is to prevent scams because the App Store is actually pretty lax about refunding complaints. So even if you make a legitimate purchase through an app and then complain later and your complaint is kind of flimsy, they will often give you back the money. In fact, there's this one game I play where some people spend thousands of dollars per year. In fact, I've heard some even spend tens of thousands, which is crazy. Uh, I do not. The amount of money that... I have spent on this app over time is $8. I've spent $8 on this game in like the two and a half years I've played it. Total. There's some who spend way, way more than that. But there have been some people who've had complaints about the customer service of the company that runs this game. And I agree with them. The customer service is absolutely horrendous, which is part of the reason I won't spend money there. It's also just seems like a waste to me, but I would spend more than I have if I didn't hate their customer service with a passion. So I like, I like the game, but I, I hate the customer service. They're like customer hostile. So I just don't want to give them money. Like, it's pretty amazing because you'll have these people who spend thousands of dollars and they, they want like some small refund that they totally deserve because something screwed up and, the, and they get a big fat middle finger from customer service. And I know because I'm, I'm like in Facebook groups for this game. So then some people get angry and say, okay, F you then. I'm just going to charge back all $3,000 I've spent on the game this year. And some people have gotten the whole $3,000 back with very flimsy reasons. When in reality, like maybe the company stiffed them out of like 30 and then they regret having spent 3000 before that because they feel they're not appreciated. 
and then they say, I want the entire 3000 back, and Apple's given it. So Apple's actually pretty good with refunding in-app purchase complaints because there's a lot of shady apps out there regarding in-app purchases. Apple, rather than trying to waste time and resources trying to decide the merit of these complaints, which can be very tough to figure out who's right, they just basically tell the operators, you better have satisfied customers because if they're not in bitch to us, we're probably going to kick the money back. So if, if you're running one of these games, it can be frustrating if some customers want to stiff you and make up complaints to get the money back. And that's why you should be incentivized to provide good service. I, I'm surprised why this company doesn't, that the, the game I play. In order to prevent scams from occurring where people can't get their money back, they don't allow any kind of sales from outside systems where they have no power to refund. So this person in 480 is claiming that that's what occurred. And that's why they got banned, which is possible. It's possible it wasn't even about the gambling thing. It's possible it was about this which is kind of indirectly tied to the gambling thing. If you buy something directly, like diamonds, on this app, let's say you could buy it through the app store, you could you could buy these diamonds. If these diamonds were taken away from you that you bought, if they were just confiscated from you, then they could suspend the app because the app would be violating the terms. However, if you were to spend the diamonds on other things within the game, and then they took those things away from you, that's actually okay, which is dumb, but that's the way Apple does it. They just can't directly take what you've bought, but if you use those items to buy other things in the game and they take those things away, that's actually okay, which is weird. Now, I don't know how gambling would work because you're not supposed to be gambling with this stuff. So I don't know how that would work if you lost it in a poker game. But that's why this person in the 480 thinks that they got suspended. He may be right, or maybe part of it. It may be a kind of a dual thing where people complain they bought these diamonds to gamble with and lost them, and then Apple looked into it and they're like, well... Forget the gambling aspect, but these diamonds are being bought elsewhere and we're not allowing it. Anyway, look, there's a reason that online poker needs to be regulated. These clubs are a bad idea. Now, it's true that if you want to play online poker in a place that's not offered legally, you have to find a way to do it that is not going to have consumer protections. And when I play on Bovada or Ignition, I don't have consumer protections, and I know that. And I know I can get screwed. There have been some small things they've screwed me with that I've just overlooked. I've complained about them here, but I didn't quit. So it is a risk, no matter where you play, but there's a much higher risk in these rooms. And now people are worried about the future of Poker Bros since people can't get it off the App Store. And if it doesn't come back, then this may really screw Poker Bros. And now some people are afraid that maybe they won't get their money off there because there's going to be like a run on the Poker Bros bank, that... Whatever club you're in, there's going to be a bunch of people going, I'm a little bit worried about the future of Poker Bros. I'd like my money, please. And maybe the club owners have spent some of it. Because remember, the club owners are expected just to hold all the money and have it ready for you when you cash out. But much like what Full Tilt did, they might be just keeping whatever they need to cash people out who want to cash out and assume that most of it will eventually fall to rake and they don't need to keep it all on hand. So if everybody demands their money at the same time, it's very possible that these poker bros agents or club owners don't have the money. And keep in mind, those who run these clubs are not likely to be ones who have a lot of money in the first place. If you have millions of dollars, you're probably not running a poker bros club because you don't want to risk going to prison for doing so. You don't want to risk getting arrested for running something like this, which you could. You could definitely get arrested for it. I probably, I think you probably won't, but... You could. You're doing something illegal. People who have a lot of money probably won't do that just to make a little more money. 
The ones doing this are ones who really need the money. Ones who, whatever these poker bros clubs generate, that's that money is very big to them because they have none. They're broke. They're close to broke. They they don't know how they're going to pay rent. They're they're losing poker pros who need to keep in action. What whatever it is, the people running these are ones who typically really need the money. Thus, when they're holding your money, they may find reasons to borrow it, and you'll never know until you. Come get your money whether they have it or not. And just because they had it last week doesn't mean they're going to have it this week. So people go, oh, I got cashed out for $20,000 a month ago. So here, how do you tell me that's a scam? Well, because this month they may not have your 20000 Just because they paid you last month doesn't mean they'll pay you this month. You should have learned that from Full Tilt in 2011. Remember how reliably they paid? And then you found out it was all an illusion. They were paying people, but they were just keeping them out enough to cash people out and spending everything else. And the second there was a bigger demand for cash out, such as the DOJ shutting them down, well, they had to break it to you. They didn't really have your money. So it's something you need to keep in mind. Anyway, Poker Bros is off the App Store. I don't know if it's going to come back. And they have put out a statement about this. Due to unexpected circumstances, the Poker Bros app was removed from the U.S. Apple Store yesterday. This means that for the next few days... New players will be unable to download the app from the U.S. Apple Store. We sincerely apologize for any inconvenience this may cause. By the way, this is probably based somewhere else because they spelled apologize with an S-E at the end instead of a Z-E. So that's the European spelling. I have to think this is not based in the U.S. Interesting. And not only that, the app doesn't work for people who already have it. Someone posted from Minnesota that when they had tried to sign into their Poker Bros account, it says, due to the local regulations, the app is not available in your region. Sorry for the inconvenience. Wow. I don't know if this is happening to the whole U.S. or if they've chosen certain states. Maybe this is temporary just to get back into the Apple Store, but whatever it is, they, they have made the conscious decision on Poker Bros to shut out certain people, so... That's not good. I mean, think of how these clubs might collapse. That's like think of somebody who set up a poker bros full of people he knew in Minnesota. Okay, now what do you do? All your players are gone. Maybe the ones who have, have Androids aren't, but a lot of them are gone. So what if everybody asks for the money at the same time? Do these people have it? I'm guessing in many cases they don't. I think we're going to hear in the next few days a lot of people who played in poker bros clubs got stiffed. And this is exactly what you need to worry about when you play on a club like Poker Bros is the hammer can fall at any time. There's so many different ways that everything can be plugging along just fine, and then one day something changes and you're screwed. And you can go, oh, well, who knows it was going to be removed from the App Store? Well, that's not a big stretch. <laughs> that's not a big stretch that it gets removed from the App Store. Some people were saying I'm surprised it was in the App Store in the first place. If you've got to count on all this staying perfect for your money to be accessible, then you're just asking to get cheated. These are just not a good idea. It's tempting, I understand. You can hear about how great the games are. You can hear about how uh, it's easy to get money on and off them. You can hear all these enticing things about them. But keep in mind, you can easily get screwed. And you can even get screwed in a way where the operator didn't intend to screw you. As I said, it could be that somebody owed him money and never paid him. Could be, like, when this goes down, let's take the Minnesota example. Let's say you can't play in Minnesota anymore. So, it goes down, 
and you go to your club owner in Minnesota and say, okay, can you pay me my money I had on here? And he goes, ah, well, remember that fish? I was floating him credit, and he was paying reliably. Well, now that it's shut down and the fish knows he can't play here anymore, he doesn't want to pay me. Sorry, he owes me 30K. It kind of screws up everything. I can't pay you. I mean, there's so many ways you're not going to get paid. All right, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the $50 event on, on GG Poker. This is a bracelet event, and it had a record field. The field they got for this event, for this uh, $50 World Series of Poker event, was 44,576 entries. These were non-U.S. players, or at least players not in the U.S. as they played. It could have been Americans elsewhere, but those that signed up and played this were outside the U.S., and they got 44,576 entries. The largest field of a World Series event before this was a live World Series event, one that I played in a year ago, the Big 50, which... By the way, this one's also called the Big 50 because this one's actually $50. The Big 50 they had last year was a $500 buy-in that was celebrating the what they called the 50th anniversary, but it was actually just the 50th World Series. And they also charged no rake for the first buy-in, which helped me because not only did I only buy it once, but I cashed. So my cash would have been less had they charged rake on the first buy-in. And there were horrendous lines, which I avoided. There was a lot of confusion in getting a seat, which I didn't avoid. I also lost the seat card, which cost me some time. But anyway, when the whole thing was said and done, I finished as one of the day one chip leaders, and I finished in 666th place. I kid you not, 666. And I got 3000 something dollars for my $500 buy-in. I made it through some point in day two or three. I forget now. Maybe it was day three. Whatever. I knew I was going to have to have really good luck to make it uh, to the end of it with 28,000-something entries. Now, there were rebuys on this, so this was not 44,576 people, but they got 44,576 entries. How? Well, because it's $50. So people keep firing over and over and over again because it's only 50 bucks. I have a feeling that there is uh, no limit to how often you could buy in. I don't think there was any limitation to that. I think it was unlimited rebuys. So this blew way past the previous record that was set earlier in the GG Poker World Series. That's for the $100 opener event. It's called the opener for $100 buy-in. 29,306 people entered. And this one got 44,576 because it's only 50 bucks. Who doesn't want to have a shot at a bracelet for 50 bucks? And who doesn't want to rebuy if they bust for their first $50 buy-in for a bracelet? So, of course, people bought it over and over and over again. Anyway, bottom line is it's absurd to have a $50 buy-in bracelet event. It just is. So they ended up with 2,300 people in the money. And... uh, I guess uh, that that's only like top 5%. That's a little bit weird. wonder why they're so low. However, of these uh, 44,576 entries, I don't know how many are unique people, but of these 44,576 entries, 
in order to make $1,000 or more, you had to finish in the top 249. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's the top 0.5%. Top 0.5%. Almost. A little bit higher than that, but about top 0.5%. Not even the top one percent. You make you make the top one percent in this. You don't even come close to making to to cashing a thousand dollars. Forget making a thousand. You you don't cash a thousand unless you are in the top zero point five percent. That's insane. That's like the equivalent of winning a two hundred man field. I know it's harder to win a two hundred man field than to finish in the top zero point five percent of a big field, but you get what I'm saying. You have to do better than one hundred ninety nine out of two hundred players. Only one player of those two of the average two hundred have to do better than you for you to get a thousand out of this. What a waste of freaking time. I guess if you're a low limit player, this is great, but they shouldn't be handing out bracelets for this. That's I mean, absolutely absurd. And we talked about this before. But here's what's even crazier. This is fifty dollars. And you can win a real World Series of bracelet, not a World Series Europe bracelet, not a World Series ring, but I'm actually talking about a World Series of Poker bracelet that's supposed to be equivalent to like the one I have. It's a real WSOP bracelet that's supposed to be considered totally valid. I'd be embarrassed to say that's the bracelet I have, but nonetheless, it is considered a valid bracelet. So, let's talk about what this would be worth. $50 in 2020 would be $7.82 Seven dollars and eighty-two cents in nineteen seventy-one. <laughs> Seven dollars and eighty-two cents. So they could have had a World Series event for eight dollars in nineteen seventy-one, and it actually would have been a higher buy-in than this one was. Eight dollars. Now you may say, "Well, nineteen seventy-one. Come on, that's a long time ago. It's almost fifty years ago. A lot of people don't remember nineteen seventy-one." I wasn't born yet in 1971. I was conceived, but I was not born yet in 1971. So I can't tell you how life was in 71. But let's get to a more recent year. Let's get to the year 2000. That doesn't seem like that long ago. I'm sure you remember the year 2000. Well, $50 in 2020 is $33 in the year 2000. <laughs> so it's like the World Series in the year 2000 had a $33 bracelet event. I mean, it's just insane. That's that's not a real bracelet. I'm sorry. I don't care what they call it. It's not a real bracelet. That's a cheap crapshoot is what it is. So we were... I, remember, I forgot what we were guessing. Brandon and I were putting like over-unders on what we think the field will be. I don't think any of us guessed over 40,000. I knew it was going to be very high. Uh, among the people who did very well in this, I don't really know their names. There's uh, Wayne uh, Wade, J.W. Nomad, Gillette, uh, Max, the Chosen One, Vega. I don't know him either. Zhang Huang. Don't know him either. Uh, Ronald Corvan Hoot, Haverkamp. Don't know him. This is my favorite one, though. The guy who finished in fourth was Daniel Vanessa 23 Montagnoli. (laughs) 
that just bothers me. I, I I understand you can do it, but it's just such a shitty thing that you pick a female name and you're actually a male poker pro. Like, come on, Vanessa23. And then the problem is, and this is back when they had chat, I would see people sit in my game with names like Vanessa23. I've never played with Vanessa23, but I've seen ones like that sit with me. And then, like, I want to call it out because I, I don't like how this person thinks they're fooling everybody. I actually like exposing it because I, I don't like them getting an edge this way. Some people think, oh, it's the you know, it's a girl. I'll be nice to her. I'll slow play her. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll, we'll chat and get to know each other. This is on sites where you can chat, of course. But, like, I would see this in the past and I'd call it out. I'd right away say, oh, I, 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 think, you're, I think you're a dude. I think this person's a dude. And I, I would just assume it's a dude until they prove otherwise. And, and sometimes I was wrong. Sometimes it turned out it was really a girl and I'd feel bad. And then I, I kind of felt bad, like, pressuring a real girl to prove herself because she shouldn't have to because it's kind of hard to prove yourself. And then they got to say who they are or show a picture of themselves, and, like, and there's not an easy way to do that all the time. So, like, on one hand, I hated being the guy who was kind of, like, harassing the women who just want to show up and play poker to say who they are. But on the other hand, it bothered me so much to just sit there and let a lot of these female names who are really male fool people. And I really did see they were sometimes treated differently. It was exactly why guys like uh, Daniel Montagnoli picked names like Vanessa23. I don't think Daniel is a cross-dresser. I don't think he's a transsexual. I think that Daniel Montagnoli felt that being Vanessa23 gave him an edge. So I would negate that edge by calling them out. And unfortunately, I would sometimes uh, cause the collateral damage of actual females who get improperly called out for being uh, male. I don't say you are male. I say I suspect this person's male. And then I can sometimes see by their response if they are or not. That's a lot of times how I determine it without even getting proof. Because the girls take it pretty well. The girls actually respond pretty calmly. They'll sometimes laugh. They'll sometimes say, nope, I've got the real parts. Or just kind of say things like that. Or they'll give you the kind of terse responses that seem like, Kind of like it doesn't bother them, but they understand why you're saying that, but they don't feel like really getting into it. When they get really mad, like, huh, what, you don't think a girl can be good at poker? Huh? That's always a guy. Whenever you get like an aggressive, angry response back, it's a dude. And be- dudes are very bad at being women online because they can't tone down the aggression. Dudes online who are saying they're female have a very hard time acting female because they don't know what a female feels like. They don't know if we feel – they think they know how girls act, but they really don't. They – they are too heavy on the whole girl power, on the I can beat the boys thing. Uh, sometimes they're overtly sexual, which women rarely are online. So you'll see signs like that where you go, oh, that's a guy. And in general, guys, they, they kind of try too hard to hit you over the head with that they're female. Females don't try to hit you over the head with the fact that they're female because they know they are. They don't feel like they, they have to show you they're female. The the guys that really try hard to like display feminine qualities like flirting, talking sexually, uh, talking about how girls can play poker too. Whenever you see crap like that, it's a guy. And I like calling it out. Anyway, so Vanessa23 is really a dude, finished fourth. And... Another kind of funny name, uh, Dean Lipscomb. I don't know who he is. I don't know any of these people, but Dean Lipscomb is Juji JJ. J O O G I E J J. Juji JJ. I don't know why, but it's a funny name, Juji JJ. 
Good old uh, Wade J.W. Nomad Gillette, not related to Penn Gillette. Spelled his name differently, but he's got to be a little disappointed. On one hand, he turned his $50, if he only bought it once, but he turned his $50 to many, many times that. But on the other side, he navigated a 44,000-person field, finished ninth, and received $15,000. What did the winner get? They got 211282 which is a nice payout for $50 buy-in, but to have to navigate that type of field, that's not that great. And by the way, the, the reason that they paid such a low number of people, like 5%, is because they needed six figures up top. They wanted six figures to the top three, and they could only manage that if they made it top heavy. Because if you think about the Big 50 that they ran last year at the Real World Series, that was a $500 buy-in, and they kind of struggled to get that million up top. Here, if you convert the 50 to a 500 buy-in, this first prize would be $2.1 million, and the second and third prizes would have been over a million had this been a $500 buy-in and gotten the same number of entries. They didn't want the top prizes to be five figures in this. It would have been a little embarrassing for their World Series event with 44,000 people that they're still paying under 100K. So that's that's why. So this 211 is actually, even though it feels like it's not that good to beat 44,000 people and win a bracelet and only get 211,000, that's actually a lot better than it could have been. They actually made it top heavy. All right, moving on here. I want to talk about uh, the tragedy with the Isle of Capri. I wish Trader Ruski stayed on. He was curious about it. He, he goes back and listens to the show, so I'm not concerned. He will get his answer of what happened to the Isle of Capri casino. So first I'm going to tell you what happened, and then I'm going to tell you a personal story of mine from the year 2008 involving the Isle of Capri casino. The Isle of Capri is located in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Lake Charles, Louisiana is in western Louisiana. It is a few hours east of Houston. If you live in Beaumont, which is uh, one of the larger cities in eastern Texas that's east of Houston. Of course, Houston's the big city that's in eastern Texas. But the uh, further eastern Texas is Beaumont, which is kind of considered part of the greater Houston area. Uh, if you live in the Beaumont area, then Lake Charles is a place you would go to go to a casino. Louisiana, remember, they have to have these river casinos. The casinos in Louisiana have to be on the water. There were uh, there was an exception made for Harris New Orleans, which is close to the water, but is not quite on the water. But otherwise, they have to be on the water and. I've talked about this before, but this is just one of these dumb gambling laws that evolved where they came up with, okay, gambling can be okay under these circumstances only, and then it starts to evolve to be okay in other circumstances because people find loopholes. And that's why with gambling, you either got to allow it or not allow it. Really really good gambling law would be gambling is allowed in this state, and it's up to the individual county and city if they want it. That's it. Nothing further. And don't restrict the type of games offered. Don't say it has to be on a river or near a river. It's dumb. Like, why does the river matter? So the way the riverboat gambling started was that the theory was that if the boat, if it's a traveling boat, it's not typically, it's not actually on land anywhere. It's not actually in a city anywhere. Even if the water is uh, 
even if that's water that's within a state, it's still a body of water. It's almost like a boat on the ocean, even though it isn't. And people can't just easily walk on and off. So, hey, if you want to take a boat out onto a big body of water and uh, people want to gamble on that boat, uh, people can't really develop a, a gambling habit because you can't just jump on that boat anytime. That's how it started. And then it evolved to, okay, well, the boat doesn't actually have to be on the water because there started being these river boats that would just go up and down the river. And they'd say, look, we've got problems. We People want to leave and they can't. So why can't we just be parked on shore but still on the river? Why do we have to be moving? Why, why do we have to pointlessly move and trap people here who don't want to get off? And officials said, eh, okay, you bring up a good point. Okay, fine. So river boats, they don't have to be moving on the river. They can just be on the river. And then people said, well, you know, why should we actually have to have a boat parked on the river? Why does it actually have to be a boat sitting in the water? It's a lot harder to maintain. There's a lot more problems that can occur. We, it can get damaged more easily in storms. Why can't we be just like a building right next to the river? So then some states said, oh, okay, yeah, I can be a building right next to the river. Then some businesses would say, well, problem of being right next to the river is, number one, it's more restrictive as far as we, where we can be. And second, uh, we still get damage from when the river uh, overflows from storms. And we have to close for a while. It costs all kinds of money for repairs. So is it really going to hurt if we move across the street to where it's a little bit safer? Yeah, okay, fine. Move across the street is a little bit safer. So you've gone now from a, a allowing gambling as long as it's on a boat on the river to it's okay as long as you're this much distance from the river on land. And you see where it keeps evolving. So that's why it's so dumb. That's why you should just say, yes, it's allowed. No, it's not allowed. If a state doesn't want it, fine. If a state does want it, Fine, I think that's a better idea than let the localities decide if they want it. Anyway, Louisiana, for the most part, they've still got to be uh, uh, on the river or right, at least right next to the river. And there's a few exceptions there. I don't know a ton about Louisiana law as far as gambling, but that's what I believe is currently the case. It's, it, it's always evolving. Anyway, let's talk about this particular casino, this Isle of Capri. The Isle of Capri actually is a boat. The Isle of Capri is a boat that is, it doesn't go anywhere. It's parked right on the water there in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which, as I said, is in western Louisiana near Texas. And uh, since it's a boat, it actually can float. It doesn't go anywhere, but it can. It actually uh, can move on the water because, remember, it's a boat. Well... What would happen if a hurricane came into town? I don't know, like maybe Hurricane Laura? And if it caused the water to get very rough on the river where it's parked? And if there was a lot of wind? And what if the boat became dislodged and started to travel out of control and ended up crashing into something? And that is exactly what happened a day or two ago that the Isle of Capri Casino, which was a boat, blew away, blew across the water, and slammed into Interstate 10. And you can see a picture of it if you Google it. You can actually see the Isle of Capri. You can see a before picture where it just looks like a, a normal riverboat casino that's parked on the water, and you can just walk right onto it. 
that's what I did when I stayed there. I just walked right onto it. It, it didn't feel like a boat. It kind of it felt like a, a casino. If you went like to certain areas of it, you could see it was a boat, but it wasn't going anywhere. I didn't have to worry about it uh, shipping off and me being stuck there or anything. You can see the before picture of it, and you can see that it's sitting on the I-10 bridge, and it slammed into it. It did get tugged back to uh, <laughs> the location that it was uh, previously. A tugboat came over and pulled it back to its original location. You may wonder what happened to the people there. Uh, nothing, because they had evacuated it, so nothing happened. They tend to evacuate these when a hurricane comes. In fact, that happened to me when I was at the Al Capri. It uh, suffered some damage, but not even that bad. But uh, I don't know when it's going to reopen. <laughs> it, it did crash into the, uh, the I, a bridge for the I-10. Fortunately, it didn't damage the bridge. Imagine if, imagine if you're driving on I-10 and a casino boat blows over and slams into the bridge and the bridge goes down, and that's how you die. You, you actually die from a casino hitting a bridge you're driving on. Would you ever picture that? Would you ever picture you could die from a casino hitting a bridge that you're driving on? Not just part of a casino, but an actual full casino. I'm not sure when they're going to reopen, but uh, there's also damage in the area to the Golden Nugget and the Lilburge Casino. But apparently it wasn't heavy damage, and they're not sure when they're going to reopen, but they also uh, closed. These casinos are used to closing for hurricanes, especially in August. August is the most common month for hurricanes in the area. August is a big hurricane month, as probably you guys know. Hurricane season lasts from June to November, but most of the hurricanes tend to come in August or September. That's just the season they tend to show up by the weather patterns. So now I'm going to tell you the story I had of my own from the Isle of Capri Casino in Lake Charles. And I didn't tell this story too much before because, I don't know, just keeping privacy, but since it's been so many years. Uh, I've talked about this a little on the show. In 2008, I was in a long relationship with my last girlfriend, Miri, but we ended the relationship. We were having problems and we ended it in uh, uh, kind of like right before the summer of 2008, I think like May or something, we ended the relationship. So I was single for the first time living in Vegas. I was single in 2008. And that was my first uh, Vegas dating experience because before that I had a steady girlfriend prior to living in Vegas. I got to know a girl on the Neverwin Poker Forum who went by the screen name Toots. And I only got to know her because I was a mod there and I made a joke about how we don't know if she's really female, which wasn't like what I was talking about before, how I would call out females that I thought were male. I actually knew she was female because she knew someone else on the site who was a longtime user who said she was female and I didn't think the guy was lying. So I actually believed she was female and that the girl in the picture was really her. But she thought I was questioning it. And so she sent me your number saying you can call up and verify that this is really me. So I did that, and we ended up on the phone for like three hours. And then we started talking every day. And it's kind of weird because she would call me every day, like right when she'd wake up in the morning, and she'd call me right when she was done with work. And she had like this long drive to and from work, so she'd call me for both the drive to work and from work. 
and she'd call me before she go to bed. We talked a lot of hours every day. I mean, she did very little every day except for go to work, call me, and, and drive to and from work. And sometimes she went to go play poker, but that was it. It was pretty much her whole life was talking to me, playing poker, or going to work, or driving to work. So we got to like each other over the next few weeks. The problem was she was all the way in Beaumont, Texas. And I was in Las Vegas. So this was not easy to see each other. Uh, it was also a little bit weird that we didn't explicitly talk about any kind of uh, romantic connection or potential romantic connection. And there was no uh, sexual element to the conversations at all. It was really like totally normal conversations where sex was like never brought up. Which felt a little bit strange to like go on that long to talk every day for that many hours and like just nothing sexual or romantic came up. It was almost like we were friends, but then she was kind of treating it like we weren't with how much she called me constantly. And then she, and now I'm thinking, well, maybe she just likes having a friend to talk to. Maybe she just thinks I'm a good friend that she enjoys talking to, but has no romantic interest in. I don't know. But then she kept pressing very hard for me to come out and meet her. Like very hard. This is like her idea. I kept pressing, 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 come out and meet her. I was kind of like, I wanted to meet her, but the, the distance thing was bothering me. I'm like, well, what if I come out there and, and we like each other? Then what do I do with her being thousands of miles away? And I'm not going to move to Texas. And then she can't, she had a kid. She couldn't move here. So I was like, you know, uh, the, like I, I couldn't figure out what exactly I wanted to do. And going to Texas seems like such a pain in the ass. So I wasn't even suggesting it. But she was very strongly suggesting I come there. Just kept pressing, 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 pressing. And finally I agreed to come. So I agreed to do it. And then we set up a date. And I was actually going to come there and play a poker tournament in the area. Going to make a two-for-one trip out of it. And we were going to go stay at some casino in Luxy, Mississippi, where they had a poker tournament. We were going to stay together there. And I was going to play the poker tournament. I don't think she was, but I think I was going to play, and she was going to hang out there. But then they canceled the tournament because this hurricane called Gustav came. You can Google Hurricane Gustav. You'll find it. And it was coming to Biloxi, Mississippi, but was not projected to get to Houston to Beaumont or to Lake Charles, which is further west. So I figured, okay, I can still come. Yeah, there's some risk that the hurricane will go farther than expected, but it'll probably be okay. Well, that was a big mistake. I should not have done, I should not have chanced it. So I flew there to meet her, and I still didn't know what to expect. I, I still didn't know if she just kind of wanted to hang out as friends. Like I, it, it just I, it was never made clear to me. And whenever I kind of attempted to direct the conversation like in that way, I, it would, she'd like change the subject. I, I almost didn't go because of that, to be honest. But I just said, okay, whatever, I'll go. I'll play the tournament. If if she isn't interested, then whatever. Then I'll just come home. You know, like it's it's. Or maybe I'll go out and I won't like her anyway. Like I didn't know. I, I saw pictures of her. She was pretty, but I like I didn't know if we'd get along. I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, I know I really I I really like talking to her on the phone. So I said, okay, I, I'll do it. So I came out there despite the fact that the Biloxi thing was no longer happening. And in fact, they were closed. And our, our new plan, we kind of had like loose plans, we'll go to some other casino. So I got there, and the first night, we, we were getting along pretty well, and she said, uh, let's go to the Isle of Capri. I said, I've never heard of that. She said, it's in Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's not that far from here. And she drove me, and she drove me there to the Isle of Capri, and we got a hotel room, and we stayed there together. And we got along really well that first night. 
really well. Uh, we did not have sex there, in case you're wondering. Some things happened, but we, we didn't have sex, and we didn't come close to having sex. That's, I'll say that and leave it at that. The next day, we got very aggressive knocks on our door. Like, bang, 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 bang. And, and like, what the hell? We found a paper that was slipped under the door. The paper said, the hurricane's coming. You need to evacuate by 1 p.m. And we were planning to stay another day. So forget staying another day. We had to be out by 1, 1, 1 p.m. It was like 11 a.m. by this point when they banged on the door. So we quickly ate something and left. And then we figured, okay, we'll just drive back west to Beaumont where she lives and stay there. No, they were evacuating Beaumont. We were told that everybody has to leave Beaumont. And we had to secure her house, so which I'd never done before, of course, not being from an area with no hurricanes. So she had to secure things in her house, and I had help with it. And then uh, we tried to drive towards Dallas, and her car had a, some kind of wheel problem, and we had to stop. And then we had to go to somebody else's house and, and borrow their car. The whole thing was a huge pain in the ass. As you can imagine, it was as you can imagine, it was very stressful, and it, it pretty much destroyed everything. We went from having a very nice first day to the next day once the hurricane was there. Like, we, we didn't know each other well enough in person yet to have such a thing happen on our first meeting together. So that, that completely ruined it. Now, now, truthfully, we wouldn't have been compatible in the long run anyway for reasons I won't get into. But everything fell apart. And it was disappointing. But I, I went back to Las Vegas at the end of the weekend. By the end of the weekend, it really deteriorated, and we just were not getting along at all. Like, nothing terrible happened. We just weren't getting along at all by the end. And we had evacuated far away, all the way to Dallas. So I, I flew back home. I said, okay, this is over. And uh, then a bunch of forum drama happened because of this that I won't go into again. And uh, I still wanted to keep privacy at the time and didn't want to discuss it all. I wasn't ashamed of anything. I just didn't feel it was anyone's business. And all these rumors were started up on the forum about what had really occurred there. Just total lies and assumptions that weren't even... What I told you was really what, what happened. That was like a, a condensed version of what really happened. That we got along extremely well the first day and liked each other. And then the next day when the hurricane came, everything fell apart. And that I left and I thought this kind of sucks, but that's it. I, I just was like, it wasn't a huge deal. And in fact, when I got back, she then was wanted to try again and we started talking again. It just never really got there. And then, then a bunch of drama sprung from that. But uh, people started up all these kind of false rumors that that I came there and that I, I hit on her and she wasn't interested in me and I got mad and agitated and rude to her and then... And then uh, talk trash about her like none of this happened i swear none of that happened the way that people were putting it and uh that's the way it happens on forums they were all very curious about it they we were two very prominent people on the forum so she and i didn't talk for many years and of all things going back to the big 50 i was at the big 50 last year in that infamous warehouse and who gets put at my table as a late entry was toots <laughs> 11 years later and she was put all the way across the table and i thought i recognized her but it had been 11 years and people change in 11 years so I, I wasn't sure it was her and i wasn't sure if she recognized me but i 
thought she probably did, but I changed in 11 years also. But uh, at the break, we uh, the funny thing is right before the break, the final hand was played as me versus her, versus her, and I won the hand. And then we uh, we spent the entire break talking. She actually waited for me to do some color ups, and, and then I walked out with her. So it's not like I I didn't like follow her out to the break and and have like an uncomfortable talk with her. Like we she actually sat there waiting for me to do all the cover ups and walked out with me. Not cover ups, color ups. So we talked and we had, we had a pleasant conversation, and. She didn't know much about my current life because we hadn't talked in 11 years. I told her I had a kid who was eight years old and uh, she talked about her current marriage and she had another kid and, you know, whatever. We just kind of told each other what had happened. I even told her that a year before that I had the terrible struggle with anxiety and depression, which I was able to mostly beat. And uh, so we spent the... 20 minute break there just talking and then went back to play she busted shortly thereafter because she was a short stack and that was that and I haven't talked to her again the funny thing is I would see like I'd see at the World Series sometimes in the results she'd be listed as like a min cash or things like that or like or she'd be in the chip listings of, of day two for things so I knew she was coming out there most years but she was never at my table until the big 50 of all things with 28,000 entries she gets it at my my first table Kind of weird. So uh, I talked about this last year. But that's that's where we stayed. We stayed at the Alice Capri. That's my only time being there. I otherwise would not have gone to Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's just not a place one from the West would go to. But that's why I was there. I spent the night there. It was okay. You know, it wasn't a luxurious place, but it it it, uh, it was fine. But yeah, that boat, I, I, think the, I think the hotel is actually not on the boat. I think the hotel is... Uh, a structure that's actually on land because the hotel doesn't have to be on the water if there's no gambling there and the casino is the boat. It was something like that. It's been 12 years. I'm not sure. but uh, And it, it may have also changed since then. But I know I, I stayed at the Alice Capri and now that's smashed into I-10. So of all things. I think see like this is, this article on casino.org that was wrecked by sla- slamming into the bridge but then see I'm not sure uh, I'm reading now severe damage but I've also seen that it, it wasn't damaged as badly as you would think like that it's it had to be tugged back and it has to be fixed but it's not severe I don't know I mean they'll rebuild it That's kind of weird. Like, go Google that picture. It's a really weird picture of a boat that is slammed into the bridge. And when you think about it being a casino, it kind of looks like in the picture it's just a boat hitting a bridge. The boat actually looks a lot more seaworthy than I would have expected. Now, maybe they have to move it every so often. I don't know what the rules are with this. But it's I had always thought those boats that are parked there really don't have the ability to actually go on the water that they're not even maintained to do that. They're just basically maintained to float there. But I, I guess it didn't go that far. I guess it just floated until it hit the bridge. But I, I had always thought that these things don't have any real capability to actually be boats anymore. It's not seaworthy, as they say. Okay, I'm getting some tweets. I'm going to read text messages here. Let's see. 
Yeah, see, now everyone's jumping on the Poker Bros thing. Even Matt Berkey is jumping on it because people are tweeting out the no service message I just read you guys, like the Minnesota guy who put out the no service thing. I guess it's, I guess maybe it's just Minnesota because Matt Berkey is retweeting somebody else who did uh, Minnesota. Matt Berkey tweeted out, scared yet? Yeah, I mean, if you've got money on there, you should get it off right now. Any Poker Bros club, don't don't listen to the guy running the club. Oh, it'll be fine. Just say, no, I want my money. I know some people on this site, on this show, I know you guys, some of you play on Poker Bros. Please ask for your money. Otherwise, you may never get it. Even if your agent seems like a good guy or your, your club owner seems like a good guy. Hey, Lawn Cigar sent me something. I guess this is kind of interesting. I'll talk about I'll throw this topic in. Why not? Lawn Cigar, who lives in Vegas and will sometimes send me stories from Vegas, especially about casinos, sent me this just now. Red Rock Resorts CEO Frank J. Fertitta III bought $2.3 million worth of shares, which is interesting. He bought 137,500 shares of Red Rock Resorts on August 17th at an average price of $16.43 a share, making that $2.3 million. So that is interesting. Uh, he also bought uh, 145,000 shares on August 14th, just three days before that, for a similar average price. And the stock has gone up 1.1% since. He also bought on August 13th $176,000 at an average price of $15.24. He also bought on August 12th. He bought 450,000 shares for $14.79. And he also bought on August 10th 705,000 shares, the biggest purchase of these, the first one, at an average price of $14.12. Hmm. So isn't that interesting? Between August 10th and August 17th, a week's time, Frank J. Fertitta III bought 705,000 shares, then 450,000, then 176,000, then 145,000, then 137,500. And all along that week, the price kept going up. It went from $14.12 to $16.43. Isn't that interesting? That's some decent money he already made from this. There were some other purchases at the Red Rock. Lorenzo J. Fertitta, who's a vice president and 10% owner, and of course in the same family, bought uh, various uh, shares that happened to exactly match what Frank Fertitta bought. 705000 on the 10th, 450000 on the 12th, 176000 on the 13th, 145000 on the 14th, 137500 on the 17th. Hmm... That is interesting. So might this be any kind of stock price manipulation? I don't know. Or maybe they are... uh, Maybe there's something else going on there. Now, I'm reading this on a site called gurufocus.com, and it says GuruFocus has detected eight severe warning signs with Red Rock Resorts, Inc. So let's see what those warning signs are. Keep in mind, I did not prepare this segment. This is something that was 
centimeter in radio. So what are the warning signs? Are they listed? No. When I click this, it doesn't say. Well, regardless, this is interesting. Red Rock was trading at its best uh, at $27.50, and then it kind of held around steady. And on uh, February 20th, was still at $27.39, just a tiny bit off the high. Then it had a crash, as did all Vegas stocks, when the coronavirus started getting worse and worse in the U.S. And by March 18th, less than a month later, it had fallen from 27.39 all the way down to $3.50, which is a tremendous drop. But uh, now it's all the way back to uh, looks like $18.07. Wow, it's gone up further. It did get up to $15.62 in June, slightly after Vegas reopened on June 4th. This is by June 8th. It went up to $15.80, only to slip down to below $10 on July 9th, and now it's back to $18. I wonder what's going on here. This warning guru focus has detected eight severe warning signs with RRR, Red Rock Resorts. Click here to check it out. Okay, check it out. Oh, I see. I need to sign up for a premium account. Aha. See, now I wonder if these are really eight severe warning signs or just clickbait. But I believe the information they're putting out. I don't know about these warning signs, but I will say that this is an interesting story. And thank you to Lon Cigar for bringing my attention to this. I might post this on my VegasCasinoTalk.com site, the sister site of PokerFraudAlert.com. Some that uh, bonus topic there, thanks to Lawn Cigar. Okay, so now I have a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. Then we're going to take a break. A man was arrested in Las Vegas after passing a rather large check that was no good. This was a $1.3 million check passed at the Cosmopolitan Las Vegas, and it turned out to be bad. Now, this has not been reported anywhere. This was brought to us courtesy of Matt the Rat. And Matt the Rat told us about this on the forum. And here is what he wrote. He said, I'm friends with a guy that owns a bail bonds company in California. He told me today that a guy wrote a bad check to the Cosmo for $1.5 million. It's not even $1.3, it's $1.5 million. Even worse. They got him at the airport in Vegas today. That was uh, two days ago. Or I guess a day and a half ago now on August 27th. He said I could post a redacted version of his email from the case file assigned to him. Now, the, the redacted email is not very useful. It's just like everything's blacked out. It just says case number, administrative specialist, office of the DA, bad check diversion unit. So, like, whatever. That doesn't mean much, but I do believe this happened. Now, this is a little bit of a weird situation because aside from the large amount of money involved, you can't just stroll into the Cosmo and hand them a check saying $1.5 million and say, oh, $1.5 million in chips, please. And then they hand you the chips and then check later if, you're, if, you, have to have, if you actually have the money in your bank account. It, it doesn't work that way. If you try to cash a check, they do all kinds of research on you and they check your credit. They do a lot of checking on you to figure out whether you're good for the money. 
And if they don't think you are, then they won't cash the check for you. Now, the smaller the check, the less scrutiny they will put on it. I'm not saying you can't cash a check at all there without being investigated up and down, but there's no way that one could just stroll in and give them a check for $1.5 million and get those chips. So there has to be some sort of vetting that you pass, very extensive vetting for this amount of money. They also have to go through a know-your-customer procedure in order to prevent money laundering. That's the other concern. It's not just can you pay them. It's not just is the check good. It's also are these funds legal or are you perhaps laundering drug money? So they, they have to know where the funds came from. There's a lot they have to do by law for amounts like $1.5 million. So my guess was that this was somebody who was a high roller there and had already gone through this process and had gambled there in the past and actually had those checks be good or maybe maybe someone who had wired a shitload of money there in the past and lost it and everything was fine so at some point they get to trust you the most famous instance of this occurring was Terence Watanabe Terence Watanabe who I think I mentioned on the last show was a mega fish a mega whale who played uh, blackjack and other games that he was horrible at this guy was not only a compulsive gambler but he was also a bad gambler he didn't understand the games he played people could not believe how poorly he played the games and yet would gamble huge money where did he get such money how could someone who is that clueless make so much money Well, he didn't. He inherited it. The Oriental Trading Company, which used to sell a lot of objects by mail, they uh, that was started by his father. And in the 80s and 90s, it grew very big. They got a very big mail order business going, and it made a ton. I remember my girlfriend in the 90s used to order from them a lot. And he had inherited at least part of that company. So he was basically gambling away his Oriental Trading Company fortune. By then, he had sold his interest in the Oriental Trading Company, and he had a lot of money to burn. So Terrence liked to gamble. He didn't know what he was doing. He really was the, like, incompetent idiot son of a smart and responsible and uh, business-savvy father. Sometimes the kids do not follow in their parents' footsteps. A lot of times you have much less talented kids of talented parents. So that definitely was the case here. So he inherited it and liked to gamble, didn't even bother to learn the correct strategy. I'm not talking about card counting. I'm talking about just basic strategy in blackjack. I mean, he made just horrendous moves. So can you imagine how much the casinos loved him? He was betting sky-high limits and didn't do the right thing most of the time, like he made all the wrong decisions. He made just idiotic decisions that you could teach a 10-year-old to play much better than he played. I'm not even exaggerating. This was in 2007. Steve Wynn eventually called him to his office and spoke to him personally because he was losing a lot at the win. And Steve Wynn said, Mr. Watanabe, I think you're a problem gambler. And you need to convince me you're not a problem gambler or I'm going to throw you out. I know you've lost a lot of money to this casino. I appreciate all the business, but we can't allow problem gamblers here. And from what I'm hearing from my staff, you are one. But uh, I'm going to ask you some questions. And if you 
convince me you're not a problem gambler, then I'll let you go back. Otherwise, you're banned. So they had their talk, and at the end, Steve Wentz said, yeah, you're a problem gambler. And he was right. He said, you're gone. I'm kicking you. And Steve Wynn kicked him out. Now, Steve Wynn, obviously, he had some uh, ethical lapses with other areas in his life, uh, specifically involving women. He uh, didn't treat some women very well, and he was a sexual harasser. So I'm not going to defend that. But uh, as far as things like that, he actually was pretty classy. Like Steve Wynn actually had a conscience with things like this. He didn't want to take the entire fortune of a problem gambler who inherited a bunch of money. So he booted him. He actually banned him from the win for being a problem gambler. So Caesars, do you think they cared? No, of course not. Caesars is like, oh, sweet. So we can get this action now? So uh, Terrence uh, was contacted by someone who worked at uh, Caesars and said, hey, come on over here. We're not going to kick you. And Terrence Watanabe came down there and he had all these demands, which, of course, Caesars gave in very quickly. One of them was that he didn't like the seven stars rank. He felt that uh, too many people are seven stars. He wants something above seven stars. They said, well, I'm sorry, sir. Seven stars is their top rank. Well, then make one. So they said, okay, we'll make one. So they made one called chairman just for him. So he was the only chairman in the history of Caesars. Didn't mean anything. It was just a fake rank they make for him above seven stars. And he had a chairman card. And they let him always play alone. And uh, he kept wanting uh, alcohol and pills. And his hosts would get it for him, even though this wasn't legal to have him gamble to where he was in a super inebriated state where he couldn't make logical decisions. But they, a lot of the time he was gambling at Caesars, he was like that. And they gave him pills, too, which they weren't supposed to do, obviously. Some have asked, uh, did they get him prostitutes also? Answer is no. And maybe because he didn't like women. Yes, he was gay doesn't have much to do with this story, but Terrence Watanabe is gay. I guess they could have gotten him male prostitutes, but I guess the, somehow sex wasn't part of any of this. They, they didn't get him any kind of prostitutes, but definitely women would not have been uh, anything he would have wanted. So Terrence then uh, chunked off his fortune to Caesars. He lost uh, $60 million plus like another 50 or something. I have to look up the numbers, but he, he lost the rest on credit. And that's why I'm telling you this story. Terrence lost tens of millions of dollars in a short time to Caesars. And then he said, hey, guys, can you give me credit? Well, they they knew he had enough to lose that much. They knew he was terrible. They knew he's almost guaranteed to lose. So, oh, yeah, sure. Here's your credit. So he kept playing and playing and playing. And then they said, "Uh, yeah, you're tens of million dollars in the hole now. That you owe us, uh, we kind of want to see proof of that. And he stalled and stalled, and finally he admitted that he didn't really have the money, that he blew his entire fortune to them of like 60 million bucks, and then he owed them a lot more, which he didn't actually have. So they extended this credit to him based upon his past whale-like play, super whale-like play. And then both sides were suing each other. He, he was They were suing him for the bad markers that he knowingly took when he didn't have the money. And he was suing them for the money back that he lost and a forgiveness of what he had lost that he couldn't afford, claiming that they violated the law by giving him this alcohol to the point where he could barely see straight and by giving him pills and also by continuing to let him gamble and encourage him to gamble when he was a problem gambler. So you know what? Everybody was right. He had acted illegally. It's actually a crime in Nevada to take out these markers 
when you can't actually pay and to stiff the casino. It's actually a, a, a crime. But then they committed major violations at Caesars with what they were doing. So it was kind of recognized that both sides were assholes here. <laughs> and, uh, so they basically both dropped it. He agreed not to go after them for the lost money that he actually lost to them, and they agreed to just forgive the money that he owed them. And that was that. And Terrence Watanabe was broke. And then he had very sad he was having to raise money for subsequent health problems. So he couldn't even pay his health expenses after that. And this was a guy who had just had donated so much money to AIDS causes and stuff like that. Now, now he needed the donations. Anyway, back to this. I have a feeling this was a smaller version of Terrence Watanabe. That this was somebody who had was a whale there and then lost all his money. And then figured they'll give him another 1.5 million credit based on a check that he actually couldn't cover, hoping he's going to win and they'll never know. And that person lost. And somehow they got out of the Cosmo before they were caught. So maybe it was something like, hey, you know, can you make sure we get that 1.5 million? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to call my bank to make sure they transfer it or make sure that it's in the account and everything's fine and it'll be okay. And then the next day it bounced and they called up the bank and the bank's like, ah, no. No, sorry, Cosmo, uh, we're not going to be able to cash that check. Uh, this account, I know you think it has uh, $1.5 million, but in reality it has... 0.0. So they called the police, and then they got him at the airport, which they often check. Like you, You'll hear in Vegas a lot of people being arrested at the airport as they leave, because if they see someone is from out of the area, that usually would require a flight to get to meaning like not L.A. or San Diego or Arizona, then they figure, okay, well, how's the person going to get away? They're probably going to try to fly back home. So they wait for them at the airport. They look up when their flight is and arrest them there. I'm sure that's what happened here is they knew the guy would be leaving, and maybe he didn't even know they were on to him, and he's about to get on the plane. They're like, nope, you're coming with us. Matt the Rat also wrote, as a follow-up, this is what my friend told me. I have no idea who he is yet. I only know that on August 6th, he borrowed $1.5 million and then bailed on the casino. I only know his CPA, who is a very close friend of mine. He vouched for the defendant. So I just uh, so he just paid, I paid the 110000 This is a, not Matt the Rat, of course. This is his, uh, the, the friend. Paid 110000 for him in, in, until he got out tonight or latest by tomorrow. It's a simple case of pay the casinos back, and that's pretty much it. So he knew the check was no good, which is illegal. You cannot pass a bad check to the casino when you don't actually have the funds. However, it is possible that the guy can raise the money another way. Matt doesn't know who it is, but the friend of Matt said that he knows the guy well enough to where he actually fronted uh, 110000 to bail him out. So if the guy thought that he was totally broke, he wouldn't have front of the 110000 to bail him out. So there's a decent chance this will be made right. But the guy tried to pass a $1.5 million bad check, obviously lost it, and then tried to bail town before the Cosmo got wise to it. And he was not fast enough. Here's a tip to those who are going to do this in the future. Do not get on your flight. Instead, go to Enterprise Rent-A-Car Tell them you'd like to do a one-way rental, drive to uh, Phoenix or L.A. 
or San Diego and take a flight from there back home. Now, they're still going to have a warrant for your arrest, but they're probably not going to extradite you. Not that I'm encouraging anybody to uh, write bad checks and steal from the casino, but if you're going to do it and you don't want to go to jail right away, you can't go to McCarran and try to get on a flight. I mean, that's just not very smart. That's just not very smart. If I if I wrote a $1.5 million bad check to the casino, which I would never do, even if I was a billionaire, this is something I – well, forget the bad check. I, I wouldn't be gambling at those limits unless it was positive expectation. Maybe I would, but uh, – Still, even as a billionaire, like I think I still have a problem like gambling one point five million, unless I was really sure it was a, a play. Not only was it positive expectation, but that it was either really positive expectation or one I could make a lot of times. But I, I don't know. I'll never be a billionaire. But unless I had money like that, I mean, I, I could never gamble one point five million in a casino. But if I did, and if I couldn't cover the funds, I would get out of town in a way that did not involve a flight. I would get in my car or get in or get a rental car and drive. And I would drive fast before anyone could understand what was going on or know to catch me at the rental car place when I returned the car. And then I would try to get back to my state and pray they don't extradite me. That's what I would do. <laughs> I wouldn't sit around. And by the way, if you do get back to your home state and you can arrange the funds after that, if you can sell some things or whatever and then scratch the 1.5 mil together and make it right, then you can usually uh, get out of the criminal consequences. Because I, let me tell you, if if you bail on this, let's say the guy hopped in his car and did, drove, did drive to Phoenix and then hopped a plane from Phoenix back to wherever he lives in some other state. And then you call up the Cosmo and say, look, OK, yeah, I know the check wasn't good. Sorry. I, I do have assets. I'm going to get you the money. No bullshit this time. I'll send you the proof of my assets. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to I'm going to sell some things. I'm going to ship it to you, but only if you drop the criminal case against me. So how, how about we, you know how about we just agree? I'm going to sell such and such assets, which I'll send you proof of, and upon receipt of the 1.5 mil, you drop you have the criminal charges dropped. And I, I bet you could arrange that pretty easily, or you get you know through an attorney to do it for you. Because all the casino wants is to get paid, and what the state really wants is for people not to stiff the casinos. So if you if you quickly offer to make it right, especially for that type of money, they'll probably let it go, even if you did something dumb in the moment. The important thing is that the casino gets paid quickly. If you screw them and don't have the money, a good faith effort is not going to cut it. But if you actually if you have the money or have the assets you can sell to raise the money and do it quickly, then you can probably get out of criminal charges. So that that is probably what I would do. I I probably would flee. So I'd have a stronger negotiating position. Because once, once they've got you in, in jail over there, then you're at their mercy. I would flee back home and then I would sell something, raise the $1.5 million and say, I will send this to you as soon as uh, we get an agreement that I'm not going to be prosecuted. And uh, I would probably do that through an attorney. In fact, uh, it would be smart to do this through an attorney because it's that amount of money and you, you know, the cost of the attorney is going to be very low compared to the uh, $1.5 you're sending anyway. So I would hire an attorney there and say, please help me arrange this. And I'd arrange this. And I, I bet they'd go for it to get the money because they have influence. They have the Cosmo can influence the state. The state doesn't have to listen to the Cosmo, but the state can you – know, they, they could listen to the Cosmo. The Cosmo could say, look, you know, we, we, we want to set a precedent where if someone wants to quickly do the right thing and pay us in full, that they're not sorry they did. So let's reward people who initially screw us but quickly think otherwise. And, and send us the money. Let's not uh, 
let's not uh, disincentivize the quick change of heart where people pay because they're scared. So I have a feeling that the guy would get out of it if he does that. In fact, uh, maybe that's why the friend fronted him the money. Maybe that's what he told his friend is, hey, I'm going to I'm going to pay this. Just get me out and I'm going to try to arrange getting them paid and get out of these charges. So we may never see charges on this. I don't have any facts that this has actually occurred like this, but it just makes sense. These laws are in place to prevent people from free rolling the casinos, where if you win, the casino never knows your money was never good. And if you the check was never good or and if you quickly pay down the marker and they, they never cast a check. And if you lose, then you just stiff them. So I understand. I understand why that's a law. I understand, in a, especially in a place where, which is supported so much by gambling, where casinos are such a huge part of the economy, you have to have a law in place that is going to aggressively prosecute people who stiff the casinos. Now, there have been famous people who have stiffed casinos and who ultimately did pay and not uh, have any criminal case. Uh, Charles Barkley is one of the more famous ones. In fact, there was even a full-page ad taken in the newspaper shaming Charles Barkley. I think he owed the win, like, only like 400000 or something, which for Charles Barkley doesn't sound like that should be a lot. Fortunately for Charles Barkley, despite a terrible gambling problem, Charles Barkley is constantly working. He is one of the few athletes who is still very viable after his athletic career is over because he, had a pers- he has a personality that people enjoy, even though he can be kind of abrasive. People kind of like this abrasiveness he has. He's always been an outspoken figure that they like having on these shows, on these sports shows where he's, he's one of the commentators. You know, This way you, ha- you have someone like him in the mix and, and the commentating is boring, especially during like halftime shows. So he has constant jobs like that and he still gets endorsement opportunity because he's a recognizable face. So Sir Charles there has a constant income stream, unlike a lot of other athletes who make a lot of money in a short time when they're younger, and then when their basketball or baseball or football career is over, then uh, they're making very little, and they, uh, they've blown all their money, and then they're screwed, and then they end up broke. A lot of them end up broke. But Charles Barkley, he, he ends up broke, but he gets out of it, and the reason he ends up broke is because of gambling. But uh, apparently he tried to stiff the wind for a while, and as soon as they put that ad in the paper... Uh, he quickly contacted them and shipped the 400K. Now, he may have taken an advance from one of these companies he works for. Who knows? But he quickly got that taken care of, and he never suffered any criminal charges. So re- really, the main point is to get people to pay up. It's to really hammer it into people's heads that if you owe the casino, that you pay them, or there's going to be an aggressive, active criminal case against you. You're not going to get out of it. You're either going to have a, a criminal case pending against you, and we're going to go after you very hard, or you're going to pay. There's not going to be a scenario for you where you just get to skate away from this. That's that's the message they are trying to hammer into all gamblers, and they've been pretty successful at that. So that looks like that's what's happening here, even though this person is not famous. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to this show. And... I'm going to take a break. We still have a big topic to cover. We have the Antonio Esfandiari million-dollar theft topic to cover with some perspective from me as one who attended an Antonio Esfandiari party, and I got to see some things which are relevant to what happened here, even though the party I went to was about 13 years ago. But it's still very relevant, and I know some things that 
Some of you don't know unless you read the forum today where I posted some of it, but I'm going to go into it in more detail here on this show because it's easier to talk than to write. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that one because you know, you're probably going to hear this on other poker podcasts. It's a big story that just broke today, and since it involves Antonio, who's one of the more recognizable poker pros, I'm sure a lot of podcasts that are related to poker and even gambling are going to talk about this, but few, if any, are going to have this perspective because I attended parties. I, I one party, but it, I, I got to see a lot. I attended a party at Antonio's house, I believe in 2007. And I got to see him. I got to see his father. I got to see what was going on there. And I got to see how that could have led to what happened to the, to, what happened uh, just recently with that big theft. It doesn't surprise me at all. I wasn't expecting it, but I wasn't shocked to hear it. And I will tell you why. I will give you my own personal, honest perspective of what I observed then and how it applies to now. So that will be after the break. During the break, I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad because Eric Benzamokin is a very nice guy and a very competent attorney who donates money to this show to help the free roll get funded in weeks when it doesn't always have funding. Now, this week we had funding, thanks to online veteran, but we don't always have funding, and Eric is always there. I mean, like every single time I say we have no money, I don't even hint it to him. I don't say, hey, Eric, uh, hint, hint, uh, we're kind of low on the free roll this week. Like I... I'd be even embarrassed to say that to him because I don't want to seem like a leech or like I'm expecting him to donate. In fact, it's the opposite. He actually sometimes wants to donate more than I want to accept because uh, I, I don't want to take too much. This is the truth. I'm not just saying this to sound good. Eric would verify it if you ask him. But uh, whenever he sees the free roll is a little behind as far as raising its usual fi- minimum $50, or sometimes he just wants to add to it. He says, no, it's, I, th- I think the free roll doesn't look high enough this week. I want to donate. And he's donated so many times, and I appreciate that. And I've developed a real-life friendship with him. So when you listen to this ad, keep that in mind. And keep in mind that he's been on this show many times demonstrating his legal knowledge. It's not just an attorney who claims he knows his stuff. This is someone who's demonstrated on the show, as I have asked him questions that... Uh, he does not know I'm going to ask that he couldn't prepare beforehand. And we get very good answers. Go back and listen. It's listed in uh, the description. You can just Google it and figure it out or use the Poker Fraud Alert search feature if you are considering hiring him and you want to listen to him first. You have examples of him on the show. So he does more than just uh, arbitration and mediation, as the ad says. He does uh, a lot of different things in the legal profession. I know he does a lot of bankruptcies. So I know some of you, unfortunately, may end up along those lines as a result of the coronavirus pandemic through no fault of your own. Anyway, if, uh, I know he uh, practices in California and federally. So if, if either of those apply to you or if you need an arbitration or uh, mediation done anywhere, he can do that as well. So I'll be right back. And if you're listening live and uh, there's a pause after I come back, then don't worry. It should be a little dead air. I just sometimes take a bit longer than the two-and-a-half-minute ad takes the play. Otherwise, I will be right back to do the Antonio topic and the remainder of our topics, including coronavirus news, as we do every week here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. 
If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, so we're back. Matt the Rat, hello. Hey, no. Uh, just a couple things, actually, uh, regarding Vintage One. I, I don't know what shows he works on, but it's funny. I was browsing through the TV and uh, some of the, the soap operas that are on. It's funny because you can tell they're six feet distancing, right? So it's it's kind of funny to watch a show where everybody's standing far apart the whole time. I didn't think of that, but that's a good point, that actually the actors in the show, they're probably written to stand apart from each yeah, other. Yeah, <laughs> they're not you know holding hands, touching or anything, right? So that that's kind of funny. Um, and yeah, your, your chat room, like, uh, in the radio, normally when I have the radio tab on and the radio starts, it just starts, but today it didn't, like I had to re refresh the page for it to start. Yeah, I know that's, that's happened sometimes. And that's so the, the player has a few faults and then the chat room is going corrupt and it's gone corrupt a few times over the years and I've had to go in and fix it. And it's not like a simple reinstall. It's just like a, it's a pain in the ass. I have to manually do some things to fix whatever's ailing it, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to do it this time. I'm just going to yeah. replace it. And was there a bounty on me for the poker game? There was, the, yes. Who put the bounty on? I did in a way, but the money didn't come from me. Someone said pick three people. Oh. So I looked who was online Oh, I was okay, definitely going to okay. play, and I picked three people at random, and you were one I, of them. Well, I, I picked I two just, at random. It was, I picked you, and I am Greek, and then I threw Trader Ruski in just because he's the co-host. 
Oh, okay. Because it was funny. I just, I, I just kind of turned it on when it was a when well when you said that, and it was funny. I was basically the dominant chip leader until the final table, and I just had no cards. And then it was uh, Crypto Ninja took me out. Uh, he keeps winning. Wow. Yeah. Um, so what I was, uh, what else? Um, oh, the. Um, Oh, I, I know usually I'm going to bed soon. I know usually do the political stuff near the end. I'll, I'll make it quick. But have you seen, like, especially on a lot of social media, especially these bloody liberal left white, young white people from especially Portland? Have you seen a lot of their videos lately? Um, I haven't watched their videos, but uh, there I know there's a lot of uh, young white people who are putting out a lot of uh, very – bad and obnoxious messages and also are, are doing a lot of the the looting and rioting and uh and vandalism. well they're they're going to like restaurants and they're marching in there and they're you know raising their arm making the fist and saying you know black lives matter and then if you if you are sitting there minding your own business the 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 mob comes up and starts yelling at them yeah i saw those and they're, videos. and they're doing the the white violent the white silence is violence and these people are just trying to eat their dinner yeah i've seen those videos that was, that was pretty outrageous uh, the the problem is here that and some of these people don't even realize it they're doing this to make themselves feel better they're doing this because they think if i do this this makes me a good person this makes me doing something to better the world and then they feel good about themselves and they feel superior to other people because they are doing this and others aren't, which means they care. They're helping the world. Everybody else isn't. And uh, and then this also justifies them to do bad things. So then if, if they want to riot, if they want to burn things, if they want to vandalize uh, statues or monuments, then they say, oh, well, we're doing this to, to help black people. So, of course, we can do it. So then people who want to break things and commit acts of violence – now they have some justification in their mind of why they can do that. But this is all selfish. These are not people who are, are doing this for the good of the world. Even if they want to tell themselves that they are, they're, they're doing this for themselves. They're doing this because they like it or they make, it makes themselves feel good. They make themselves feel like they're uh, – that they, this makes them good people or maybe compensates for other things they've done that aren't so good. There's a lot of psychology behind this. That if you were to go down to it and look at what is driving these people to do what they do, it's, it's not really noble, even if they think it is. Sometimes they believe it is, but then in reality it isn't. And uh, and the, the thing is here, what's sad is that the there's become increasingly a belief that freedom of thought, freedom of opinion – and freedom of speech just aren't important. That what's important is to think the right way. And the right way, of course, is defined by a narrow group of people that says it's right. So they say, this is what's right. This is what you must think. This is the opinion you must have. You're only allowed to state your opinion if you think this way. Otherwise, we're going to make sure you suffer some consequence. And, uh, and if you don't think like we do, then you're a horrible person. And and the majority of those people, not all of them, but I would say ninety percent of them, are young white people from eighteen to say thirty, and and it's one thing to damage property, but I mean you've seen I saw a video of this guy was driving a pickup down Main Street in in Portland where a lot of this seems to be happening, and they were having some kind of rant or you know like a. They're saying Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, blah. And this one guy was at a stoplight, this white guy. They took him out of his pickup truck and just beat him up. Yeah, I know. Just because he was white. Oh, I know. There's, there's, uh, 
they, so what hypocrites mobs, they are oh, saying about the violence, yet they beat up. And they're throwing, like, hubcaps at police and yeah, one I saw, hit a big I saw that, guy in the head. I saw that video. That was horrible. It was and, horrible. And, and uh, yeah, and also, a lot of these people are not even from impoverished backgrounds. These are people who are who have uh, middle-class and upper-class parents who uh, who will support them or are supporting them or will support them if they run out of money. And uh, they, they have this safety net where they don't have to worry so much about their lives, and then they yet they resent it. They they resent it and they they think okay well I feel a little bit like subconsciously I feel a little bit useless because my parents are supporting me or that I I feel like it's 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 I subconsciously feel like I may not be a good person because uh, I I have this support system and others don't and I feel a little guilty let me think what can I do oh here's a cause I can support it and I can be as much of an asshole as I want to those who don't support it. And that makes me a good person now. Okay, great. And then, and then they also act and don't fear consequence because they feel that mommy and daddy will help them. Mommy and daddy will, will hire a good attorney if they get in trouble or uh, mommy and daddy will support them if they can't get a job after getting convicted for doing something. They, they always feel like they can somehow get around whatever consequence comes. And then they start to do worse and worse things. And these people have not had to really have any kind of responsibility in life. And a lot of cases have not even supported themselves, and they they just convince themselves they're doing the right thing, or were brainwashed by others into believing it, and then they go along with it. And I'm not defending anyone. It's, you know, once you're an adult, even a young adult, uh, even if you're brainwashed, it, it's your responsibility to not allow that to happen. And if you are, to still behave responsibly, if those have people have convinced you to believe the wrong thing. So there's there's a lot of different causes to this. But uh, there's, but you know, there's a lot of that in in the states now. There, there's, there might be a little bit in Canada, but I would say for the most part, you don't see anything like that in Canada. And the weird thing is, I don't even know why it bothers me so much. I, I guess it's just a general thing because I don't live in the states, and it doesn't really matter to me. But it's just that these people feel so, you know, self righteous and privileged that, and they're doing this stuff, and they're such hypocrites. Oh yeah, it's just, and, and it's just times- amazing. I mean, I have actually. Um, I have relatives that live in Portland, so I actually I should phone them up and see what's happening with them. And, and in fact, um, I also ask these people, "What's the goal? What, what what do you think should be like? How do you suggest they change things?" So I hear, "Okay, Black Lives Matter. Let's stop uh, uh, taking black. Have the police take so many black lives?" I go, "Okay, first of all, you're exaggerating this. There's the, the number of uh, of black lives taken." by police of unarmed black people it, it like in 2018 the last year they had data for it, it was 15 in the u.s 15 that were unarmed that were killed by police so uh, it'd be better if the number was zero but it'd be better if a lot of numbers were zero it'd be better if there was zero murders in the country but we're never going to have that if a country of 330 million people you're going to have certain things that happen that are bad certain a certain percentage of the population is not going to act right including police and there's no way to say okay we're going to make it so all police behave well all the time and, are, and never engage in brutality that would be great but that's not possible in a, a country this large. If it's just one city, maybe you can make it happen uh, if you really put a lot of effort into it. But you can't – with a very large sample, there's no way to do it. So, But I ask these people, what's the goal? And then they say, well, we need to stop it. I go, okay. You say, you say we need to, but how? What do we need to do? Well, we've got to make police less racist. How? 
Yeah, they have no direct answer. Yeah, how, how do you do it? Well, we, we need to uh, defund the police. Well, that's not going to do any good. That's just going to bring fewer officers there, fewer resources, and then criminals can get away with more, and they can feel more empowered to, to commit crime and know that there's a lower chance that they're going to be arrested. Like, that, that, that's – you don't defund police or, or, or partially defund police to punish them for what you perceive what they're doing wrong. What you do is you try to look at the – problems within the police department that could allow this to happen and try to correct those problems from within and that i would support and always have supported so uh, but but they these people don't have a a clear goal they they have very ambiguous goals that they state just we want to accomplish this but how we don't know or they tell you some terrible idea that will never work and just make things worse and and so it really as i said they, these are not people going out to protest to bring a solution they are just protesting a to situation cool, they don't like. Yeah, they claim it, they don't like the situation. They bring no answers. They bring no solutions. And they, they just want to destroy things and be assholes because to some of them it's fun. To, when you get older, you can forget. But young people, teenagers, for example, teenagers, early 20s people, they enjoy disruption. They actually – I'm talking about a lot of them and not, not just the evil, terrible ones. A lot of young people enjoy seeing things disrupted. They like – Doing something and seeing that it has an effect and everyone uh, you know, reacts to it and everyone panics. It's just something that young people don't have the maturity yet to not have a desire to do. They kind of like to make an impact even if it's by doing something bad. So they kind of have fun when they do something that's going to get impact, going to get noticed. And so if you can do something that makes this kind of impact – that you have, you can convince yourself at the same time is actually for the greater good, and not just you being a jerk or not you not you being a troublemaker, but actually you're you're agitating and cre- creating this impact that you're going to see a tangible impact that's going to upset everybody and get everyone riled up, but that you're actually doing it for a good purpose. Then you can feel great about yourself because you're having fun, you're enjoying it, and you think you're changing the world, but in reality. You're just disrupting and and creating a lot of problems and creating a lot of headaches and hurting people and hurting their businesses and and hurting police officers and hurting cities and hurting race relations. And that's not the way to go about it. And and I'll tell you something. Joe Biden had a pretty nice lead he built up over 2020. He came in as the underdog into 2020, even once it was clear that he was going to be the nominee. Donald Trump was way ahead of him. It looked like Biden was going to have a lot of work cut out for him to be able to catch up. And then it changed thanks to the coronavirus. And Donald Trump fell a good deal behind. And all Joe Biden had to do, it looked like, was not mess up. But it wasn't so much of him messing up. It was that Democrats let this go on too long. There's been too many riots. The, the, there's so many different cities that have been hit. And people are getting tired of it. The sympathy is going away. At first, when the George Floyd thing happened, people are like, okay, well, we understand why everybody's so angry. They're letting it out. And then this has been going on for months now in some places like Portland. And the swing voters that both parties need to win are getting tired of it. And then they look. And a lot, a lot of those states are Democratic states, right? Well, no. Some of them are, are states that went Republican. Some of them are run by Democrats, but uh, some of them went Republican for Trump uh, in 2016. Uh, even slightly like Wisconsin and Michigan. But but some of these states, it's a lot of these swing voters are looking at this now and going, you know what? This sucks. We, we feel like at any time, riots can break out anywhere. 
It seems like the Democrats make excuses for the rioters and don't want to take any action against them. And Republicans, uh, they're not taking that much action either, but at least they, they're, they're openly condemning it and calling these what they are and, uh, and are discussing ways to stop it. They're not making excuses for these criminals. So you know what? Screw the Democrats. I was, I was with them. I was against Trump. I decided I didn't like Trump. I decided I like Biden. I, you know, I, I decided Biden's the, 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 lesser of the two evils. I was going to vote for him, but now, you know, I don't know if I want to do it because uh, I kind of feel like this is going to go on. I kind of feel like Democrats just are going to let people burn whatever city they want when they're unhappy. And we don't like that. So in general, swing voters do not like when people, uh, they don't like civil unrest. They don't like feeling unsafe. They don't like rioting and looting. They don't like that. No matter what the reason, they don't like it. And if it goes on and on and on and on, which it has, and if it's not being condemned by one side, then that side who's not condemning it is going to struggle. And that's why you see now in the betting markets, I didn't think I would see this during the election once Trump fell behind, but Trump is now about even money. So if you want to bet on Biden, this is a good time. You can get even money. And in fact, someone told me, you know, I know you think that Biden's going to win, which I said not too long ago. Now you can get him on even money. Maybe you should bet on him, which by the way, if I thought he was going to win, I would bet on him. I just It'd be kind of weird because I wouldn't be rooting for him, but yeah. but I, I can separate the two. But uh, I I said, you know what? I'm kind of not sure now because the Democrats are kind of messing this up. And if they like, as long as they keep making excuses for the rioters, or even just don't want to say anything about it, they try to avoid the subject. They try to avoid mentioning it. They try to avoid calling it out. Like even they Joe, have no action plan. Yeah, well, even Joe Biden put out a video lately. Guys, this is not the answer. You, you shouldn't go out and riot. You should go protest peacefully. Yes. We, okay, that's all true, but something he didn't say was that these people are criminals or he didn't condemn them. He didn't talk about the, the horrors that they've been committing. He didn't call them what they were and say that this is what you don't want to be and these people should be arrested and prosecuted. He said nothing like that. He's more like, come on, guys, stop rioting and looting. This isn't the right way. Come on, friends, don't loot any. Like that, that, those weren't the words he used, but that was the way he came out against it. And that's not going to cut it. People, people want to hear that the leaders are saying, this isn't acceptable. We're going to put a stop to it. These people are going to go to jail. These people are going to be prosecuted. We're going to put a stop to it. We'll, we'll go in and use force if we have to to stop this. But this is going to stop. That's what the swing voters want to hear. Even Trump hasn't been forceful enough with this. They, that's, that's what people want to hear. And when I say people, I mean not just Republicans. I mean even the swing voters. This is what they want because nobody likes it. their city that they can't go there because it's full of violence and a lot of this being senseless and Kenosha, Wisconsin is not a major city. So people seeing this happen there, they're like, what the hell? This can really happen anywhere. So now people are thinking, Hey, the next time a video comes out, if it's a police officer that happens to be in my city, then my city's going to burn and, and the Democrats are going to stand down and do nothing because they they'll they'll feel like it's justified and we don't like that we're not going to vote for people like this we're not going to vote for leaders that won't protect our city and that's a good point you should not vote for leaders who will not protect your city because that is their responsibility it's not it's not oh it's okay to burn the city if you've got a good reason to burn the city it's never okay to burn the city it is never okay to loot it is never okay to riot it is never okay to beat random people up on the streets or throw things at police officers it's never okay to do that no matter how outrageous of a thing has occurred that was done by the police or, or what kind of decision you don't like or what, what kind of policy you don't like. You just can't do these things. Otherwise, you don't have a civilized society. Otherwise, you don't have a uh, any kind of rule of law 
and then that descends into disaster. You look at you look at any country where there's no rule of law, and tell me what it's like there. Tell me if it's the country you'd want to live in. It's a uh, you you see tons of people killed. You see genocides. You see all kinds of things because uh, people can basically do what they want, and it degenerates into absolute disaster. And so they, you can't have that. So you've either got to have laws that we will abide by and that will be enforced to keep everybody safe no matter what. Not Well, we'll make an exception if it's for a good reason. No. Laws that keep everybody safe need to always be in place and always enforced at all times. Not lifted if, if you think everybody's pissed off enough or if a community's pissed off enough, then let them, let them do it. No. And that's, that's been a big flaw. It should just be, if this wasn't okay a few months ago, if you couldn't, uh, if you weren't allowed to go burn down a building uh, in in March, you shouldn't be allowed to go build burn down a building today just because you're mad about something a police officer did. It's either okay or it's not okay. If you couldn't smash the window of a Target and just take things out and walk home with it, if you couldn't do that in March, you shouldn't be able to do that today. And that's that's people lose sight of that, and I don't care what the cause is. And that's uh, and so if the Democrats continue, either making excuses for it or avoiding the topic, then Biden will lose, Trump will win, and they're going to scratch their heads at the end and say, what the hell happened? How did Trump get away with this again? How did he win again? He was way behind. A lot of people didn't like him. How did he do it? Maybe and he might get even more outrageous knowing he can't get another term after his second term, so he can do whatever he wants. Right. I, I'm wondering about that, but it's... The Democrats are doing this to themselves. They're, they're throwing away a lead by taking a stupid position. And, uh, like, really, if Biden just came out and said very strongly that this is bad, anyone who does this, these are criminal acts, that uh, under his administration, anything that goes on like this will not be tolerated, that these people will be arrested and prosecuted, that uh, he will not let cities burn, that he's not going to – like, if he put out a strong statement like that – People on the left would be pissed at him, but they'd probably they'd vote for him anyway because they were not going to vote for Trump. But the people in the middle would go, oh, okay, all right, good. Our, our main concern about Democrats has been alleviated because uh, the guy running for president on the Democratic side is very much for not allowing our cities to burn and for putting an end to these riots. He's not going to tolerate it. Okay, my only worry is gone, aside from the fact that he seems senile. So we're going to vote for him. But he's not doing that, and he won't do it. He's afraid to do it. So that's that's a huge vulnerability that they have that that has occurred over there on, on the Democratic side. It's a huge strategic error, and now that has made me believe that they may actually lose this. That's a, that's a, a big big strategic mistake. Isn't isn't Biden? Doesn't I mean I've seen a lot of parody videos that he's pretty touchy feely with young kids. Oh yeah yeah he's he's got, <laughs> he's got some weird issues. He he definitely likes. Like with women and young girls, both, he does this weird thing where he sniffs their hair and, and, and puts his arms around them. It's very strange. Like it's a, it's like this weird, creepy habit he developed that nobody called out until he was running for president this time around. And then even when it was called out, he continued doing it until finally his advisor was like, no, you got to stop if you want to have a chance. You yeah, just... <laughs> he, he'll be, he would put both his hands on like a young girl's shoulder, kind of like in a photo op, holding her in place, and they're totally uncomfortable. And then he puts his nose like right in her ear it's or something. It's a very weird and thing. It's a very it weird thing. It is weird. It's... Uh, be- before I go, did you see um, – I sent you the thing in the um, the chat there. Uh, the Skype chat. Oh, the, the free Mike, throw thing with Mike McDonald. The free throw yeah. thing, yeah. And then Nick Schumann got all bent out of shape or something. There was some Twitter war. 
Yeah, I saw something. I'll quickly scan this. I, I saw a little bit of it on Twitter, but uh, every time I saw it, I was busy doing something else. But I'm gonna—I'll take a quick look at that yeah. during the show, and I'll, I'll cover it. Okay. Well, thanks okay. for calling in. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. I want to talk about the Antonio thing that happened because this is a pretty interesting story. I actually meant to do this earlier in the show, but hey, at least it provides some interesting material for later on in the show when often the less newsworthy stuff is covered. But this is actually one of the bigger stories of the week regarding what happened, and this is really blowing up in the poker world. The story just came out today, and it's something that is getting a lot of play in the Las Vegas media because of Antonio Esfandiari being a pretty prominent person in Las Vegas because of his poker prominence. He's best known for the one-drop win of $18 million from a $1 million buy-in. He didn't have 100% of himself. I don't know how much he had, but he won that, I believe, in 2012. And that's one of the biggest single tournament caches of all time. Again, I don't know how much he kept of it, but uh, he did cash $18 million in one tournament, which is pretty crazy. Anyway... Here is what occurred, and this was covered in the Las Vegas Review-Journal and elsewhere. Antonio Esfandiari had a very large sum of money stolen from him by someone who had been staying with him and his dad. One million dollars. Svetlana Silva, 46, not a young woman. 46 years old, a former dealer from Arizona. This is not a drug dealer, but a poker dealer. She stole, allegedly, one million bucks from the condo where Antonio lives in Panorama Towers, which is one of the condo complexes that's known to house a number of high-stakes poker pros. So what happened was that Antonio and his father, whose name is uh, Bejan Esfandiari, called the police on July 14th. So this this happened a month and a half ago. We're just hearing about this now. On July 14th, they called the police to report that they had returned to their condominium at Pandarabba Towers and a lot of valuables were missing from their safe. The missing valuables were 150K in cash, Three hundred to 500000 in poker chips, because a lot of poker pros who play at high stakes will just take chips back home. And you may ask, why do they do that? Well, for two reasons. First of all, whenever you cash out over $10,000, you have to fill out those uh, CTR, the Currency Transaction Report forms. And a lot of poker pros don't want to do a ton of that and get a lot of IRS attention. Even if they're not doing anything wrong and they're reporting their taxes, honestly, they just don't want to have tons of those sent to the IRS and make it kind of look like they're money launderers. Uh, Also, it's a pain in the ass to buy into high-stakes games because, again, when you buy in for 10K or more, then you have to fill out that as well. So if you're routinely buying in for more than 10K, it is a good idea to keep those chips so this way you don't have to keep filling out those forms. And you actually are allowed to just keep the chips. Uh, You're not required to uh, convert them to cash. 
Uh, you cannot do what's called structuring, which means you can't just go to one cashier for 9000 the next cashier for 9000 come back a few hours later and do 9000 or even split this up among a number of days. You can't do that. That's called structuring. That's a crime. It's a federal crime. But uh, as far as just keeping chips, if you're not converting them to cash, then that is not illegal. So that's what a lot of uh, poker pros do. So he, he had uh, three hundred dollars to $500,000 in poker chips. I don't know why it's such a wide range. Uh, a Diamond bracelet, a platinum diamond bracelet valued at 350000 I don't know if that's uh, – I don't think that's any kind of World Series bracelet or anything. I think it's just a regular bracelet. A, an expensive watch valued at uh, 35000 Another somewhat expensive watch, a Cartier for $6,000. Uh, another watch which is not quite as expensive, a Gucci watch for 2000 And the uh, And then also another watch, a Patek – Philip watch, which is valued at $7,000. Also, a gold suitcase. He actually has a gold suitcase. Come on now, Antonio. I know you won $18 million, but a gold suitcase? <laughs> taking it too far. You're just asking to get robbed with a gold suitcase. The 35000 watch, by the way, in case you're wondering, was a uh, Hublot Aerofusion watch. I don't know these really expensive watches. Some people have asked me, what watch do you wear, given that I've won a, a lot of money over time playing poker? Not $18 million, but since I've won over time, do I have an expensive watch? Answer is no. I've had the same watch for like 15 years, and it wasn't an incredibly expensive one. It's, it's one that uh, is substantially less than $1,000. Let's just say that. Antonio Esfandieri has cashed $27 million over the years, but the big one was that 18.3 million victory in the one drop eight years ago. Now, what about this Svetlana Silva person? Well, this is where Antonio's dad figures into this. Silva lived with Bejan Esfandiari, Antonio's father, quote, on and off for several months, and she had been left alone in the condo on several occasions. The problem was that uh, when Silva would be over there, when Svetlana Silva would be over with Bijan, she said she asked him, hey, can I use your iPhone? Can I use your iPad? And he'd say, sure. Then she'd pick it up and he'd say, she'd say, oh, what's the password? And he gave her the password. I guess he figured that it was safe because uh, you know, they lived together on and off. They had been dating for a while. So he trusted her and gave her these passwords. He unfortunately set the same or very similar passcode on his bedroom door. I guess his bedroom door must have had a passcode and his safe. So apparently the last few digits were, had a small variation to it, but it was very similar to the ones that were on the iPhone and the iPad. So she figured out by trying a few times what the correct password was for the bedroom door and for the safe possible she even saw him entering it before from a distance and noticed it was very similar just figured if she banged out a few other digits at the end she'll get it right after a number of tries and apparently she did so Svetlana Silva was cooperative according to police and confirmed that she was living with Bejan but that in March she had moved out and she claimed that she had returned Bejan's key to him but that she still occasionally comes to Las Vegas to stay with him on brief visits. Uh, however, the uh, this is where uh, 
the recent part comes in. Remember, this theft happened a month and a half ago. I, I'm guessing they suspected Svetlana, but uh, they didn't have proof. They just noticed it was gone from the safe, and they thought about who had access to it. But on Saturday, this past Saturday, so we're talking about only six days ago, on uh, the 22nd, Antonio called the police and told them he heard from somebody else that Svetlana Silva had shown up to a poker game, a private poker game in the city of Las Vegas, and that that she started off with $5,000, chunked it off, pulled out another $20,000, continued playing, chunked it off, and bought in for $30,000 and chunked it off. She probably wasn't very good. So she, she would have been better off if it was Antonio playing, I have a feeling. But uh, 55000 she shot off there, and so the host of the game, remember it's a private game, is kind of thinking, oh, I don't know, she doesn't quite, I don't know, if you know, where'd this woman get this money? I've never seen her before. Like They, they didn't know who she was, but you know, if someone just shows up out of nowhere and, and drops 55000 you don't know who they are. It's a middle-aged woman. You're like, okay, what's the story here? So it's not necessarily something criminal, but you can start to suspect. So... After losing, she was out of cash and left. So she would have done more, but she brought 55K of there and shot it off, and that was that. So then uh, she was, quote, driven to a Las Vegas apartment where she retrieved a handheld safe. This is not the safe that was in uh, Antonio's condo. She had her own safe. And then she returned to the poker game with $100,000 in Aria chips. So people accepted those, which, which I'm surprised because a lot of times when people have big chips – and you don't know who they are, and you don't know if you can trust them, they're stolen. That's, I would never accept. Not only that, you, you can't use these to trade with people. Nolan Dalla famously got a $5,000 MGM chip confiscated when he admitted to the cage. I don't know why he did this. He's a Vegas veteran. He admitted to the cage that a friend who owed him money gave it to him, which was the truth, but uh, Nolan didn't realize by saying that that gave the casino the right to confiscate the chip, and they did. This was like 13 years ago when this happened, but... Uh, Anyway, you can't use the chips as a substitute for cash except within the casino. And even there, you can't, uh, you can't even use it to pay for things. Like you can't go to the gift shop and use chips. You have to use uh, cash or, or, or charge to do that. So she pulled out 100000 in, in Aria chips, but I guess they accepted them at this private game. So she shot that off, <laughs> and she pulled out another 200000 in Bellagio chips. So finally she won. Finally the fish got lucky. She won and asked to be cashed out. And they did cash her out. Well, another player cashed out, and they were paid with a combination of cash and the chip she had brought to the game. And uh, I wouldn't want that either because you have the same situation that Nolan Dalla had. You can't, you can't just show up. I mean, like, If you're a frequent high-stakes player at Aria or Bellagio, they're not going to question it. But if you don't play much there and try to show up with a 25K chip or several 25K chips, they're going to really give you a hard time. Even several 5K chips, they're going to give you a hard time. But maybe these are regular players of these rooms and they can get away with it because they, it won't be known if these are their own chips or the ones that they got from uh, Silva. Anyway, this person apparently was okay to be paid by these chips, but uh, Silva wasn't okay with it. Silva called up and asked if she could buy back her Aria chips. And so she texted the man saying, hey, forgot to tell you, my chips had a special mark on the computer. So if it's stolen, they can't cash out. And uh, she went on to say that this person will have a problem cashing out. They try to bring this to the Aria 
that the RA is going to refuse it and confiscate them, which isn't true, by the way, but she tried to claim that uh, this is what's going on. Uh, in reality, she was afraid that uh, these chips were reported stolen, and that's what the, quote, special mark was. She was she probably having second thoughts about cashing the chips. She probably thought that uh, she used them out of desperation and then won some money back, and it's like, oh, shit, you know what? I better buy back the chips or otherwise this guy may try to go cash them out. He may be arrested. He may say where he got them and then it's going to be traced to me and they're going to take everything. So she was basically, I think she was probably willing to let these chips go and not ever cash them. So uh, she was already a suspect because she was one who had access, but they could never prove it. But uh, since she showed up at that poker game, it became pretty obvious that she was the one who had stolen them. And then uh, they arrested her actually at the Aria in the parking garage. They said Sylvia had a, Silva had a possession in her possession that was found during a search incident to arrest 25K pink Bellagio chips and tw- several 25K red Aria chips in her purse along with large amounts of cash. So I don't know. Maybe she was going to try. Uh, like, I, I don't know why she wanted to get those chips back. In a way, you think it'd be good for her that someone else got them. But maybe she still wasn't sure if she was going to cash those in or not. But then she went to Arya anyway. I don't know. She she was probably going all over the place because she has these valuable chips, but then she's a little afraid to cash them. And then maybe maybe she's thinking that it's okay to cash them. Or maybe she's going to try to ask some other poker player to cash. I don't, I don't know what she's going to do. Anyway, they read her Miranda rights, but then she talked anyway. And she told police that she had an additional $25,000 of poker chips from the Bellagio and Aria in her car. And she changed her story, claiming that uh, she had walked in on a random guy in the Esfandiari's condo and saw the same guy going down the elevator with their stuff, but that she just, for some reason, never told them. (laughs) And uh, her ex-husband was interviewed for some reason, and apparently the ex-husband said that she had told him that she took about $200,000 of her cash and chips from the Esfandiaris, that she admitted to him she stole it, but it was actually her money. Like she, she didn't say, hey, I stole this from Antonio. It was like, oh, uh, I was keeping a 200 k of mine in their safe, so I went in to get it. A manager of the Bellagio said that on August 11th, she was there on property in the poker room playing with, quote, big amounts of cash. Boy, I wish I was in that game. <laughs> she has been bailed out of jail. I don't know who bailed her out. And they actually have not yet filed a criminal complaint in this case. I'm sure this is coming. But uh, there is a case scheduled for October in Las Vegas court. Ant- Antonio has not commented. So that's in the news, okay? A kind of interesting story. But uh, let's, let's break this down. What happened here? Let's think about this. Who is this woman? Like, what was her relationship with the father? How did she meet the father? Why was the father so stupid to give her a password that's so similar to his door and his safe? And what happened here? Well, I can't give you all those answers, but I can come up with some theories based upon some things I personally witnessed 13 years ago in 2007 or thereabouts. So Antonio used to have, I don't know if he still he still has, but he used to have and had them for several years, parties. He had these infamous parties in Las Vegas, which 
a lot of the poker world eventually got to know about, but it wasn't super well known. If you ask the average poker pro from that time, they may or may not have known about the parties, or maybe they forgot them. But they were memorable to me, especially for a reason I'm going to get into. I was never directly invited to the parties simply because I didn't know Antonio. I did know Phil Locke somewhat. We weren't close friends, but we got along. But I was never close enough to anyone there to invite me. But someone I knew at the time got invited to the party, and uh, then I was kind of invited uh, peripherally. So I was invited to the party myself. However, I just didn't have an interest to go, so I told the person that even though I was invited, that uh, I probably wasn't going to come. I said, don't say I'm not coming, but uh, I'm probably not coming. Just uh, if they ask, tell them it's up in the air, I'm busy, we'll see if I can make it. In reality, I just didn't feel like going. Like I just, uh, It just didn't appeal to me. I just wasn't into that whole scene of going and partying with poker pros. Like you, you'd think it would sound exciting and cool, I, just, I, was, I wasn't there for that. I wasn't in Vegas for that. And that didn't appeal to me. That was one aspect of, of Vegas and the poker scene. It just didn't appeal to me. I didn't want to be part of the, the poker cool crowd. I mentioned this last week. I, I didn't want to go to these parties. And even when invited, I, I either reluctantly went or just made excuses and didn't go. And it's not any kind of social anxiety. I don't even have any kind of social anxiety. I really don't. And people who have met me will confirm that. I just some, I just don't like those sorts of things very much, unless I know a lot of the people there. I did go to some Vegas parties, but these were parties full of a lot of people I knew from the forum or, or something else where there'd be a lot of people I could relate to. But it's just a, a party of a bunch of randoms from poker, even well-known randoms, like just people who I don't know well. It doesn't really appeal to me much. I'm not one who thinks, oh, I'm at a party with all these big names in poker. To me, that was never exciting. So I had decided that night I'm not going to go. I occasionally toss it around in my head. Maybe I should go check it out. But I'm like, no, I, I, I'm not going to go. So this other person went. I was playing online poker, just sitting at home, and I got a phone call in the evening. Sometime after the party had started a few hours into it, I got a phone call that this person needed my help. That something bad has happened, they told me. That they're very worried. And then the phone cut. Scary, huh? They said they're at the party, something bad has happened, and they're scared, and then the phone cut. Well, now I had to go. <laughs> now I had to go see. I tried to call them back. They didn't answer. They were calling me on their cell phone. I had to see what the hell's going on there. I couldn't just leave this person hanging like that. I had to, now that they told me this, I had to go uh, make sure they were okay. So uh, they, they called me for a reason. So I jumped in my car and sped over there. I knew exactly where it was. Remember, they They've given all this information to me because I was invited to. And I ran into the party and I asked everybody where this person was. By the way, it was not my con. Some of you are thinking it's my con. It's not my con. I promise you that. But I ran in and I was asking, where's this person? Where's this person? And no one knew what I was talking about. Finally, I, I ran into some people there that knew who I was talking about but didn't know where they were. So I searched the entire place. Couldn't find anybody. Searched every room downstairs, outside. There was a lot of people there. It's very crowded. There's a lot of drinking going on. A lot of uh, other stuff going on. Couldn't find the person I was looking for. So I was worrying what happened to them. They called me. They said something bad is about to happen. Something bad has happened and they're scared. That's what it was. And then they disappeared and wouldn't answer their phone. And this is not someone who'd screw with me. This is someone who's serious. 
And they sounded kind of out of it when they called me, like very out of it. So I looked and there was a staircase and I said, oh, this is, this is Antonio's house and the party isn't really upstairs. Dare I go up the stairs anyway and look for this person? Dare I uh, violate Antonio's privacy in his home where he has invited me to attend his party? And I thought, yeah, I'll go do it. So I went up the stairs. <laughs> I figured at worst I'd tell them the truth, that there was someone who made a frantic call to me and said they were in trouble and I was trying to find him. So I went up the stairs and I saw a closed bedroom door. And I said, what do I do here? Do I dare open this? Well, I'll knock first. So I knocked first and nobody answered. I knocked again. Nobody answered. Do I dare open the door? I figured, why not? (laughs) So I opened the door. And I did not find the person I was searching for, but I did find someone else. I found Antonio's father, who even at the time, like 13 years ago, already looked pretty old. And he was sitting there with two hot girls. And these girls were not anywhere near his age, not anywhere close to his age. In fact, these girls uh, were probably younger than Antonio, who was late 20s at the time. Antonio is currently 41. And I looked and they weren't doing anything sexually and everybody had their clothes on, but they weren't just sitting there talking about the weather. Like there was a reason that Antonio's father was upstairs with the door closed with uh, two hot girls sitting next to him. They didn't really look like prostitutes either. I know some girls don't look like prostitutes who are, but I kind of wasn't getting the prostitute vibe from the whole thing. And it was just so baffling to me. So I'm thinking, okay, I know this is Antonio's father, and he looked like him. And I, 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 and I'd heard something about Antonio's father goes to the parties, so I figured that's who it was, and I was right, that's who it was. But I, I was like, I don't understand. Why are these girls with him? Like, why? I'd understand if they were with Antonio. But why, why, the, why the father? The father looks old. He wasn't like, you know, Antonio was like, what, 28 at the time. It's not like the dad was, was 55 and looked very good for 55 and you could see young girls being attracted to him if they're into that sort of thing. This was like an old looking man. He wasn't like super old, but he was like, he looked like an old man, okay? So I'm going, what are these two hot girls wanting with Antonio's father up in this room with the door closed? They weren't doing anything, at least not yet, but it was weird. So, I didn't have time to think about this other than noticing it was weird and wondering what was going on. I apologized and said, oops, I'm sorry, I'm looking for someone, and closed the door. I then saw another door that was closed. I knocked on that door. Nobody answered. I knocked again, and I heard a faint voice that was the person I was searching for. So I walked into the room, and it was completely pitch dark, and the person was on the floor. And I said, what is going on here? You scared me. I came down as fast as I could, and I couldn't find you. No one knew where you were. I'm glad I've located you. Is everything okay? And they said, no. I had one of Antonio's edibles, and it was much, much more potent than I thought it would be. This is a person who had smoked pot before, but didn't do edibles. I don't know if they ever had or if they rarely had done it. Whatever it was, they were very surprised at how potent it was. Now, apparently, and I, this comes from someone who's never smoked pot in his life and definitely never done those edibles before. So I, I just don't do recreational drugs and I never have. But 
I have seen it around me a lot. I've seen it used around. Like, I've seen drugs done around me. I just have not done it myself. And I've had no desire to do it myself. But I, I know more than the typical person who's never done drugs because I've been around it, especially being part of poker. So I was aware that edibles are much more potent than smoking pot, but a lot of people aren't, strangely enough. A lot of people think, okay, you know, I smoke pot plenty and everything's fine. So yeah, edibles, that seems cool. Let's try that. No, it's much, much more potent. And if you're not used to it, then it can get you sick. Well, that's what happened to this person. Antonio apparently had very, very strong edibles there. And a lot of people got sick at his parties, as I later found out. A person I spoke to later told me that they were taken away in an ambulance believing they were going to die and that they were screaming, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Now, this is not the person I came down to go see. This is someone who had been to a different party who talked to me about this a few months later. But that person actually was taken away in an ambulance screaming they're going to die. And this was not the type of person who was like a hypochondriac or a crazy person. This is usually a, like a very grounded person who completely freaked out on those edibles. So Antonio's edibles, I learned, had a pretty uh, nasty reputation. And he doesn't warn anybody. That's been the complaint about Antonio, that he just says, would you like this? You say yes. You take. You don't realize how strong it is. So that's that's a complaint I heard about Antonio, that he doesn't give you a warning in advance. I don't even think he's doing anything evil. I think Antonio just must be used to them. He doesn't realize how much. But you think after seeing all these people get sick, he'd say something. Anyway, this happened to this person. And this person had made their way up into one of the bedrooms, and I guess the light was bothering them too. So they went into one of the bedrooms, and not being able to stand the light and the sound anymore. I guess it's kind of like a migraine headache, but it wasn't a migraine headache. And they went in there as far as they could from the light and sound and just collapsed. They could not stand up. They couldn't do anything. So I said, I think I may have to take you to the hospital or call an ambulance. And they said, no, 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 I don't want that. I kind of have the feeling if I just lie here, it'll get better. Like, I don't know about that. So they said, no, I, I kind of wanted, I don't want to go in an ambulance and away to the hospital. So I was, I didn't know what to do. The room was hot. The AC was not on up there. I wasn't going to be, go as far as finding Antonio's thermostat and turning it on up there. Like I had already done enough by barging through his bedrooms without permission. So I didn't want to draw attention. I'm sure, I was sure if I went to Antonio and told him that what's going on, he would have told me to call the ambulance and get rid of this person. I'm not sure, but there's a chance he would have said that. So I decided just to go along with what this person wanted, and I agreed to sit with them until they were okay enough to leave. Now, So I sat there for like two hours, and keep in mind, this is in 07. There was no smartphones. I think they'd just been invented in 07, the iPhones. I didn't have one. So I really had nothing to do. I just sat there, and I had this very out-of-it person who could kind of barely talk to me. And I just sat in the dark and the heat in the summer, roasting in that room, Every so often leaving to grab a drink. And it's funny, it was like, I'd go down and someone would recognize me, go, hey, Todd. And they start talking to me, I go, I can't talk right now. Like, I, I kind of seem like a dick. Because anyone who tried to talk to me when I'd go down to like, get a cold drink would then, like, I kept running into people trying to make conversation with me. And I'd quickly blow them off and say, sorry, uh, I, I, I've got to go back up there. And I'd run off. Anyway, after two hours, I, I told the person, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I've either got to, call an ambulance and have you taken or you can come with me and I'll drive you home and then you can take a cab or whatever tomorrow to go get your car. So uh, 
they said, oh, okay, I think I might be able to stand up with your help. So I helped them stand up, and I helped them walk down the stairs, and uh, I got them in my car. And once they were successfully sitting in my car, a huge sense of relief passed over me because I knew this was over. And I, I drove them back, and then they flopped into their bed, and then I guess the next day they went and got their car and everything was fine. Uh, I later thought about this whole thing, and I had some questions. What was in the, you know, I knew what was in the edible. Like, like, why were the edibles so strong? Like, had this happened to other people? And what was the deal with Antonio's dad, totally unrelated to all this? Like, what, what, what's going on there with him? Like, he's at his son's party, which is all younger people. And keep in mind, you, you may say, well, you're not a younger person. Well, I was then. I was 35 then. Like, there there really were not many older people there. And he's, like, way older. So, like, what what was going on there? Why was the father at his son's party, which is kind of weird? Like, if you're going to have a party like that where everyone's uh, drinking heavily and doing edibles and whatever other drugs are going on there, and like, like, do you want your dad there? Usually don't, right? Like, you wouldn't. If you threw that type of party, you probably wouldn't have your dad there. But Antonio had his dad there, and apparently this was common. So I learned. So I, I asked around in the poker community. I didn't tell this whole story what had happened. But I just mentioned I had been to the party and that uh, I saw his dad there and that I saw some people having some bad reaction to edibles. And here's what I learned from discussing it with, with others after having witnessed this stuff myself. Number one. As I mentioned, the edibles are kind of infamous, and a number of people in poker got sick from them, and for some reason, Antonio never warned anybody before doing them. Now, I don't know of anybody that got uh, permanently damaged. I just know of people who got very, very sick at the moment, and some got kind of temporarily traumatized, like they thought they were going to die, and uh, some got taken away to the hospital. But eventually, everybody walked out and was fine, but uh, pretty bad experience, obviously. I, I just don't know why he wasn't warning people. But number two... I heard that his father was at every one of these parties, that these parties were fairly frequent, and that the father was like a hanger-on. The father was basically taking Antonio's sloppy seconds, whatever, not so much seconds, but more of his sloppy rejects. Whatever Antonio doesn't want, the father would take. Now, these girls that I saw with Antonio's father were very pretty. They were pretty and young. So when I say doesn't want, I'm not saying that uh, Antonio ships the ugly girls over to his dad. I'm saying that Antonio just kind of feels, okay, I had enough. I don't really need these girls, or I, for whatever reason, I, have, I don't have interest in them. And then says, okay, Dad, you can have them. Like, what a weird relationship to go. Like, you've, you're, you're a, a well-known poker pro. You've got a bunch of money. And you have these parties where people drink and do drugs. And your father attends every one of them. And then your father likes the hot chicks that come. I don't know where these girls were from or how Antonio knew them, but probably just the word gets around and they come. Uh, they, if Antonio doesn't want them, somehow the dad gets involved, somehow they're okay with it. Like, that's the weirdest part to me. Like, how how do the girls feel it's okay that Antonio just kind of pushes them onto his their, his old dad? And I'm like, okay, well, he's related to Antonio. It's, Antonio is half of him, so good enough. You know, he's, yeah, he's old, and he's not, he didn't uh, do anything. Uh, and he's just Antonio's dad. Yeah, okay, close enough. Like, I don't know what's going on there. So I figured it had to be about money in some way. And I don't know if Antonio's dad had money before Antonio played poker or if this is Antonio's money or what. And there's no mom around. I don't know if Antonio's mom is even alive or in the picture 
or what happened. Like, I've never seen any evidence of his mom. If you've seen Antonio's mom anywhere, you can let me know, but I've just, I never hear about him even having a mom. He obviously had a mom at one point, but I don't know what happened to his mom. But his dad, he spends a lot of time with, which is nice that he's close with his dad, but that's a weird relationship to have with your dad. It really is. I, I would not want to have that type of relationship with my dad if my dad was single. My dad's still married to my mom, so that's uh, that's never been an issue. But if he was not, I, I wouldn't be like, having parties and bringing him there and then you know, giving girls to him that I didn't want. It would feel really weird. <laughs> but anyway, and, and I wouldn't expect Benjamin would want that with me when he gets older. But that's what was going on there. Antonio really was like a groupie, or Antonio's dad, Bejan, was really a, a groupie of Antonio's, more like a hanger-on, not even such a groupie, the groupie were the girls, and he was like a hanger-on who then would get the girls Antonio didn't want. And I have to imagine money was involved in some way. Probably not directly, probably not like a prostitution thing, but probably like uh, that the girls understood that the old man's going to be generous with them. So I thought that was very weird, but I heard this from multiple people, and from what I saw in that bedroom, that's kind of the idea I got to, that this wasn't just them going up to get away from the noise and talk about the weather. There was some reason Antonio's dad is sitting there in the room with two hot girls, like 30-something years younger than him, and where they're like very close to him, and it really looks like he's looking for something to happen. And they seem totally fine with it. Keep in mind, there's like this big party going on downstairs, and they're up in that room with the door closed with his dad. It's so weird. So anyway, let's fast forward to 2020. This is 2007. Now you have an idea of those parties. Well, remember, this Svetlana Silva woman was dating Antonio's dad, and she was living with him, quote, on and off. She was a former poker dealer from Arizona. She is 46 years old. Now, 46 is not uh, incredibly young, obviously, that she's not a young woman like the ones I saw Antonio's dad with uh, 13 years ago. But let's think about this. The woman is still a lot younger than Antonio's dad. Antonio himself is 41. This Svetlana chick is 46. She's only five years older than Antonio. And obviously his dad is way above that if he's got a son who's 41. And let me tell you from seeing his dad uh, 13 years ago, the guy didn't look young then. The guy looked old 13 years ago, so he, I, I, I bet the guy's got, he's got to be over 70. He's really, I, I'd be shocked if he's not over 70 now. So when you're over 70, a 46-year-old is young. And 46-year-old women can still look decent. It's, it's not like this is some old woman. This is a 46-year-old woman. Uh, plenty of them are still pretty. I still uh, find a lot of 46-year-old women attractive. And... My girlfriend is that age, and I find her attractive. So it's uh, – and I'm not 70. You know, I'm, I'm around that age myself. So uh, probably because poker has changed and even Antonio's level of fame has changed and the interest in poker has changed, uh, and Antonio's dad is even older. So it's probably not as easy for him to get the 20-something-year-old's hanging with him now, but the 46-year-old was probably good enough. I saw her mugshot, and some people on the forum were making fun of how she looks, but if you ignore the fact that it's a mugshot, or, or not ignore, but consider the fact that it's a mugshot, and that everybody looks bad in mugshots, 
And you picture the same woman with makeup on and not in a mugshot and smiling instead of kind of frowning. I think that this is like as bad as she looks. She looks like it's like a typical bad mugshot picture. But if you picture what she would look like if she was not in a mugshot and putting some effort into her looks, uh, she probably wouldn't be bad looking. She wouldn't be like really hot, but she wouldn't be bad looking for 46. And especially for a guy over 70, uh, I, I could see where he'd find her attractive. She does have kind of a trashy look to her, but really, for, if you uh, like. You, you see the picture of this woman, and, and she's kind of looking downwards and has a sullen look on her face, and she's, she is 46, so you can look and go, oh, gross. But, you know, if, honestly, if I, totally, if she was smiling and had makeup on and everything, yeah, I could totally see how she'd be, uh, she'd look pretty good for 46. So, obviously, Antonio's dad, this is what he can get now, like a decent-looking 46-year-old. I don't know how he got to know her, but she has some association with poker because she was a dealer. So maybe, maybe Antonio went to Arizona to play. Maybe she was visiting Vegas, and whatever it was, she fell in with the Esfandiaris, and the dad showed an interest, and she figured she'll use the dad for money. And clearly, the dad was probably, uh, I don't know if supporting her, but probably being generous with her. Uh, I don't think that Antonio's dad was getting all these women because of his sparkling personality. I don't think these young girls would meet him. And go, oh, Antonio's dad, you're so interesting, you're you're so attractive. Oh, you know, I don't care if you're an old man. I'm totally into you. Like, there's no way. It, it had to be about money. The the age difference from what I saw 13 years ago was too great. These girls were hot. They didn't need to date an old man. They they could have found an interesting, cool guy their own age, or even one a little bit older. They they didn't need to date an old man to look like an old man. So whenever you see a young hot girl, I'm not talking about this Svetlana who's 46, like a young hot girl who is dating a guy who actually looks like an old man, then it's just about always a money thing. Because why wouldn't it be? Even women who like older guys, uh, they usually, uh, you know, they can get somewhat older and, and have it not be about money. But but once the guy looks like an old man, then it, it usually is about money. Once in a while it's not, but the vast majority of times it is. Like you go to the Cosmo, you see these guys who, who are old, like much older than me, walking around with really hot 25-year-olds. Like, you know, you know it's, it's about money. You know 100% it's about money. You see them. In fact, the, these guys go to the Cosmo to kind of show them off. <laughs> so uh, she was clearly using it for money, and Antonio's dad was used to it. I don't know if he uses Antonio's money. It's possible that Antonio is close enough to his dad to where he lets his dad share his money and use this to get hot chicks or whatever chicks he can get. I would, definitely wouldn't call this Svetlana a hot chick, but yeah, she's take away the mugshot thing. She's a decent looking chick in her mid forties. So, like, I I could uh, picture maybe Antonio just really loves his dad and uh, just you know, wants to help him out. And so, if if his dad used to, needs to spend some of his money to get these type of girls, maybe Antonio's okay with it. I don't know. Maybe his dad has his own money from the past. Maybe his dad was already rich and didn't need Antonio's money. Who knows? But anyway, this woman realized that uh, she could get into that safe and the temptation was too great. This probably wasn't premeditated. She probably didn't think, oh, I can't wait for the moment I can steal it from this guy. She probably was just happy that this guy uh, was willing to pay for things with her. She was willing to be with an old guy 
in order to get that. And then uh, they probably had an on and off type thing. And maybe she'd come visit whenever she needed money. I don't know. And uh, then one day she probably realized it, that she, maybe she realized that when she saw him enter the bedroom, the bedroom may have been a downfall, having the lock on his bedroom door. That may have been his downfall because maybe he's obviously you're, you're going in and out of the bedroom a lot when you're home, but you're not going in and out of your safe very often. So, and if you are, it's probably in a closet. It's kind of hard to see someone's combination they're typing in unless you're right behind them and looking suspicious. But probably she's just hanging out with Antonio's dad and his dad needs to go in the bedroom for something or is going to sleep, whatever it is. And he hits the passcode and she sees it over and over and notices it's a similar passcode to what uh, is being entered on the iPad and the iPhone, which she, which he willingly gave her. And she's like, I, I, I see it's not identical, but it's, yeah, it's like the last two digits are different. I'll just try it a hundred times and I'll get it. So she, she did. And then she got in there and she knew there's a safe in there. She's like, hmm, I wonder if he was dumb enough to put the same passcode on the safe. <laughs> and, she, and then he did, she did it and it works. So, Maybe it was the same one as the door. Maybe he felt that's all he needs is the same passcode on both. Or maybe he thought that by separating them by like five digits, it's fine, which is kind of laughable. So whatever it was, she got into it. And then the temptation was too great. She stole it. She ran off. And she probably knew she'd be a suspect, but maybe she thought they'd have no proof. And also, as I've said many times before, a lot of times criminals are stupid. So a lot of times criminals just have no exit strategy. They don't think about they'll be the prime suspect. They don't really go through great effort to cover up their crime or to avoid being caught after the fact, like when you've stolen something like casino chips, instead of going through a sophisticated scheme to slowly get rid of them, you, you stupidly go bring them yourself or go buy into local poker games with them where other people win them from you, and then you think, oh, crap, now I need to buy them back. I mean, th- these are not actions of a smart and clever criminal. This is someone who found it as a crime of opportunity and did it. And then was kind of reckless with how she behaved afterwards. And in fact, the whole thing was reckless because it's not like a ton of people had access to that safe. And if it was clear there was no forced entry into the place, then there's only one of uh, very few people who could have done it. So there's a decent chance she would have been caught eventually. I'm surprised it took this long. I'm surprised they couldn't get a search warrant for her place in the month and a half that have taken place since then. Especially because time's of the essence here. And as you saw, she's already shot this off in poker games. It's also so funny that she went and took this to play high stakes poker. Now, maybe this was a, a bad attempt to money to launder the money. Maybe she thought if she bought in with this and then uh, she could launder it, maybe even the plan was to do something like this, was to use the chips to buy in, then win a bunch of money, then that money's legitimate that she won, and then she'll just never cash out the chips. Or maybe she'll use them again in the future, but, but whatever it is, she'll always buy them back if someone else wins them. And that uh, she's using them in the meantime to get the money. I don't know. I don't understand what the plan was. It looks like there wasn't much of a plan. It looks like it was kind of haphazard. But it looks like just about 100% she was guilty. And I'm sure there will be charges against her. Antonio did talk to Poker News. He said, The string of emotions that jolted through my veins were filled with anger and pain. Realizing that my one-drop WSOP bracelet was no longer mine, a dagger to my heart. So, okay, so it was the bracelet. I didn't see that before. 
So I guess I guess it was the one drop bracelet. How come the Review Journal didn't mention? How could it not be mentioning that this World Series of Poker one drop bracelet was the bracelet that was stolen that's worth thirty five thousand dollars? Come on, <laughs> that's some pretty bad reporting that they don't mention in the journal that that was the bracelet. I'm like, does he really have just like a regular bracelet that has nothing to do with poker? Well, maybe so, because you think they would mention it. No, they didn't mention it. <laughs> that person must not have understood poker, what, what that bracelet meant. As soon as you see bracelet, you should understand what that is. Yeah, a platinum diamond bracelet valued at three, not 35000 350000 which makes sense. Those, those big event bracelets at the World Series are very expensive. I didn't even know it was platinum, but I know like there's tons of big diamonds on them. They're they're kind of gaudy, but they they're intentionally gaudy. Even my bracelet, which cost three thousand dollars for Caesars to manufacture at the time, is worth far more than that today by materials alone, by the diamonds in it and the gold, it is worth several times that three thousand now. Because these have both gone up a lot. Diamonds and gold plus inflation. So, it like I'm saying, it's not just inflation; it's it's both that and the actual value of diamond and gold has gone up a lot since 2005. So I'm sure the materials in it it's, it's got to be worth more than ten thousand, and that pales in comparison to these super gaudy bracelets that are uh, given for the big ones like the main event and the one drop. Though I'll tell you, if my bracelet looked like that, then I couldn't wear it. Not that I wear my bracelet everywhere. I only wear it to some big poker tournaments and only when it's not like pro heavy. I'll wear it to like World Series events where it's mostly amateurs or a lot of amateurs in the field. But I wouldn't wear it at all if it was like a super gaudy $350,000 bracelet. So I guess in a way it's good that my bracelet is not like that. I also have, in case you're wondering, my bracelet looks different than the ones you see today. Around 2006, they changed the style of bracelets. In fact, it was in 2006. At first, it looked more like a watch. And now it looks a little less like a watch, but it still has somewhat of that look. Where mine doesn't look anything like a watch. It really is like a a bracelet with a big gold piece on top. So it's, it's, it's a different look. You can tell they made it kind of like with a local jeweler. It's not as uh, it's not made by large companies with partnerships anymore. So in that, it's a little less professional. But I like it. I actually like the way mine looks better than the current bracelets. But enough about me. So that's what happened, and I think you can kind of put the pieces together based upon what I experienced with Antonio and his dad, and uh, what we're reading about here. Sometimes it helps to have. Past perspective. I wonder if they recovered the bracelet. That's not there either. Let me see if I can find a different article where that's mentioned. Because now I'm very curious if the bracelet went anywhere. I know Poker News doesn't care about that. Poker News usually does some quality reporting with these things. They're actually pretty good. The current group of reporters they have there do a pretty good job. So let's see here. The Poker News article, let's see if I can find anything about the bracelet. Yeah, this is written by Mo Nawara, who's usually a pretty good writer there. Uh, Antonio also said, but worse than all of that was knowing that somebody stole from my dad. He's the most special human on earth, and it killed me that someone would do something 
selfish to him. That was the real pain. The universe has a funny way with karma, and what goes around always finds a way to come around. Okay, so I don't see anything further about the bracelet. So maybe it's just still gone. I don't know if they recovered it or what. I'd love to see more about that. Why, why didn't they ask him about this? Why? <laughs> you know, Mo, you usually do a good job, but you you kind of dropped the ball by not asking, did he get the bracelet back? I really, It's going to bother me that I don't know this. The thing with his dad that he commented about how it kills him. He's the most special human on earth. Now, I believe he thinks that. I believe he really loves his dad, like more than a lot of people love their dad, because otherwise, why would he do all this for his dad? Like his dad's at every party. He obviously helps him get the girls. It's very possible that Antonio uh, is the one supplying the money. So like, he's very close to his dad. That's great. But and, and by the way, I, I forgot where it was. It wasn't there. See, this is where I'm, I've got a little bit of a memory lapse. I usually remember these things pretty well, but I've got a little bit of a memory lapse, and I'll tell you what the I'll tell you what the lapse is, and I, I don't know if I'll be able to rectify this, but there's there was some time when I had interaction with his dad and Antonio in a kind of setting like this, but which wasn't this one because this one I didn't have much time. This one I ran in, tried to find the person who called me, was frantically running around, walked in on his dad with those girls in the other room. And then went to the other room, and then the rest of the time I was just kind of watching this person until they were able to stand up, and uh, I was barely out other than to grab drinks. So I didn't, but I, I do have a memory of interacting with his dad, and he did seem like a nice, soft-spoken guy. And I, it definitely wasn't at that party. I must have seen them at some other party, maybe someone that some party that someone else was having. Uh, this was the only Antonio party that uh, I went to, so it couldn't have been that. But uh, it's possible I was at some other party where Antonio and his dad were at, and that's what I'm remembering also. So I will say his dad comes off as nice. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to be meeting women through money, if basically the main thing you have to offer them is you're going to pay for a lot of things, and you know they would not otherwise date you if it were not for that, then you're going to run into things like this. The women who will steal from you and use you and treat you in a in an unethical manner are going to be the women that are only with you for money. And also, they probably will never form an emotional bond with you, which makes it easier for them to do this. So not only does this behavior attract the bad women to you, but then also the women don't get to form much of an emotional bond. They see you as just a mark. So that's why these type of things will often happen to those who uh, get women who are looking for that. Because there's a lot of women would say, I don't care if you have money. You're an old guy. I'm just not attracted to that. I just want to, I'd like to date someone closer to my age. That's what most women, like most women in their mid forties are not going to date a guy over 70, just, just because of the age difference. They just uh, see over 70 as an old man and they don't see themselves as really old yet. In fact, there's a lot of people in their forties who kind of still remember themselves as the way they were in their 20s and 30s, even though they've changed, even though their looks have changed, they, they still feel somewhat the same as when they were in their 20s and 30s, and they're not ready to declare themselves part of the old people crowd yet. So they they don't want to start dating old men or old women. They want to stick to their age or younger. And I, I can understand that. That's That's kind of how I feel too. So women that uh, are willing to go way older like that 
especially when they're in their mid-40s, because then the guys... It's one thing when the girl's young and the guy's middle-aged, then that's a different matter. But when one person is already very old and the other one isn't, then a lot of times it's money-related, and then you attract some bad people. You may remember in the UK that much worse case where a 24-year-old woman... Uh, was she set up a guy in his 50s who was a poker pro, winning poker pro there. Apparently a very nice guy. And she tricked him into thinking she was interested in him. And in reality, she actually had a boyfriend who was in on the whole thing. And after she got the guy's trust and went back to his place, she left the door open for her, his, her boyfriend and his thug friends who came in and beat him to death and stole all his money. So that... What happens? You think if this guy was dating women his own age, this would have happened? No. It's not going to have 50-year-olds setting him up this way. It's possible, but it's not likely. And yes, this woman was 46, but uh, she was, again, she did this to someone much older. This was a relationship that wasn't likely to take place the way it was. And the truth is, a guy who was around 46 probably... If he's just using his money to attract women, he's probably not going to look for a 46-year-old. He's probably going to look for a 26-year-old. You look for the 46-year-olds when you're trying to attract them with money when you're 70. That's when you look for the 46-year-old, if, if it's about money. If it's not about money, then you you there's a good chance you look for someone your age if you want to have a relationship with someone or you want someone you think really is attracted to you. So if you're a guy who's 50 uh, and you don't want a woman using you, yeah, you probably look for a woman your own age and one you're attracted to and one you like and one you get along with and have things in common with and then you uh, you go from there. But if you're just looking for it to be like get the hottest girl possible, then you're probably going to go younger and, and use your money to do so if you don't mind having a relationship like that. All right. Let us move on to the next subject. In case anybody wants to call, 775 775- Fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five from the nine one six. Someone listening to the story about what happened in Lake Charles, Louisiana, with me in two thousand eight. Druff, I really wanted you to have sex with that girl in Texas. I could tell it wasn't going to happen, but I was hoping it would. Nope, it did not. Okay, from the seven seven three from earlier in the show. Speaks good English, LOL. I think that was in reference to what I was talking about, the statement that was written by GG Poker that I think uh, Negrani wrote for them. And then I got a spam text, of all things, from like a dateforme.amly.us and then some like referral-looking code. So some Something found this phone number probably on Twitter and decided to spam text me some stupid dating site that probably is a scam. That's nice. Thank you for that text as well. All right. Okay, so I want to tell you about the Ocean Casino versus Borgata situation. This one isn't getting that much play in the gambling media, though it did appear on APnews.com. It was an AP article. So it is getting some mainstream coverage. And it says that the top casino in Atlantic City, meaning the Borgata, is accusing... Ocean Casino of poaching a half dozen of its top marketing executives in an attempt to cripple it and also stealing 
its intellectual property about its best and most profitable customers. Now, this is more common than you think, by the way. So this goes on in the gaming industry. I, I wish I had Brandon on for this one, even though this is about AC, of which he's not an expert. This uh, is a subject he knows about in Las Vegas. But if you think about it, if you run a casino, what's the most valuable piece of intellectual property you can claim that you you have there? Aside from maybe like a rewards club that's innovative like Total Rewards was at one point. Aside from that, what's the most valuable piece of information you're holding? Well, it's nothing about the casino operations. I mean, everybody has slot machines. They're pretty much all the same. Everybody has blackjack and craps. Like any game you have out on the floor has to be approved by the gaming commission. So any gaming offering you're going to give is not going to be anything that unique. Yeah, you can put some different spins on it. Like you can have uh, dancing girls in bikinis on a table uh, that's that's next to where people are playing or do little things like that. But it, All the casinos, they're roughly the same in that way as far as the gaming element. So what is the big piece of intellectual property that can be stolen? And that would be the player list. The one thing that these rewards clubs are really meant to do is track people and encourage them to be tracked. If people feel like that every time they give their card, they're earning something, Then they will be tracked with everything they do, and then you can figure out how best to market to them and what their MDV is, and that is marketing daily value. Now, a lot of people know about ADT, which is average daily theoretical. Average daily theoretical is what they use to judge how valuable you are as a gambler. That is, if your luck was completely average, how much would you lose per day based on how much you've played? Because they don't want to consider luck because, remember, it's a numbers game there. It's a, a volume numbers game where they know the luck will average out because there's so much volume of play there. So if one guy gets lucky, another guy's getting unlucky. With the amount of play every casino has, especially a large casino, luck doesn't matter because it all evens out. What matters is the odds. And so what they're figuring out is according to the odds of our games and how long you play and how high you play, this is what you're expected to lose if you were to get exactly average luck. And that determines to them their value, the the value per day of what you'd be expected to lose. But that only tells part of the story. Most people think it's all about ADT based upon what comps they give you. But there's a number of other pieces to it. And one of those pieces is MDV, Marketing Daily Value. That goes one step further than ADT. That takes your ADT and then it also figures in how much they're spending on you in comps and other things they are giving to you, free play, comps, just anything that costs them money, they figure out what the real cost is to them, not what the retail value of it is. But uh, let's say they give you a hotel room. Well, they try to figure out what that hotel room is really costing the company. So if you're occupying just a standard hotel room on a Wednesday night, that's uh, when it's not going to fill up on a just normal Wednesday night. It's not costing them very much. Yeah, it's costing them a little bit of resources and, and a little bit of the maid's time and a little bit of the front desk time. But in general, that's just sitting there anyway, and it's probably not going to be occupied. If you're occupying a suite on New Year's Eve, you're costing it. You're costing them a fortune because someone else would have paid for that room in real money that they would have made that now they can't make because you are occupying the room. So. 
these things are all calculated by the computer and it's figured out that your worth to them is basically ADT minus marketing expenses, meaning things that they give you for free, whether it's mailed offers or whether it's comps the, ho- the hosts give you on the spot or free play, anything it is that you get from them, they have to subtract how much it costs them from the money that you're lo- expected to lose to them per day in gambling. So if, let's say you are you have a $300 ADT that every day you're expected to lose $300 if you run average. But they're also noticing that on average they're giving you $100 worth of comps. Then your MDV is $200. That means that when it's all said and done, every day you're there, they make $200 from you. That's what MDV is. So let's go back to the intellectual property. Imagine if you had a list, if you owned a casino, imagine if you had a list of all the biggest gamblers, the ones with the highest MDV. You just had a list of all of them. People who were willing and able to lose a lot of money in your casino and that even after all the comps, you're way ahead of them and expected to be way ahead of them. And in fact, it's very unlikely that you will not stay way ahead of them unless they get super lucky. Wouldn't that be a very, very valuable list you have? It's just handed to you. You just have a list of the right people to contact and make offers to. You just make contact with them, mail them. Hey, would you like to come down here? Maybe the host emails them. Maybe the host calls them and says, hey, how would you like to come to our casino? And we'll give you this, this, and that comp right up front. Why? Because you know that they're going to lose X amount of dollars per day. So somebody who averages a loss of $30,000 per day of course you can afford to offer some comps to him up front worth a few thousand bucks. Because if you count on the fact that he's going to shoot off 30000 a day, of course you can offer to give him uh, an equivalent of $4,000 of guaranteed cops up front. Now, yeah, he could screw you, but he probably won't. So that's very, very, very valuable information. And even those that are not whales, you still get to see who is worth what without having to go through the trouble of figuring it out for yourself because it's a pain in the ass for the casinos to evaluate new customers. So let's say a new customer comes in and loses a bunch of money one day. Well, does that mean he's going to lose a bunch of money the next time he comes in? Maybe the guy was just on a crazy gambling binge. Maybe it's an advantage player faking a big loss or making a big loss appear it happened by playing certain games I won't get into. But in reality, This is just a a ruse to get you to give him a lot of comps, and then he's going to bleed you dry with the comps and never gamble another penny. Maybe it's somebody who would like to keep gambling this much, but has chunked off all his money. Maybe that one trip was a trip where he spent his last dollar, and he can't gamble more because he's broke. Do you want to comp that guy at this point? Of course not. So when a guy walks in for the first time and gambles a lot, casinos don't know what to do. If they offer him too little, he's probably not coming back. If they offer him too much, perhaps he won't play and just take advantage of them and never gamble further. So they don't know what to do. So they've got to kind of figure it out, and that's uh, it's it's a kind of a weird process where they'll usually make you a smaller offer first, and then if you don't come in, they start sending you larger and larger up to a certain point, and then within about two to three months, you're getting the peak offers, and then they stay for a while. And then if you're looking to use the casino in this way, that's the time to show up and start using those offers and and just uh, and stiff them. 
which a lot of people do, by the way, sometimes intentionally. But even guys who are not doing this intentionally, it's very hard for the casinos to tell how much people intend to gamble going forward. And since they can't predict the future, that can be hard. But imagine if you had a list of someone who is reliably coming in at another casino and gambling a lot and losing a lot and coming right back and doing the same thing the next time. Wouldn't that be a nice list to have? Wouldn't that be a super valuable list to have? Well, what happens when an executive host or some kind of other marketing manager uh, quits his job and moves over to a different casino? He had contact with a lot of these people. What if he were to jot a lot of these down on a piece of paper or somehow copy files off his computer and bring them to his new job? Do you think this could help the other casino? And you think the other casino might be aware that he could help them this way and might offer to pay him extra knowing where he's coming from and that they'd like some of the best customers for there? And you might wonder, well, how could the casinos do this without getting in trouble? Well, the casino can claim not to have knowledge of it. A guy could come over while he works at one casino and go to the other and say, hey, I currently work at this casino, but I'm not very happy there, but... uh, I'd like to work here, and I think I'd be a really good host. And uh, from all my years of being a host, I have a lot of contacts, a lot of contacts of gamblers that I've gotten to know. Yeah, I can see if they'd like to come here. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. You can, If you have just knowledge that there's certain gamblers that uh, you just know and you have a relationship with them, you, you could let them know you've moved elsewhere. It's, it's a matter of you can't uh, bring records over nor can casinos uh, poach, intentionally poach customers from other casinos uh, by hiring their hosts and say, hey, bring your list over here. That part isn't legal. So this happens anyway because it's hard to prove, and there's a lot of ways it could be done to where it it's, it's, it's can be quasi-legal depending upon the way it goes. So this is what is being accused of Ocean by Borgata. Borgata is saying that the Ocean Resort, which, uh, to be honest, is struggling because uh, it took over for a property that failed, and it has been struggling. I've heard that they uh, just aren't doing that well over there. It was formerly the Revel, which uh, was a beautiful property that cost a ton of money to build and then went through a lot of different sales for a lot less than it cost to build and uh, changed hands a few times. And one problem there, despite how beautiful and modern the property is, is that it just was poorly designed as far as for gaming. And there's a belief that it just can't be profitable. As nice as it is, it just can't be profitable. It costs $2.4 billion to build, but it just the layout is in a way where it's, it's tough to be profitable, and it's very expensive. Some things, even if you get a good deal buying it, can be very expensive to run. And if something's going to cost more money to run than it will bring in, even if you get it for a dollar, it can be a problem because your cash flow will always be negative. So this was one concern about Ocean, that yeah, they, they bought it for a tiny fraction of the price of the $2.4 billion price tag to build it, and it was still pretty new, but what if it can't ever make money? So Ocean has struggled, as would be expected, And there's some belief that Ocean is now trying desperate measures to 
get things going again. And what they're trying to do is uh, hire former executives over at Borgata and get the whales from Borgata over to Ocean. So there's a lawsuit filed in Nevada, even though this is taking place in uh, Atlantic City. This lawsuit was filed in Nevada. And the Borgata says that Ocean Casino Resort hired six marketing executives despite non-competition agreements that bar at least two of the highest ranking ones from working for a competitor for a year after leaving. So that's interesting that uh, somehow they went to go work there, even though there were, there was a, a non-compete agreement, which, which is legal to do and exactly for this reason. Now, not that a year is a super long time. You you can wait a year and then do the same thing, but it is true that after a year, something's changed. So a guy who's a whale right now may not be a whale a year from now. If he shoots off all his money, Terrence Watanabe style. So, uh, there was a cell phone that apparently one of these people who moved over took from Borgata to Ocean that had a lot of that information. That information that was Borgata company private, so they claim, included these whales' personal cell phone numbers, gambling preferences, likes and dislikes, including favorite food and beverages, and... Uh, what the casino might be willing to do as far as cashback is that they'll do this for whales who they're pretty sure are going to lose. They'll say, if you lose, we'll give you 20% back, 30% back. In fact, uh, there's a gambler named Don Johnson who had a lot of money, not the actor, but a different Don Johnson, who exploited this in Atlantic City and made a lot of money by uh, getting these loss rebates and playing positive expectation and the one-two punch. He really, uh, even though there's a lot of variance to it, he really was playing a, a big time positive expectation game at extremely high stakes and they didn't catch on. So he made a lot of money doing that. Ocean would not comment. They said they don't discuss ongoing litigation, but uh, Borgata is basically saying you can't take a, a cell phone that you had with information from Borgata on it. Now, I don't know if this is a cell phone that was issued by Borgata or just this guy's personal cell phone where he loaded it with data from Borgata's system. See, it's one thing to say, oh, I remember this guy. I remember John Smith. He was a big whale. Now that I'm working at Ocean, I'm going to call John Smith just because of my knowledge in my brain that, uh, that John Smith is a big whale. That's harder to take action. But if someone has actually taken data on a mass number of customers and stored it in his phone to bring over to the new job, that's no longer using his brain of what he remembers about them. That's actually taking information from Borgata's database over to Ocean, which can be a big problem if this is what happened. The Borgata is still the most profitable casino there. It's the one that is doing the best and has been for a long time. However, the lawsuit claims that the Ocean is their biggest direct and primary competitor for high-level casino customers in Atlantic City. However, there's some who believe that's not even true, that the Hard Rock is actually the main competition for the Borgata at the moment, and that they're just stating this to make it look like uh, Ocean is the more direct competitor to make this look more dramatic. Not that this is okay, even if Ocean is not the number one competitor. But it's just they always will assert these things in lawsuits that are kind of subjective and hope that helps their case or hopes it look more, looks more egregious. The Revel was only operating for two years 
and it was losing money big time the whole way. It then was shut down for two years and opened in 2018 as the Ocean brand. A listener to this show has told me about his experiences with Ocean, and basically it's a fail. There's a lot of incompetence there, a lot of confusion. They, uh, they have a lot of operational fail, Caesar style. It was uh, six out of nine of the casinos in Atlantic City as far as total revenue in 2020 so far. And the Borgata makes three times as much money as they do. The lawsuit is mainly about two different employees who moved over. It's not entirely about this, but it's mainly about this. It's about uh, William Callahan and Kelly Ashman Burke. So if you've ever dealt with these uh, people over there at Borgata, they are uh, a big part of this whole thing. Borgata says that Callahan was hired in July 2020, but uh, he's the one that brought over all this information on that phone, which they also claim that Borgata owned. Okay, so that's, that answers that question there. Ocean says that uh, they're not going to allow either of those two to be interviewed. <laughs> they also said that Callahan really grabbed some whales and that they actually found some... Uh, some customers that were spending 1.5 to $4 million per visit. That's some ADT, isn't it? And that uh, he brought them over to Ocean with personal information on them that he got from Borgata on a phone that they owned. They said that uh, the customers that Callahan brought, uh, the information that he brought over to Ocean, that these customers were making $25 million a year for Borgata and now they're afraid that these are going to become Ocean customers. Ocean is also accused of hiring four other Borgata marketing executives. And they're saying that uh, they're trying to cripple Borgata's casino operation. The reason that this was filed in Nevada is because MGM is based in Nevada. And MGM is the, uh, I think it's like a part owner of Borgata. I don't think they're the full owner, but I think they're part owner. And they do claim, though, that the hiring violates New Jersey state law anyway, even though it was, fi- it was filed in Nevada. Strangely enough, it's about New Jersey state law. I could see a jurisdictional issue here because Ocean has nothing to do with Nevada as far as I know. And it's hard to claim that the injury occurred in Nevada since none of this had to do with Nevada at all. Even like the parent companies in Nevada, if this occurred to their branch in New Jersey and the company doing this to them was in New Jersey. That's kind of weird. I don't know why they would have filed this in Nevada. I could see a venue objection to this. Not that they can't refile. I'm not sure what the advantage is to filing in Nevada. I mean, I, I MGM obviously has attorneys that work from them work for them in New Jersey. It's not like they, they have the attorneys in uh, Nevada who only have license to practice there, so they they don't want to file in New Jersey. Now maybe it could be where the best attorneys that work for MGM are in Las Vegas and they'd prefer to have them handle the case and they can't because they're not licensed to practice in, in New Jersey. There's gotta be some reason they did Nevada. Interesting story though, interesting the battle between these two. So we'll see where this goes. And this is not widely covered at all in the gambling community. This is something that 
really is not being discussed very often. I am discussing it. So I'd like to. I scour the web for interesting stories for this show. It takes some time. I also get sent stories by people, and I appreciate that when people send me stories. I, I also like that, and thank you to all of those who send me stories. I appreciate it, even if I don't use it. I will often use it, if you notice. Well, here's a story nobody sent me. It's a story that I experienced on Bovada. It's not about a scandal. At least I don't think it is. But it's something that is interesting, and it's a crazy poker hand. I know poker hand histories can appear to be boring. I know nobody wants to hear about bad beats. I'm happy to tell you this was not a bad beat. I lost the hand, but I got out of it early, and I realized I was screwed and probably drawing dead, so it wasn't hard to make the fold. But the way the whole thing went down, I couldn't believe it. Now, this was at Limit Hold'em, which made it more interesting because if, if this hand happened at no limit, it would have been interesting, but there would have been all-ins pretty fast here. But here, I got to see the hand play out bet by bet and think, what the hell's going on? So, there was a four-handed game going, and all four people saw the flop, which doesn't happen all the time or a lot of the time, in these 30-60 limit hold'em games on Bovada. There's a lot of folding pre. So you, you can't fold as much as you do in a nine-handed game, or even a six-handed game, but it's not like you're playing every hand. So this was a little unusual, not super unusual, but a little unusual to have all four people, but it, it does happen several times per session, so it's not that unusual. It's just already right off the bat, you've got all four people out of four seeing the flop. In this hand, it ended up being capped pre. So this is what happened. Under the gun opened. The button, which acts right after under the gun because it's four-handed, three-bet. I am in the small blind with queen-jack off. Now, you may say, oh, you're going to fold. No. In a four-handed game, if there's open three-bet, and then you're in the small blind, needing to call two and a half more bets with queen-jack off, you've got to call. If you fold that, you're going to lose. You're going to get uh, ground down to nothing because it's you're going to get blinded off too much. You're 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 in the blinds half the time in a four-handed game. So if you do too much fold, and there's a lot of light three betting, obviously, because under the gun raised nine-handed, unless it's a maniac, usually means something. That usually means a very strong hand, and queen jack off is going to get crushed a lot of times. Under the gun raised four-handed, that could be a lot of things. Six seven suited is going to raise under the gun in, in a four-handed game. You know, six seven suited, king ten off could be three betting them. So your queen jack could definitely be live in a lot of ways, and there's there's ways it could it could make a straight, and so there's a there's a number of possibilities the queen jack can win. So under the gun raised, button three bet. I called the three bet. Well, to my chagrin, the big blind then capped it at four bets. Now once I see that, I'm not feeling dead, but I'm not loving my queen jack at this point. Everybody called, of course. So it's now four handed capped, and I have queen jack. Well, I did get maybe what I wanted. Queen, four, five, rainbow on the flop. So I could easily have the best hand here. There's a lot of light three betting, a lot of light capping. I do have everything beat except for a set. King, queen, ace, queen, kings, aces, or a small chance the other the, the last two queens in the deck, which would be a set. So it's basically uh, any of one of three sets, one of which I have a, a blocker card, the queen. Ace, queen, king, queen, kings, or aces, which a lot of times it's capped four-handed and nobody has that stuff. Could be ace-kings, ace-jacks, ace-ten suited. 
lower pocket pairs like sevens or eights, even lower pocket pairs than that. There's a lot of stuff going on. It could be like the opener could have had a, a suited connector. There's so many different things could be going on where the queen jack could easily be ahead here. So I'm actually semi-happy about this. I'm not thinking, okay, I've got this hand. I'm a little nervous with a four-way cap, but I, I'm thinking that uh, there, there's some encouragement seeing this flop. I'm, I have a feeling like maybe I'll win, maybe I'm not. I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this, but uh, I'm sort of happy with the flop. Not like I'd be with like Queen Jack something or, or Jack Jack or Queen or Queen Queen something, but I feel semi good. Anyway, when I didn't feel good was on the flop. So I checked the big blind bet under the gun called, then the button three bet. I go, what's going on here? I was trying to check raise. Now I don't know what I, now I don't know what to do. I'm thinking, thinking, do I go, do I fold this? I mean, it's hard to fold. I've seen this before where I fold and I'm sorry that nobody even has a better queen. So I decided I'm going to call this. And if there's a lot of action on the turn, I'm just going to let it go. So I, I called the three bets and then it gets capped behind me and I go, shit, I'm dead. But I, I also did this for information. I didn't want to get run off the best hand, but it was worth it to pay me, pay this. The pot's already getting big and I know it's going to be big. If I win it, it's going to be big. So I go, I've got to see here where everybody is. And and if if after all this, if the big blind's still capping it, then on a queen four five rainbow, even four handed, the queen jack is dead, and I can safely check fold the turn unless I improve. So he capped it. The rest of us called the last bet, and I thought, okay, if I do not get a jack or a queen on the turn, I'm gone. So the turn was another four. So now it's four five. Queen, four, I've got queen, jack. Not what I was looking for, check fold time. So I check. And remember, in limit hold'em, the betting round on the flop, it's uh, it's half of what it is on the turn. It's You're, you're basically betting multiples of, the, of 30, which is the big blind. Now on the turn, you're going to be betting multiples of 60. So I check, plan to check fold. Big blind bets, under the gun calls, button raises. Well, I'm, I'm done. I mean, I was going to be done for one bet. A bet, call, raise... Never mind. <laughs> Especially never mind. Now that's like, I was going to fold anyway, but now I feel really good about folding. So I toss it. So I, I put in $0 on the turn. I put in uh, $240 total in this hand, 120 pre-flop, 120 on the flop. Then I get to watch. So comes back to the big blind, who three bets. Well, guess what happens? Under the gun now caps it. What the hell? The button calls. We've got it now. Three-way cap on the turn, which I wasn't part of. I check folded, but uh, everybody else is part of it. Queen, four, five, four. Now, it doesn't take a genius here to see that uh, somebody has a set here, probably. Somebody probably has a four. Maybe somebody has aces and they're overplaying it. Whatever it is, Queen Jack was absolutely crushed, but what is going on here? But I figured they'll calm down the river. Someone will see on the river that they're probably not ahead and give up. Even if you got a four, you got to be not very happy at this point. So the river, the big blind checks, button calls, the big blind raises. So we have a check raise under the gun, three bets. Well, then it comes back to the button who looks like they're taking time to think. It's going tick, 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 tick. This person usually wasn't acting slow. So they're really thinking about this one. They've got to call two more bets and maybe see a cap, probably see a cap, and they call. So I go, wow, what is going on here? I didn't think this person on the button was bad. 
how are they not aware they're screwed? Like, maybe they have a four, maybe you know, maybe they have ace four or something and can't let it go. But come on, you see all this, you've got to believe that that someone's got a set here. I mean, you're just as hard as it is to fold between these two, with the the guy check raising the river after a capped turn, who wasn't playing unreasonably, and then he check raises the river <laughs> on, a, on a blank. It was a blank on the river, total blank, a deuce. Okay, so. Now he check raises the river, the big blind, after the cap turn, and uh, and then, then still it gets three bet. So I go, what could be going on here? Well, goes back to the uh, big blind, who caps it. The other two call, so now everything's been capped. It's been capped on every street. First four ways, then four ways, then I'm out, then three ways, then three ways. The pot size, thirty sixty limit hold'em, two thousand two hundred twenty dollars. The biggest pot I've ever seen at thirty sixty limit hold'em in my memory. Two thousand two hundred twenty dollars. I've never seen a pot of that size at thirty sixty limit hold'em. Which, given this limit hold'em, the pots can't get that huge. It's not like a thirty sixty no limit game. It's not even like a five ten no limit. This is a game where the the size of a pot in a four handed game. There's only so. This was almost as big as it could get. The only way it could have been bigger is if I was in there for the turn and river, also putting in $240 each. So the very biggest it could possibly be, if you have four-handed capped every street four ways, would be uh, $2,700. So the very biggest possible pot that could be would be $2,700, but it would just about never happen. Capped four ways uh, with all four players all the way. And we got to twenty two twenty. With capped four ways, four ways, three ways, three ways. So I thought, what could they have? Especially because a queen's missing. I had a queen. Well, the result, the winner had quad fours, second place, queens full. They did have the other queens. And third place, fives full. We were dealt pocket queens, pocket fours. Pocket fives, queen jack, and the frickin' flop was queen four five. And then the turn of four. Can you imagine? Queens, fours, and fives, and queen jack in a four-handed game, and then the board reads four, five, queen, four. Which meant, of the 12 cards that were out, there are 12 cards, right? Two in each, two in each of our hands, and... Four on the board. All four fours were out. All four queens were out. Three of the four fives were out. And the only card that was not a queen, five, or four was my jack. Isn't that amazing? Out of 12 cards dealt, all four queens, all four fours, three fives, and one jack. That's it. No other rank out there out of 12 cards. And they were dealt in a way to where three sets were flopped and top pair. So it's not even just like 1% queen five, 1% queen four. It was it actually landed to where everybody got a pocket pair except me, and I flopped top pair. This is incredibly, incredibly unusual. This is more than just set over set over set on the flop, which is super unusual in itself, set over set over set on the flop. Set over set over set is very unusual, but set over set over set on the flop is highly unusual. But this was set over set over set on the flop four-handed, where the fourth guy, me, had top pair, which, of course, is one of the cards in the sets, which makes it even more unlikely. 
Wow. Wow. I haven't calculated the odds of something like this occurring, but it's got to be tiny. Absolutely tiny. I've never seen a hand like this before. Even more unusual than the set than the flush over flush over flush on the flop that I experienced at the Rincon. This is even more unusual. So, I lost 240 bucks, but at least I came up with a story from it. The winner made $1558 after the $2 rake. And remember that guy I talked about who just always seems to win on there? The guy who just never runs bad? He was in the game. Do you think he was the guy with the four with the queens? With the top set full that lost? With a case queen that rolled off? You think he was the guy with the fives who couldn't bear to fold the hand? And I understand why. No, of course he was the one with the quad fours that spiked the four in the turn. Of course it was him, right? <laughs> like when I saw the three of them going at it, I said, I know who's going to win this. The guy just never runs bad. $1,558 profit in a single hand of four-handed 30-60 limit hold'em. Wow. The other two lost 660 in the hand. I lost 240. By the way, if you had a fourth player in it instead of me who just couldn't fold top pair, of which there are some in limit hold'em, there's some people in limit hold'em that cannot fold top pair, as long as no, no overcard ever comes over it. You really could have had a four-way cap where the person with a queen jack could just would have called down the whole way. Like a good player is not going to ever do that, but uh, you, there are people who aren't so good who would call that down all the way. I've seen worse called down all the way, four-handed capped. So because it was me, it, it ended on the flop. And honestly, I was considering folding the flop. It's just one of these things. I, I've, I've had it before where I fold a flop like that, and then it turns out that everybody's behind me. It's queen 10 against jacks against 10s, and you know, nobody can beat the queen jack. Guy I see shit like that. Or someone's got 6-7 suited, and they, they flop the straight draw, and they're trying to get cute with it, and then the other two have uh, pocket pairs or worse queens. It was just a, I, had to, I had to see the action on the flop. I had to come along for that flop, pay the $120, and then if it's too hot and heavy with... The, bet, the raising back and forth, then I know to check fold the turn, and I did. So I, was, uh, I wasn't I was even considering a call on the turn, even if it was just bet, call, call. At that point, I'm like, no. Once it got capped on the flop by the big blind, I knew I was dead. All right. I think we're moving on to the coronavirus, and then we'll be done. Every show, I think, is going to be faster, and not that long ends up being long. I mean, this is not going to be eight hours, I don't think, but... It is on the long side, and we haven't even done the coronavirus yet, which is our, our last topic. So, all right. A Reno man is the first person in the U.S. to have been verified to have caught the coronavirus not just once, but twice. So this is what happened. There's been long suspicion because there's been reports from Hong Kong and other countries going back a few months that it is possible to catch the coronavirus more than once. And there's been some debate about it. Some have said that this isn't what's really happening, that nobody's catching it twice. What's happening is the coronavirus goes dormant in some people and then pops back up. A similar way to look at it is uh, the way shingles work. Shingles is something you don't catch. Shingles is something that you caught a long time ago when you got the chicken pox. 
and then hangs around in your body often for decades before reappearing in a different form. The virus remains in your body, but is just suppressed and doesn't hurt you any. I had that occur 10 years ago where I got shingles, which uh, came over uh, 30 years after I had the chicken pox. I had the chicken pox in 1978. I had shingles in 2010. So this is not quite like that, but there's a belief that the coronavirus can kind of hang around in your body. There's a lot not known about it and how long it lasts there, but there have been people who've reported symptoms that persist for months and months, some of whom have constant symptoms, some of whom have constant symptoms, but they get worse and better, and some who have uh, symptoms that just never seem to improve. Most people, if they don't die from it, have a few weeks of bad symptoms and then get better, or they have mild or asymptomatic uh, situation going on where they, they never get that sick and then it goes away completely. Sometimes there's after effects like lung damage where people can't exercise very well anymore without getting winded very easily. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about damage that it does to your body. I'm talking about uh, the illness still being there. There's even some beliefs that those who test negative and then later test positive didn't catch it again, but simply uh, factors occurred where the virus went pretty much into remission, but just went to go hide. And then when it becomes active again, it, it triggered the test to be positive again. So basically they were never, never negative and the test just perceived it that way because the virus uh, kind of uh, moved to the background. So again, there's a lot not known about the coronavirus even at this point, but there was a lot of belief that the whole story of people getting it again within months is BS. Because remember, we're not talking about like the flu here, we're, we're talking about a year apart. The coronavirus has not been here for a year. In fact, it's only been here at most for eight months, maybe even less than that, it could have been only six or seven. So if someone has caught it twice already, that means in much less than a year, you can catch it twice and that already having it is not any kind of immunity, which would be terrible news. So they have proven for the first time that someone actually caught the coronavirus twice. They caught two different versions of COVID-19. COVID-19 has had a lot of mutations. The reason you're not seeing a panic about it is mutations sounds like something scary. It sounds like anything that mutates is going to be worse. But with viruses, they do the opposite. Viruses mutate to survive. They don't, they're not mutating to be evil. They're mutating to survive. And when they kill people, then they're not surviving as well because the people who die can't spread it around. Or the people who get really, really, really sick can't spread it around because they can't go anywhere. The best situation for a virus to spread is where people don't have symptoms and just walk around not knowing they have it, which is the case with coronavirus. It said that a lot of people spreading it are ones who have it and have not gotten sick yet, but are going to get sick, that they transmit it very heavily before the symptoms come on. And that's what's allowed to spread so much. So when viruses mutate, they want to be more like that. They want to be less like something like Ebola that hits you very hard and fast and kills a lot of people to where they don't get a chance to spread it to the mass population. Uh, the virus MERS, which happened in the 2000s, is another one like that, which had a much higher death rate than the coronavirus, but wasn't very spreadable because people got sick so quickly and were pretty much incapacitated so they couldn't go walk around society and give it to everybody. So going back to the mutations here, 
there have been verified mutations, but there hasn't been a lot of panic about them from the standpoint of killing people because the mutations seem to be bringing versions of it that are either lesser or equal to the existing coronavirus as far as the effects it has on the human body. But the remaining concern still is that this might prevent people from having immunity to it once they've already gone through it or once they've taken a vaccine for it. So the scary part of this is if you can catch it again, then there's really nothing we can do to keep the damn virus under control, that everyone's going to be a constant risk no matter whether they get it or get a vaccine. If you can just get it again, then there's no way to stop this. Well, a 25-year-old man from the Reno area is the first documented and verified case of COVID-19 reinfection in the United States. The way they determined this was by doing genetic tests and figuring out that he actually had two completely different versions of the coronavirus. He was first diagnosed with the virus in April. He had a sore throat, cough, headache, nausea, and diarrhea. And then he got better in late April, and he tested negative twice after that. About a month later, he started to feel sick again after feeling good. Now, keep in mind, he was 25, so he likely had, it looks like he had mild symptoms, even though it sounds bad. The guy basically had, kind of like, he felt sick, but he wasn't incapacitated. He had a cough, he had a headache, he was nauseous, he, he had diarrhea, but he wasn't just, like, laid up in bed for two weeks and could barely move, like what happens to a lot of people in their 40s and above. And that makes sense for being 25. So he had kind of a, a moderate version of it and then felt better, had no indication they were still there in any way for a month. And then on May 31st, he found he had a fever, a headache, dizziness, cough, nausea, and diarrhea, a lot of similar symptoms. Well, things got worse from there. He was one of the unlucky 25-year-olds who started to have breathing problems, which isn't common. If you're 25 and you get this, it's just not very common you get breathing problems. You can, but it just doesn't happen much. This happens much more to older people. People who are over 45 are the ones who more have to worry about the breathing problems coming. So they say, wow, this really looks a lot like COVID-19. You you tested positive for it a month ago, but the breathing problems part, that kind of looks like it's COVID. They tested, and lo and behold, despite the fact that he got over COVID a month ago, his test was positive. So then they examined genetic material and they had both what they collected back in April and what they collected in early June. And they found that these were two distinct viruses. This was not the same virus that was just making him feel crappy again. He actually recovered from one and then a different one infected him in the end of May. Both were COVID-19 but different versions of them. Earlier this week, Hong Kong said they found the first proven case over there. And this was a 33-year-old man. So the question becomes, how serious is this matter? If people can catch it again, then are we screwed? Do we just have to accept that coronavirus is going to be part of life, that eventually everybody's going to get it, and that People may have it multiple times that sometimes may be worse than others. Notice the second version he got was worse than the first. He actually had to be put on oxygen. He wasn't on a ventilator or anything, but he was on oxygen. He got, it got bad enough to where he couldn't breathe that well, and probably his uh, oxygen levels went down. 
And that, that's what they check. When you go in and say, I can't breathe well, they check your oxygen levels. And if they are not normal, they give you oxygen. And that's unfortunately the beginning of the spiral downward that sometimes will occur. Sometimes you'll recover and uh, everything will be fine. And sometimes this will, even with the oxygen they're giving you, it'll get worse and worse and you're going to die. So when you start seeing oxygen problems, when you've when you have COVID, that's very scary because that might mean you're on the way to being dead. That might mean in one to two weeks you're going to be gone. You, you don't know. Like, like how scary is that to know you have breathing problems and you don't know where it's going? It's bad enough to have breathing problems. So to say, well, I, I know the way it goes for some people and, and some of them are dead. A lot of them are dead. So this guy doesn't look like it went any further than that because this was back in early June. And it doesn't report that he died or he's on a ventilator, so it looks like he recovered. But it does look like he had two distinct coronavirus infections. Now, what about the Hong Kong guy? He fared better. He experienced symptoms. They don't say how severe during the first case. But then the second case, he actually was asymptomatic. I don't know how they even found this. Maybe they were just doing a follow-up test and found that he was positive again. So that is interesting that the second guy had symptoms the first time, but not the second time. The second guy, of course, is more encouraging that if you can catch it, maybe your body can handle it better, and that the second time you won't get symptoms at all. But the first guy got worse. Or maybe it's random. Maybe there's really no way to tell. Or maybe it's going to be split where around 50% get one way, 50% get another way. Maybe for a lot of people it's going to be the same as before. And does this mean that vaccines are useless? If within months, or in this case in the U.S., within one month, you can catch it again. Imagine you take a vaccine and you get the disease anyway a month later. So it's possible these vaccines are not going to be effective. However, there is a before you get too worried, there is a big question. How come with all the coronavirus cases we've had, how come in all these months, this is the first time this has been found in the U.S.? Now you could say, well, there's probably been some that have slipped by them or people who claim that they've gotten it again and they were dismissed as, oh, it's just the same thing. But this isn't that common. There aren't that many people who seem to get completely better and then it hits them again a month or two later. Like, there aren't that many like that. There's been some reports of this, but there aren't that many like that. So why isn't this happening on a mass scale if the thing is really mutating enough to where it can infect people again? So it is possible that this is a rare occurrence and that only certain people, for whatever reason, can get two versions of it. Maybe this is something that's a fluke depending upon the makeup of each person's body and the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the population simply can't have this happen. What if almost everybody can't get it a second time and only a few people can? That is not a tragedy. Sucks for those who can, but if... Almost everybody can't again. It doesn't become a public health crisis once uh, herd immunity has been developed. But maybe there is no herd immunity. So that's what can be scary with the coronavirus. There's a lot of things that still aren't known, a lot of unusual things that are happening with it. And if it really is mutating fast enough to where in a month it can reinfect somebody with a different form of the virus, that could be a problem. And I went back to what I said before, that this may be something we have to just accept as part of life. And it's just a, a new danger of being alive, that you may catch the coronavirus and it may either damage you or kill you, and you may get it a number of times in your life. Like, like what if we're sitting here 10 years from now and we look back as 2020 is when life on Earth changed and that just 
everybody can get the coronavirus. There's no vaccine that's effective against it because it mutates so fast that within a month you can get it again. Maybe they'll have some better treatment for it by then. But maybe this is just something you're going to keep getting. And there will be certain people whose bodies handle it better than others. And maybe there are certain older people that are going to have to be shielded away from the rest of the population because it'll kill a lot of them. Very weird. Okay, I want to move to the next topic here. Safe or unsafe? I compiled a list earlier. I actually did some pre-production for the show. I compiled a list earlier of what's safe and what's not safe for activities in your life regarding the coronavirus. Most of these things you've either done, considered doing, or at the very least saw other people do. But most of these things are ones you've probably thought about at some point doing yourself. A few of them, no, but most of them, yes. Some of these will be obvious. Some of these will be less obvious. And I can't prove any of these, but from everything I've read and from my own logic, I have come up with this list of what I feel is safe and what I feel isn't safe and what's kind of in the middle. I think this is important because there's a lot of people who misunderstand coronavirus danger all over the place and through the various political persuasions. We have those that just believe it's not dangerous, not a big deal. They don't, wear a ma- they don't need to wear a mask because they don't worry about infecting others. They don't care about getting it. They'll go into a lot of uh, closed environments and uh, not care, not be afraid. They just think they're healthy, they'll be fine. The people who are getting sick and dying are just people who are already very sick, which all isn't true. So there's those people. Then you have the other people who think if they just put on a mask, they'll be fine anywhere, which is dumb because the mask isn't even protecting you. It's the mask is protecting other people from you. But they think if they go somewhere and wash their hands and use Purell and wear a mask, they'll be fine. So everything's fine then. Then there are people who believe that you need to be cautious, cautious, cautious with everything, regardless of really thinking about what the true danger is. So they go out hiking, and even if they're going to barely encounter anybody on a wide open trail, they think, I better wear my mask because, you know, I, I gotta, I've got to stay safe. I've got to keep others safe. I'm going to wear a mask. So you have people all over the spectrum, some of whom are just doing ridiculous things that they don't need to do to stay safe, and others who are being reckless, and even others who think they know the formula to stay safe and are not understanding things like that the mask probably isn't helping you from staying safe, it's helping others. But I'm going to simply run down a list of things that I feel are either Safe, very safe, very safe is actually the top. Let me start at the top of the list. Very safe, safe, moderately safe, moderately dangerous, dangerous, or very dangerous. So it starts at the safest, very safe, and ends up at very dangerous, which is the most dangerous. So let's start with uh, outdoor type things. Hiking on a popular trail. Now that one may not be so obvious. I'm talking about a trail which, it's not wall-to-wall people, but it's where a lot of people are passing by, 
It's where the trail gets narrow and you're going to be a lot closer than six feet at various times. It's you're, you're going to run into a lot of people. It's not like being in huge crowds. I'm not talking about a trail where it's so crowded that you can barely move and everything's very slow. I'm talking about you're just encountering a lot of people. And at some point you're close to them. I actually feel that's moderately safe. It's definitely not what I'd call safe or very safe because you're close to people and they could breathe on you or they could cough on you, sneeze on you or talk and they can get you infected that way by just through talking. So when you come relatively close to anybody, whether indoors or outdoors, you're always taking a risk. And uh, there's likely to be a lot of people not wearing masks when they're hiking because it's uncomfortable and inconvenient to do so. And as I'll get to in the next example, it usually is safe to hike and a mask usually isn't necessary, to be honest. So a lot of people aren't wearing masks and they get close to you. And I can tell you from doing a lot of hiking myself this year during COVID that people don't get out of the way. Like I'm always the one to get out of the way. No one's removing out of my way. It's amazing. Every person I pass, even though I don't wear a mask when I hike. So I actually move out of their way. I'll like walk way up on the hill or something like at an inconvenient place to walk and stand in the bushes, stand on the bushes to get six feet away from people walking by. If I didn't, they just walk like right by me, which I think is stupid. So if I'm not doing it and if I'm doing it and nobody else is doing it, then when I'm not there, like nobody's doing it is my guess or very few. So overall, I would say it is moderately safe because you are outdoors and you're not constantly by people. You're passing them, but you're not next to them for very long. You're not doing a lot of talking or any talking. They're not doing a lot of talking or any talking. You're passing each other very quickly. So it's a lot of people, but you're outdoors, and there's not a lot of exposure to each individual. Hiking an unpopular trail, that is one where you're not going to run into many people, maybe no people, maybe a few people, very safe. Not just safe, but very safe. You don't need a mask for this. You may feel like you're making a statement by wearing a mask. You're not. You're just you're just overly cautious and wearing something that's uncomfortable. I hate hiking with a mask. It's, it gets in your waves. You're, you're breathing a lot heavier wearing, when you're hiking. It's, it's not like being at home or in a store. Here you're exerting yourself, and you're breathing back in your own carbon dioxide, which probably isn't even that healthy anyway. Like wearing a mask during exercise, I just don't think is very safe, and it's also uncomfortable. And if it's not accomplished anything, why do it? So I've been on hikes where people, I, I see the reverse, where people don't get out of my way, but I see they're wearing masks. And I go, come on. You know, like I don't say anything, but you don't need to do that. On a trail that there's not a lot of people, you should not wear a mask. You can if you want. It's not going to hurt anything. But I don't think it's necessary. And whatever inconvenience it's bringing you is really not making anyone any safer. Because, again, just move out of people's way if they don't move out of your way. And that'll be fine. That's good enough. You're outdoors. And there's not many people on, well, I'm talking about the unpopular trails, so there's not many people. You're passing a few people outdoors, and if you stay away from them, it's very, very safe. I'd be shocked if anyone caught COVID that way. What about going to the park? I rate it moderately safe to safe. Not very safe, unless there's nobody there. But I'm like, you, you take a trip to the park, and there's more people at parks than usual when they're open, because people just don't have much to do. So they, they're gravitating towards things that are outdoors, which is why it is important if you hike to try to find trails that are off the beaten path. But going to the park, yeah, there's a lot of people at the park. So if there's a lot of people there and they're not all keeping their distance as well, then it goes down to moderately safe. It is still outdoors. You're not really close to a lot of people. If you 
approach it responsibly and don't sit there talking with people there. If you just do your own thing and stick with the people you came with, like you take your kids, you just hang out with your kids and not the other people. You try to keep distance as much as you can. You don't stand close to anybody, especially people who are talking. Uh, that's at least moderately safe, and I could even rate it as safe if there's enough space for everybody to, to where you're basically always six feet or more away from everybody else. What about going to an uncrowded beach, a beach that has relatively few people there? Well, that's very safe, similar to the hiking example. If there aren't people around to infect you, you're not going to get infected. That's, that's very simple. If you're at a beach where there's hardly anyone on the beach, you're not going to get the coronavirus there. It's just not going to happen. So it is very safe to go to the beach. Don't, there, there's been a lot made of beaches that, because there's these there's been these stupid parties where a bunch of people in their 20s get together and crowd uh, crowd around and kiss each other and sit on each other's lap and 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 uh, you know the, the way a lot of these young people are at the beach parties. So you have that. Yeah, sure, a lot of people get it. But a normal activity at the beach when it's not crowded, when it's uncrowded, actually, it's very safe. It's one of the safest places you can go. What about a, a medium crowded beach? So where it's not wall-to-wall people, but it's, uh, you're not going to be able to keep tons of distance from everybody. Just think of a day where there's a lot of people on the beach, but not just like so much where you don't have much space for yourself. You can make some space for yourself, but there's going to be a lot of people walking by you, and there may be people who are... Uh, setting their stuff down and, and, and sitting down kind of close to you, but not super close. Well, I would still say that's moderately safe. Again, you're still outside. There's still enough space where you, if, you, if you're watching, you can just keep your distance from people as much as you can. If a few people pass by you, it's not the end of the world. It's not anything like an, an open beach with hardly anybody. That's what's much, much safer. But it's not a terrible situation. Again, I see these peach, these pictures of, of beaches on holidays where there's a lot of people, but it's not like horrendously crowded. It's just fairly crowded. And they say, oh, my God, look at these irresponsible people, and they're not wearing masks. Well, okay, if there's a lot of people, wear the mask. But the truth is that's not where it's mainly being transmitted. If you try to keep your distance there, then you're probably not going to get it, even with a medium type of crowd there. What about going to a crowded beach? Just a beach that has a lot of people, a lot more people coming there than there really is space. Well, I'd call that moderately dangerous. If you're a re- because you have a mass number of people, and if you can't actually keep your distance from them, then even though you're outdoors, you're starting to get in a situation where there's the much higher chance that someone's going to sneeze, cough, breathe, or talk to you, and that'll end up creating them to spit, it, spit on you without you realizing it, and, and you'll catch the coronavirus. Not that you will, but the chance of catching the coronavirus is much higher if it's so crowded that you don't have much room to move or get away. And because of the sheer number of people, which really matters because of the super spreader theory, that there's certain people who spread it to most people, and there's others who don't spread it much at all. So the more people there are there and that come in close contact with you, the higher chances that you're going to get in contact with a super spreader. And even if it's not a super spreader, even if that's that whole theory is incorrect, then still, let's say everybody has the same chance to spread it. Well, still a lot of people, the chance of getting it from one of them is a lot higher. You just need to catch it from one. So I would say definitely avoid crowded beaches. What about an indoor concert? Well, that'll be the first on our list that is very dangerous. An indoor concert has a lot of bad things, especially right now in August and September. 
you have air conditioning running because it's going to be hot or warm outside, especially all those bodies in there. It's definitely going to need an AC. So an air conditioner is running, spreading things around. You have a mass number of people, which means you're going to get a lot of different people's uh, breath and other things that come out of their body that will allow the virus to transmit to you. So a sheer large number of people, everybody's packed in closely together. You're going to have direct contact with a lot of people walking in and out of there. You may say, oh, I'm just in my seat. I'm not moving. Yeah, but walking in and out, you're going to have contact with a lot of people. And you're going to have just still a lot of people around you, even if they leave empty seats or take a policy like that. Plus, you have the air conditioner. What you don't want with a coronavirus, according to what they believe right now, you don't want to be indoors with a mass number of people with a ventilation system that's spreading the air around. That's the absolute worst situation, and that's exactly what a crowded uh, concert would be, an indoor concert. So stay away from those. It's very dangerous. What about going grocery shopping? That's moderately dangerous. Some people believe, oh, grocery shopping's fine. It's an essential service. They've left it open all this time. So, hey, it's got to be fine. If it was that terrible, they wouldn't close it. No, they don't close it because people need groceries. You can't close it. So that's, that's the reason it's not closed. That doesn't mean it's safe. So going to the grocery store does have a lot of those elements. There's a lot of people. You walk by a lot of them. It can be hard to keep your distance from a number of them, even if you try. And there's a ventilation system. Now, the ceiling tends to be very high, which probably helps, but it still has a lot of the elements which can infect you. Why only moderately dangerous? Well, because you're not there that long and because the ceiling's high. So, And also because it's usually not super crowded, though a super crowded one I would upgrade to dangerous. One of the biggest things in your favor, though, is you're not there for that long. What about going to a crowded indoor party? Again, that's very dangerous. You don't want to be indoors with a lot of people crammed together where there's a ventilation system. What about getting takeout food, which I still don't do? Despite the fact that I don't do it, I actually believe it's moderately safe. They have not found any evidence that takeout food is infecting anybody, though maybe people are catching it from there and are attributing it to other things. People who who get takeout food are also likely to take more risks with the coronavirus in general. The ones who are staying away from the takeout food are the very cautious people like me who are including that on the list. So the fact that people are getting takeout food shows that they probably are doing other things where they would probably attribute to getting the coronavirus if they were to get it. So someone who goes to the grocery store and uh, goes to visit with friends and goes to restaurants and uh, goes to a lot of other businesses indoors and does takeout food, like they're not going to blame the takeout food. They're going to say, oh, okay, well, it must have been from the grocery store. Oh, it must have been from this party I went to. Oh, it must have been from this restaurant I went to. Like, that's what they're going to say. They're not going to say, oh, I bet it was that takeout food. That's the problem. You don't, you don't have any people who can isolate the takeout food as being the cause. So I'm still skeptical about that. But I still say it's moderately safe. Uh, the cooking of the food definitely kills the coronavirus. However, there is still a danger that it could pick up the coronavirus after cooked. Because remember, it's cooked and then given to you. So someone could have coughed or sneezed or breathed on it. At that point, it's already cooked and the virus can sit on it. It has not been figured out yet if ingesting the virus by eating it can get you sick. It is possible this is something that has to enter by breathing it in. 
It's possible that eating it will simply go down to your stomach and your stomach acid will kill it and it will fail to infect the rest of your body. However, there's plenty of other viruses where you do get infected by eating it, such as the common cold. So I still have a hard time believing that eating food with the coronavirus sneezed on it is going to be safe. I think it sounds like a ticket to getting it. That's why I'm not getting uh, takeout food, but that's just my own cautiousness. Overall, I still rate it moderately safe. What about dining at a restaurant outdoors? Well, that goes up to moderately dangerous because you've got all the hazards of takeout food, basically, that anyone who prepares the food and serves it to you can infect it. But then you also have the problem that you're sitting outdoors with other people instead of bringing it to your home. So this brings an additional level of danger. And also you have a waiter who is constantly coming around and getting close to you. There's no way he can keep six feet distance. So that upgrades it to moderately dangerous, but it is outdoors, so it's not quite as bad. Now, dining at a restaurant indoors, that is what I would call dangerous. Not very dangerous, but dangerous. Why? Because you're indoors, there's probably a ventilation system, there's a lot of people crammed in a small space, and... It really has all the elements. The only thing that it doesn't have as much as places that called very dangerous is there's not that many people in there, and you're not in there for that long. You're there probably an hour and a half, and uh, the number of distinct people in there isn't that high. So that's the one thing that's not quite as bad, but I'd still call it dangerous. What about working in an office? Well, I hate to tell you, but that is dangerous. It's got all the elements. You're indoors. You're with a number of different people. And here's another thing. You're there for a long time, and that makes a difference. Being somewhere for five minutes versus somewhere for eight hours is a huge difference. There's much less opportunity to catch it in five minutes. But you're there for eight hours. There's a lot of different ways the virus can make its way over to you. And in an office, especially with a ventilation system, which they usually have, it can be sent over to you even if you keep your distance from everybody. So if you have to work in an office, then okay, but just know that it's dangerous. Okay, let's get to the political stuff briefly. I'm not going to do a big political rant, but what about going to an outdoor protest? Well, I'd say that's moderately dangerous. It's definitely not less than that. The outdoor protests, the good news is that they're outdoors. The bad news is that you're with a lot of people, that a lot aren't wearing masks, and a lot are shouting. These are all bad things. So you have contact with a ton of people, they're shouting, and uh, somewhere not, uh, lo- some or a lot not wearing masks. In fact, this could even be classified as dangerous, but it's at least moderately dangerous. The only reason it's not above that is because it's outdoors. But other than that, it has a lot of elements of what makes the COVID risk high. And the coronavirus doesn't know if you're protesting a good cause. It just knows you're together with a bunch of people. And it wants to infect you. What about, and by the way, don't believe those stupid reports that it's it's actually not dangerous and people didn't get sick. It, it's nonsense. These things have been debunked. They're stupid. Uh, those reports are not correct. It was something that got people sick and spread the virus in some cities. So even if you feel good about the protests, it definitely is something that was mod- at least moderately dangerous to do, perhaps worse. Now, What about an indoor political rally like the ones Trump had? Well, I hate to tell Trump, but this was actually very dangerous because it had all the elements of the protest except indoors. Ouch. 
indoors with air conditioning. Double ouch. Yeah, the ceilings were high, but you had a ton of people in there. That is not good news. You do not want to go to an indoor political rally that's just asking for the coronavirus. What about going to the dentist? Let's get away from politics. That's actually moderately dangerous, and that's something I've been struggling with because I need to, but I've been avoiding it. Here's the problem with the dentist. Number one, there's a number of people in there. It's not super crowded, but you're, it's not just you and the dentist. It's you, the dentist, other patients, uh, the receptionist, whoever's in there. You, you have it's, it's kind of like an office setting. Not a ton of people, but there's still a number of people. Number two, you tend to be there for a while. Not super long, but you're not walking in for five minutes. Number three, you're coming in direct contact with people who are working on you. The dentist, the hygienist, whatever. They're coming very close to you and uh, putting equipment in your mouth, putting their hands in your mouth. Uh, they're going to have a mask on, but they, you know, they're still breathing through the mask. And who knows how dangerous all this is. You're, you're actually getting close to more than one per- person on purpose. And doing it for a long period of time. So if your dentist has the coronavirus, if your hygienist has the coronavirus and doesn't know it yet, uh, there's a good chance they could infect you. So I, I call it moderately dangerous. It's only moderately, though, because there's not a lot of people there and there's really not that many people you're super close to. What about the doctor? Again, that's moderately dangerous. You are coming in contact with the nurse, with the doctor, and it's an office setting and there's an air conditioner, all the same stuff. What about a hospital? Well, that's moderately dangerous, but for a bit of a different reason. Well, somewhat of a different reason. Uh, you do have contact with doctors. Uh, it is a bigger place, and they are they're more likely to run into people with COVID, which, by the way, you are also more likely to run into at the doctor than in normal life because people are going to the doctor because they don't feel good and sometimes because they have COVID. So if you go to the doctor or hospital, the chance of running into someone who's COVID positive or someone COVID positive being in the building is much higher, plus – the, you, know, you are you do have the doctor close to you. You have the nurse close to you. In the hospital, same thing. You have the doctors and nurses close to you. Now, in the hospital, they will have more COVID. They probably that's probably has the highest chance of COVID people being there. But they are more aware of that in hospitals and taking more precautions to keep them separate. So that could be helpful. I'm not sure about the ventilation systems. Those may still be spreading around within hospitals. They tried, for example, in nursing homes to separate. COVID and non-COVID people in states like Michigan and New York, and it was a disaster. It still spread, probably through the ventilation system. So I would try to stay away from hospitals if you can. So I would rate it as moderately dangerous, same with a doctor. How about going to an indoor bar? That ranges between dangerous and very dangerous, depending on how many people are in there. I don't have to go into that one further. It's pretty obvious. A lot of people close, a lot of people uh, talking loudly, a lot of drunk people who aren't being very careful, a lot of danger potentially in an indoor bar. As much as you might like bars, I would stay away from them right now. What about sending your kids to school? This is something I had to decide. School year just started up again. Well, this one has a two-part answer. For the kids, it is safe simply because kids rarely get bad COVID symptoms. If you're scared for your kids, you're not looking correctly. The flu, which you probably don't fear very much for your kids, you know about it, you get them the flu shot, but you you don't actively, you're not actively scared of your kids coming down with the flu, and you're not afraid to send them to school because of the flu. 
But the flu kills far more kids, not just more, but far more kids than COVID each year. So if your kid does get the flu, that's where they've got a real chance of dying. Not a super high chance, but a realistic chance of dying. If you, as a middle-aged adult without other problems, gets the flu, your chance of dying is about zero. I've never feared the flu. I do fear COVID. So now it is true. I'm at the age group where there's the biggest distance between COVID danger and flu danger in the COVID direction. So if you compare by age where there's the where COVID is the most dangerous compared to the flu, it's actually right at my age. But still, it, it's it's uh, the other way for kids. For kids, there's a big distance between flu danger and COVID danger with much higher danger for the flu. So as far as your kids, not that you want them to have COVID, but if you're not terribly worried about the flu, then don't worry about COVID for your kids because it's much worse for them to get the flu. But it is dangerous for you as the parent to send your kids to school because the kids may bring it home to you. It's not known if kids can transmit it easily to their parents. Some believe yes, some believe no. There seem to be studies that are conflicting. And if you think about other viruses like the cold, kids bring it home to you all the time. How many times do you get colds because your kids brought it to you? How many times do your kids come home with a cold and then two days later you have the cold? You know where you got it. That's happened to me a lot on this show. I've had to miss weeks of this show in the past because Benjamin gave me a cold. Every cold I was getting was either from casinos or from Benjamin. So I think that's uh, not a stretch to think this could be happening with COVID. I know it's not a cold, but by the way, some colds are coronaviruses. <laughs> so it kind of is. I'm pretty sure I've caught coronaviruses from Ben before. Not this one, harmless coronaviruses, but still coronaviruses. So, uh, sending your kids to school is dangerous for you as a parent. Maybe worth it to you, but I decided, given the age of myself and Benjamin's mom, and given that with all the kids, or a lot of the kids, not going, that uh, he's not going to fall behind, because everybody's falling behind. So, I think it's fine. I'm actually one of the people on the right who doesn't think it's bad to continue with the Zoom schooling. I'm not one of them saying, send the kids to school. I know some people are very big on sending the kids to school. I think that if uh, you want to provide the option, it's fine. I'm not against that, but uh, if you come with the conclusion that the school is dangerous and the teachers who are concerned about that, yeah, I'd be damn concerned if I were a teacher, especially an older one, especially even one my age. So the teachers actually have a point. I, I rarely agree with the teachers' union. And I think it sucks and it's harmful to education in this country. But in this case, they have a point. What about hiring a repairman to come into your house? Let's say something breaks down, but you can kind of live with it. Let's say you have uh, multiple bathrooms in the house and one of the sinks doesn't work or shower doesn't work anymore. Normally, you'd call a plumber or a handyman. You are unable to fix it yourself and you think, should I just not use this bathroom? We have other bathrooms or should I bring a repairman in the house? The, People have to go through these decisions. Well, good news, it is actually moderately safe, and I've actually had repairmen in the house. I've had them here for my refrigerator, for example, that uh, needed two visits to fix. It's nothing I'd want to do all the time, but uh, if you keep your distance from the repairman, 
then it should be fine. Why? It's just one person. You keep away from him. It is not really thought to be transmitted on surfaces. And if you really want, then just go wipe down the surfaces with a disinfectant if you're really that worried after he's here. Whatever he touched, wipe down. And you should be fine. So um, just because you have a repairman here doesn't mean you have to sit on his lap and have him breathe on you and cough on you. You, you can keep your distance. And he'll know why. He won't be insulted. You can say, I'd like to keep my distance. He may want to keep his distance from you. In fact, he's taking much more of a chance coming to your house than the other way around because he doesn't know the way your house is. And he's walking into a house where several people live. And he is also there where an air conditioner is spreading it around. So <laughs> you're just letting one person in. And you can turn off your own AC if you want. If you're not worried about the AC, you can turn it off. In fact, I would recommend turning off the AC while the repairman is here especially if it's uh, tolerable temperature-wise to turn off for a short time. So yeah, it is moderately safe to have a repairman in the house. What about getting a haircut? Why well, you haven't had a haircut in a long time? I haven't had one in over six months. Well, it's moderately dangerous if you're getting it done in a hair salon, and it's moderately safe if alone somewhere with the person cutting your hair. Alone, meaning they come to you, cut it in your house or cutting it outside, preferably. Or you agree to meet them somewhere where it's just you and them. Whatever it is, if you can find a place for a... Or maybe you have a stylist that can just meet you and open up their salon just for you and them. But the, the safest way to do it is actually outside. If you can get someone to cut your hair actually outdoors, like in your backyard, that's the best way to do it, if they'll agree. But if you can't, then try to be alone with them. If you go into a full salon of people, then you've got all the typical problems I talked about with the office setting that also exists in a hair salon. Plus, you have the additional situation that you can't keep six feet away from the person cutting your hair, and you have to hope they don't have the coronavirus because they're going to be pretty close to you and breathing on you even if they don't want to, even if they're wearing a mask, and uh, there's uh, a chance you're going to get the coronavirus from them. So that's something that you should keep in mind before you get a haircut, you should really try to have it just be you and them and preferably outdoors. Uh, I've been considering that of actually having someone come over here and cut my, I actually have someone's number. Uh, I was considering calling her and having her come here and cut my hair and Benjamin's hair. Haven't done it yet, but I'm considering. What about going to a casino? Going to a casino is what I would call dangerous. Why? It's got a lot of elements. It's got a lot of people. It's got an air conditioner, of course, and yeah, it's uh, it's just the vast number of people that are going to be passing by near you, whatever. I'm not even talking about the surfaces. That's probably not a big deal. But the vast number of people near you plus the, uh, the, the air conditioner spreading everything around. There's been a number of people who've gotten it in casinos that I know got it in casinos that thought they were taking all the precautions that they were going to be safe. That's not to say if you go in a casino, you're going to catch it, but it's to say that it is a dangerous place to be and you should try to cut it down as much as possible. What about playing poker in a poker room? Well, the smaller the poker room as far as number of people, the better. However, a physically small room is bad. You more want something that's got uh, relatively few people compared to all the space there. You want something that's spacious but doesn't have a lot of people. So like a smaller number crammed in a room isn't good either. Uh, Same problems with a casino, except uh, in some cases it can be worse because you're sitting with people for a long time. And uh, there's exposure to them, even if there's those uh, plexiglass dividers. There's still the matter of the air conditioner and a lot of things like that. Uh, 
but you are sitting in the same place in a long time for a long time. So playing poker, I would actually say, is dangerous. So those are some things to think about. These are just my opinion. I don't have any proof of anything I'm saying here, but uh, I would be surprised if I'm too far off with a lot of this stuff. We've there's, enough has been learned over the last uh, six months about where people are getting it and where they're not getting it. And we'll probably find some surprises later, but right now it really does seem like you avoid the ventilation indoors and you avoid small places indoors or places very crowded places indoors, except for your own house, and you'll be in pretty good shape without catching it. I know some of it's unavoidable if you work in an office or whatever, but avoid it as much as you can. Okay, finally, we have our last topic of the evening, and then we're going to shut it down. Finally, some good news with the coronavirus. There are some new tests that are already out there that we talked about a little bit earlier in the show that might be a game changer when they are mass released to the public. This is something that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it really is a matter of how quickly they can get them to everybody. So the good news is these really exist. And there are four different types that are out there. And I think this might be a game changer as far as testing, not necessarily as far as uh, stopping the virus, but as far as uh, understanding when you have it, when you don't have it, and also maybe knowing when not to go out if you have it, not to spread it around, stop people from spreading it around as much. Right now, the biggest problem with tests is they're slow. The second biggest problem is they're inconvenient. The third biggest problem is they don't feel very good. These are all things that stop people from getting tests. And then there's a fourth problem, too, believe it or not, that some people just don't know how to do it. They get, they, they're starting to feel symptoms and they go, okay, where do I go? What do I do? Some people are afraid they're going to get charged, even though they're not. So some people are just, nah, I, I don't want to bother. You know, like, I don't feel like going anywhere. I'm afraid they're going to charge me money. Uh, I'm afraid that, you know, I, I, I don't want to look this up right now. I feel too crappy. I don't feel like researching this. So some people just don't do it because it's a pain in the ass. And they, some people fear the actual test of sticking that thing way up your nose and it being very uncomfortable. So, all, and plus, when you get it done, it can be up to a week to get back the results. We talked about uh, the poker player, Robert Gray, who passed away at the age of 56 in Las Vegas from the coronavirus, and he died before his test results came back. He took a test and died, and then it came back positive. Now, it wouldn't have helped him if it came back positive before that, I think. Uh, I actually, well, actually it may have, because if he was in the hospital... They may have caught whatever happened to him. I still think he died of a heart attack or something. It was very abrupt. He went from, like, I'm, I'm starting to feel kind of crappy to just dead, and that's not usually how it works. But that's how it worked for him. But anyway, here's the story with the new tests. These are called antigen tests. Now, don't get these confused with antibody tests. That's not the same thing. An antigen and antibody are not the same thing. This is not testing for after you had COVID. This is like the regular COVID tests. They're testing, do you currently have COVID? It's called an antigen test. And the FDA in the United States has granted emergency use authorization to four antigen tests, the fourth being granted this week. So this is different than what's called PCR tests, which are molecular molecular diagnostic tests and antigen tests because they're different 
they don't need complicated chemicals. They don't need uh, to be transported anywhere. They don't need RNA extraction kits. So they don't need specialists working with them to get the results like the current coronavirus tests do. That's why they're slow. That's why these current tests are slow is that human beings actually have to go, go to work on them and do some specialized things to figure out if your test is positive or negative. These antigen tests work on their own. They do the work themselves. They don't require any other human being once they're produced other than the person who's testing. So all you need is to have a box with the antigen test in it, and you can do it yourself at home. So this obviously can change the game as far as testing. Now, are these expensive? No. They claim that these can be produced for about five bucks. Actually, they'll cost about five bucks. It could be produced for less, but selling on the open market would be about $5 for each of these things. So you also get results very quickly. You get results in about 15 minutes from an antigen test, whereas these uh, PCR tests, because of the handling that is required by another human being and the complicated process, as I said, it can be up to a week. However, there is one downside. They're not as reliable as the PCR tests. They're more likely to show up with a false negative than the PCR tests, which already have a a, a decent-sized false negative rate. False negative, of course, is when it says that you don't have it when you really do. In fact, an online veteran who donated to tonight's free roll told me that he was false negative. And I, I heard it was like, 30% 30% the false negatives of the PCR tests. So this could be even worse. Maybe they've improved them. But uh, the antigen tests will definitely never be as good as the PCR tests. Whatever the results are, they, an antigen test will never be that good. But the good things about them is they're fast. You do it yourself at home. They're cheap. They're going to be easy to get. Not right now, but they will be easy to get. And once you have these, you can uh, get one for five bucks and you get the results in about 10 minutes. A company called Binax Now is going to be distributing them soon. They claim that they're going to be shipping tens of millions of these in September, which of course is just coming in a few days. I don't know when in September, but Sometime in September, they're going to start shipping them. It's going to be tens of millions will go out in September. And then in October, they're going to start sending out 50 million of these tests per month. And I don't know what the plans are for November, December and further, but they're saying that they'll be able to make to send at least 50 million of these boxes out in the month of October and beyond. How does that compare to the tests that uh, exist at the moment? Well, last week... The U.S. did about 4.7 million tests. And that sounds like a lot, but that's still uh, fewer than 20 million tests a month. And the these uh, little boxes will be 50 million a month. So that's already making the testing go up by two and a half times. Plus, there will probably be a lot more tests taken once it's easy. If you can just get a box for five bucks and test yourself for COVID and don't have to make appointments and you don't need to have that big swab up your nose and you don't have to wait a week, if you can just get a $5 box and do it yourself, 
you'll probably see a lot more people who are willing to do it and who will do it whenever they start to feel sick. And then for those that actually have COVID, they will know to stay away. So if you're just starting to feel a little bit sick and take a test, then you'll say, oh, okay, well, I don't have COVID. Okay, good. Now I don't have to worry about infecting other people. Or if you do have it, then you say, oh, crap, I have it. I'm going to stay home and not infect people. Whereas before, you don't know until you feel clear symptoms of it, and in the meantime, you're spreading. Now, it's still not going to help when people catch it and don't know they have it at all and spread it around. And that is happening, and there's no way to stop that. The only way to stop that is if uh, you suspect you might have had contact with someone. Like, for example, someone in your house has it, or someone contacts you and says, hey, remember you saw me the other day? Well, I have COVID. You better go get tested. And then you go test yourself and see you're asympto- that you have it but are asymptomatic. Uh, I know somebody actually close to my age who was asymptomatic and the only reason they tested is because their husband had it. So this person would have never tested otherwise and it shows there's a lot of people that have probably had it and don't know. So this is a good thing that this is coming out and what this can also do is that this can start becoming available at various businesses that can use these to uh, only admit people who will use one of these tests. Now, in some places, it would be inconvenient, like a casino. Do you really want to go and and do this and stand there for 10 minutes? If you have to do this crap, people may just want to go. It's one thing to take it at home. It's another thing to be forced to to go into a business. However, they can start considering opening things up like stadiums and just make everybody who's going to go in take one of those. Yeah, it'll be a slow process, but at least it's a way that they could do it. And uh, provided that this is getting a good enough of uh, sensitivity that is uh, showing enough people properly that are positive, at least if they test everybody walking in, you can say, okay, most of the people here, except for the ones the test missed, don't have COVID because it uh, the test there told them. You don't have to worry about symptoms anymore. You don't have to worry about fevers anymore. That's the problem with current methodology to keep people who are COVID positive out is, yeah, you can check the temperature, but not everybody gets a fever who has it. Yeah, you can say don't come in if you're sick, but some people will go anyway and just assume it's nothing. And then you have the people who are asymptomatic and just clearly have no idea. But what if there is a place where before walking in, you have to go through a COVID testing thing where you have to take that, wait 10 minutes and show that, and then they call you in and say, yes, you're, you're negative, go through, or no, uh, you're positive, leave. That will stop the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people from going in and infecting people. So I don't know how they'd handle this in like a giant stadium. Like how do you get that many people in? And uh, where do you have them all waiting while they're taking the test and waiting 10 minutes? There's some logistical issues, but you can see where this could start being used, cruise ships may start using these. This is perfect for cruise ships because cruise ships, the problem is that it's not so, so much like 10 minutes extra to get on is a big deal. It takes a while to get on a cruise ship anyway. It's like a whole process to get on a cruise ship. It's a pain in the ass and I hate it. But I like the cruise itself. I just hate the embarking and disembarking. But if it's an extra 10 minutes for this, it's no big deal. You're going to be on the cruise ship for seven days. But this is a way that they can tell who has the coronavirus before they get on. And yeah, if someone caught it yesterday, then there's a good chance the symptoms won't show yet and the test will not show positive yet and the test will miss some people, but it could make cruising a lot safer if you could pick off the asymptomatic people 
or those that don't show a fever or those that are uh, having symptoms and just want to take the cruise anyway and don't give a crap. So you, you get a lot, you'll get a lot of these people off. You'll, there probably will catch a number of people on a large cruise. You probably will catch a lot of people before they even get on with this test and say, uh-uh, you're not getting on here. You're COVID positive. Get out of here. And then they'll refund their money or, or give them credit for a future cruise. This could save the cruising industry. The, the big problem they'll still have on cruises, and I've said this before, is if there's an outbreak on the ships, if once you do get people on there, because ships have thousands of people, there probably will be some that slip through, even with this test, that get on and then infect everybody before you realize they're positive. Or you may not even know who the spreader is if they're not symptomatic. So this can become a big problem. And... If the whole ship starts getting sick, then you may have the problem that we had back in March that no place wants to accept the ship and treat these people. The ship's going to be just floating out there, waiting, waiting, waiting with everyone confined to the rooms. It's awful. So for that reason, even if I was not uh, afraid of getting COVID, let's say I just had it or something and I felt, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm fine. I won't, uh, I'm not worried about getting it. I wouldn't want to take a cruise just because – unless I knew what their plan was if the whole ship has an outbreak, what they're going to do. If they're going to do the crap they did in March and lock me in my room for weeks until someone takes me, until someone takes the ship, then forget it. That would be awful. Forget the COVID danger. Imagine being locked into that little room for, for three weeks and they allow you like one or two hours to go to the top deck to stretch out. I mean t- talk about a crappy existence. Even me who could be on my computer and, and use the internet – but by the way, I'm sure that would be – terribly slow because you'd have everybody in the room doing the same thing. So you'd probably have some like horribly slow and probably unusable internet and you'd just be sitting there for weeks in that tiny room. I mean, you'd go crazy. Be like being in prison. So that is something I would not want to do. I don't know when the next cruise I will take, but that's uh, the way life is these days. So anyway, the antigen test, uh, it will have some uses and maybe it can be a game changer as far as uh, determining whether people are safe to enter certain places that before right, that right now you're kind of afraid to be so we will see uh, now I'm looking at this article it's claiming that uh, see I'm looking I'm gonna look this up I should have looked this up before the show but I had heard there was a 30 percent false negative rate with those PCR tests. But this article seems to be saying otherwise. So I'm going to look this up right now. False negative rate COVID test. I'm going to get an answer. Maybe it was 30% a long time ago. Let me try to look at a recent article. Here's something from Harvard. I think I trust Harvard, right? Uh, okay, so yeah, it says 2 to 37%. It's, it's hard to tell. That's a wide range. <laughs> 2 to 37%. So the 30 I heard wasn't even wrong. How do they get 2 to 37? That's such a weird range. Now, they claim the false positive is pretty low. It's about 5% or lower. So that's not the problem with this test. That's a big problem with that Cologuard that you do for colon cancer. If you don't get a colonoscopy and use Cologuard instead, it's way easier than colonoscopy. But, I mean, way, way easier. It's super easy. But... It, it gets like a 13% false positive. Can you imagine getting a false positive on a colon cancer and sweating that out until they go do the colonoscopy and verify it? You can't, you can't just go the next day. It's, it takes some time to schedule, even under these circumstances. Can you imagine you get a positive Cologuard test and have to wait weeks thinking you have colon cancer? I mean, that'd be torture. That'd be absolute torture. 
So that, that's why I actually haven't used Colaguard. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the the, the thirteen percent false positive. I mean, I've got two percent false positive, five percent false positive. I take the chance. Thirteen percent is that's it's that's uh, you know I've taken many beats in poker that are much uh, lower than thirteen percent. Okay, that's it for now. We will be on next Friday. I can't think of why we would not be. It will be Friday, August 30. No, no, it's August 30. It'll be Friday, uh, August, or September 4th. Got a little bit confused. Friday, September 4th will be the next show. We're going to try to stick to Friday. I don't know if we'll always be Friday, but that's what I've been aiming for. Benjamin's mom asked me, well, I thought the show was on Saturday now. And I said, no, 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 I, I'm trying to push it to Friday. I, I really want it to be Friday. I just had to do some Saturdays. Thank you to the people who donated to the free roll. Thank you to Vintage One and Trader Ruski for your appearances here, though they were brief. Glad I had you guys for some time. It's kind of weird how you both vanished at the same time. I think that was a coincidence. Hopefully it wasn't a conspiracy to disappear on me. You guys notice I did the whole show myself, though, aside from that? I really talked probably like 99.9% of the time on this show. Maybe not quite that, but close. All right. I have nothing more to say, so I'm going to close it. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. week is the right amount of time to have between shows because uh, when it's more than a week what happens is that we don't have enough to talk about when it's uh, more than a week we have too much to talk about and I have to skip over some things I mean you think in eight hours I could squeeze everything in but somehow I can't so this is one of these things where you want to have the right amount of material to cover. I wonder if we'll hear more about the Antonio situation within the next few weeks. Kind of still some unanswered questions to that story. And I'm very interested to see what happens with Poker Bros. Is Poker Bros going to be an epic collapse where tons of people get stiffed or are people going to get paid surprisingly or will they find their way back to the app store it is possible they'll correct the diamond thing if that guy who texted me is correct so we'll see I can see it going either way um, from the 516 says, by suing in Las Vegas, it's most likely going to be tossed for jurisdictional reasons. This is further evidence that this is about outing what Ocean did. Yeah. That's a good point. I think that's from Jeff Dime. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's a good point that maybe they're just trying to out it. But I think they're out for blood legally, too. And if it gets tossed, they can always uh, refile in New Jersey. Okay, everybody. I am closing it down. Good night. Shalom. Shalom.